Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. This is the Druff and Friend show being broadcasted live and recorded on July 22nd, 2019. The time right now, 9.24 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. We haven't been on since the 7th, 15 days for two reasons, but we're back. I'll tell you the two reasons very shortly. So, the free roll tonight. Started 10 minutes ago, but you can still get in. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you can find near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. You need a separate account there, and it needs to be validated. Obviously, you can't just go create a new account right now and play tonight. You can create a new account, but it'll be for next week. It has to be validated by Belly Buster. You should PM him on the forum, Belly Space Buster. You also need to understand the rules as far as being able to qualify for the free money we're giving away. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, will tell you those rules. This week we are giving away $150. And if you've never seen these free rolls before, the field is pretty small, especially on nights like these where the show was announced kind of last minute and we hadn't been on in two weeks. So I bet it's going to be really small tonight. But always a small field, always fewer than 100 players. And this is free money that I will send to you by Bitcoin, by bank transfer, by Zelle. I can even uh, send it to you some other ways online that you might be able to think of, especially a large service that's been around for almost two decades that people have been used, people have used to pay for things online. I can use that service as well if you need to collect the money that you've won. You can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. I prefer you actually to PM me on the forum. Dan Space Druff is my name on the Poker Fraud Alert forum. You can also text me, 775-372-8355. If you win the free roll, and of course, if you qualify for the free money we give away every single week. This week, the money came from Belly Buster. $50 came from him, who he also runs the... No Fraud Online Poker Room. It actually runs out of his house. It's not run on any machine that I have any control over. It's his machine that runs this all the way in England. And $100 from Eric Benzamogan. Remember him? He still listens, and he generously donated $100 for tonight. So $150 free roll tonight, thanks to Eric Benzamogan and Belly Buster. The prizes are as follows. Pretty good for a free roll that's not going to have a whole lot of people participating. We have first place, $75, second place, $40, third place, $25, fourth place, $10, 75 40 25 and 10 If you haven't been paid for a previous free roll, I have logged it on the forum where everyone can see, so you're not going to be forgotten about. But uh, if I haven't paid you, uh, please PM me or text me in some way and uh, let me know you'd like your money and how you'd like it, and I will send it to you. Remember, if you don't collect your winnings within six months of winning them, then it may be donated back to the prize pool. That's been our policy for over a year now. You still have until 940 to start the free roll with a full stack. After 940, you won't be able to get in. You'll be shut out. 928 right now, so you got 12 more minutes to get into that free roll and play. Your late registration is 25 minutes long, and it started at 915, which is actually before the show started tonight, which happens sometimes. We have a lot of things to talk about tonight, a whole lot of things to talk about. This may end up being a very long show, but I'm going to be aware of the fact that we have a lot of things to talk about, which means I may not spend as long on any individual topic as I otherwise might. 
we have so many things. It's probably the longest agenda we've ever had. I, I think we have probably close to 20 items to talk about. So you can imagine that, uh, like, like say, if I took an hour on each one, <laughs> I'd be doing this for 20 hours. If I did half an hour for each one, it would be 10 hours. And that's not even counting the intro, which always takes an hour. So tonight I've got to be somewhat brief on some of these things, but I'll try to cover everything as well as I can. Some of this is because a lot of things have happened. Some of this is because we have not been on for 15 days. So why haven't we been on for 15 days? Well, I made a pretty deep run in the main event. My deepest run since 2010. My second deepest run of all time. My deepest run by far since Poker Fraud Alert started in 2012. So I'm going to talk a lot about that tonight. First, I want to give you the phone numbers to the show. 775-FRAUD55 is our main phone number. 775-372-8355 is how that translates. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone that's located on top of Mount Charleston, which is near Las Vegas. It's about 45 minutes away by car. It's always about 30 degrees colder there than the Las Vegas you know. We have an old 70s rotary phone forwarding to me wherever I go. It's a separate line into the show, 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. We have a call-to-listen line, which you can't call into the show using that line, but you can listen to the show using that line. And when you use the call-to-listen line, you don't need anything that involves modern technology. You don't need a smartphone. You don't need a data plan. You don't need a computer. You don't need the internet. In fact, you could be in a house that hasn't been touched since the 1960s, and you could still listen to this show through the call to listen line as long as that house had phone service. Any phone that can dial can listen to this show by calling 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736. We have an alternate call to listen line if that one's not working well. 641-741-1095. 641-741-1095. If you forget these tough-to-remember numbers, you can always go to the radio tab near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. They're all listed there. You can also text me anytime at 775-372-8355 before, during, or after the show. Just watch out because I may read your texts on the air unless you ask me at the beginning of the text. Don't read on air. Then I will respect your wishes. Otherwise, I may or may not read it on air. Got a text from the 248 before the show. Chances of radio tonight? I'd say 100%. From the 507, Ms. Rocky is promoting the PPP poker app. Maybe this is the same app that Bart Hansen's been promoting. I can't remember. I'm not sure what Bart Hansen's been promoting, but uh, yeah, that PP poker app, uh, we've talked about that before. And you, you have to trust the people running those little private rooms on PP poker. And if you can't fully trust the person running it, then they may run off with your money. Just because Ms. Rocky is promoting it doesn't mean that uh, if you trust him, you should do it because he'll promote anything. We've seen that over time. Let's see, anything else? We're going to have Trader Ruski on tonight, by the way, as, as always. I'm always happy to have him here. I think I've pretty much covered everything except for the agenda itself. So let me get to the agenda, and then we will get going. I don't want to waste too much time on this intro. Because we have so much to talk about. No lack of topics tonight. In fact, I kept thinking I was done and like, oh, no, I got to talk about this too. Oh, no, I got to talk about this too. Like so many things. I'm going to count it right now. Let's see. 
one, two, three, four, five, six. So six main event topics, and then other topics. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirty, forty. Wow, we have twenty topics tonight. We really do. We actually have twenty topics. Fourteen not about the World Series of Poker main event, and six about the main event. Oh my gosh, I've never had twenty topics before. My my voice, my throat, it's it's already hurting thinking about this. Doing twenty topics. Well, this is definitely not going to be a short show. There's no chance. Will it be one of the longest ever? I don't know. Because the second reason that I haven't been on has been a cold. I got all the way through the World Series of Poker without getting the slightest bit sick. I didn't get a cold. I didn't get any kind of virus of any kind. No stomach sickness. Nothing. Everything was great. I didn't get the slightest bit sick for the entire World Series when I was there, and keep in mind, I was there for five of the seven weeks. I was there actually more time this year other than when I lived in Vegas. So that's I spent a lot of time there this year, and I didn't get sick once, which is pretty impressive since think of all those chips that went around, these dirty chips from all these dirty people, and I didn't get sick. Except I probably did because at the very end I probably caught something because 30 hours after I got home, I felt symptoms of a cold, which actually ended up being a pretty bad cold. Not the longest lasting cold I've had. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing the show right now. But for five days, it was a very bad cold. And then it started to get a little bit better starting on Thursday. And I noticed it was slowly getting better. That's when I said, I think Monday will be the day we can do the show. And sure enough, I feel good enough to do it today. But I'll tell you, you may hear me clearing my throat tonight. You may hear me sneezing or coughing. I'll try to mute it when I can. I may have to pause if you like a cutout for a second. It's probably because I'm doing one of those things. I'm not perfect, but I'm going to try to do this, and hopefully my voice can survive too, and hopefully I don't cause a setback in my recovery, which I have caused before when I've done these shows while I have a cold. But we, you know, it's been 10 days since I came down with symptoms, and the symptoms are, I'd say, about 80% gone at this point. So I feel good enough, and I want to do radio. This is not one of the shows where I feel like it's a burden or it's a pain in the ass. This, this one I wanted to do, I've wanted to do this show for so long, and I haven't been able to until tonight. Okay, so here's the agenda. The main event topics. Number one, me. The topic is me, because I ran very deep in the main event this year. The second main event topic we're going to talk about involves my experiences with the winner of the 2019 WSOP main event, Hossein Insan. I spent a whole day not just playing with him at the World Series main event, but he was directly to my left. He was right next to me. And I had two major hands with him. One good, one bad. Very straightforward hands. No one did anything wrong or sucked out on anybody. Two very straightforward hands that went down as you'd expect, but nevertheless, two major hands. I will tell you about those two hands. I'll tell you about my opinions of Hossein Insan, who won the main event. The World Series of Poker main event bubble is always a bit of a mess. People are trying to stall. People are trying to make it. People don't want to have played three days for nothing. A lot of amateurs in the field were cashing the main is huge to them. Some of them, that's their only goal, believe it or not. So yeah, the main event bubble is a tough thing to manage, I understand. But this year was a clusterfuck worse than I've ever seen. This was the worst managed bubble I've seen by a wide margin. And I was right there to see it because I was part of it. You know, I cashed. Obviously, I was there for the bubble. 
I'll tell you about the clusterfuck of the main event bubble, including that when it was all over, when the bubble was all said and done, and we all cashed, there was a missing casher. Yeah. Someone cashed and didn't know they cashed. Isn't that awful? I'll tell you that whole story. And by the way, the first one to bring this up, that would be me. I was the one who brought this up on social media. I was the one who brought people's attention to it. Not that it wouldn't have been found, but I was the first one to bring this out. But then you think once we're past that, it'd be smooth sailing. Not so much. There is a second bubble that should not have been on a pay jump. Usually main event pay jumps, there's not much of uh, any kind of bubble or any kind of stalling, anything like that, except for maybe like when they were about to get to the final table. But I didn't make it that far. But there was a second bubble that occurred at 163rd place, would you believe? Why, why would there be a second main event bubble at 163rd place? I'm going to tell you about a, another screw-up on the part of the World Series that caused that. Jack Effel, never known to be a statesman as far as the way he talks to people, he caused a lot of controversy with a ruling involving Dario Sammartino Near the final table. It wasn't quite at the final table yet, but it was close. And even though most believe he made the right ruling, most did not like the attitude that Jack displayed. And I'm going to play you a little clip of him. And you can decide for yourself if you think Jack was out of line. This is World Series of Poker tournament director Jack Effel, who's been the tournament director for many, many years. Finally, six-handed in the main event. Is it really possible to fold pocket queens pre-flop? To a three bet? That happened. Alex Livingston folded pocket queens to a three bet. Pre flop. He really did. I will tell you if that was smart, if it was stupid, or if it was somewhere in between. I'll give you my opinion, of course. You'll have yours, I'm sure, as well. It's been uh, hotly debated all over social media. Non World Series topics tonight. I got. Pulled over on the way back from the World Series. Driving away from Vegas. This didn't happen in Vegas, but kind of close to Vegas. It was still in Nevada. I was pulled over for a law known as the move-over law. I'm going to talk about that and tell you why I think it's a completely bullshit ticket. And I'm going to invite any of you to call in and debate me about it if you don't agree. there's, There's people on the forum who strongly disagree with me. I invite all of them or any of you listeners to call up and debate me about the move-over law. I'm going to give you an update on the Smashburger situation. Remember, Smashburger had a confrontation with them during the World Series of Poker that happened, uh, when was the confrontation, about a month ago? Anyway, uh, I have an update on what has happened since then, and I think I can call it a happy ending for the most part. There is a lawsuit against the new Encore Boston Harbor, a lawsuit that came to be after it had been open less than a month. I'll tell you about that lawsuit and whether I think it has any validity. Comedian Doug Stanhope got banned from the Rio and has been very public about it. He posted the ban letter that he received on June 27th, which he says is because he posted a one-star bad review of the Rio back in February. I'm going to read you his review, and I'm going to read you the letter he received, and I'm going to give you my opinion on Doug Stanhope's ban. 
Remember terminal patient, terminal cancer patient Kevin Roster that I've talked about on this show recently, also known as Kevin Rax. He went out to play the main event. He actually ran up a pretty good stack. Then he wasn't able to really play in a coherent fashion because he was uh, in such terrible condition after the second day's dinner break, and he ended up not cashing, but still a great effort, and everyone was very proud of him, very inspirational story. Well, would you believe, would you believe this guy is on his deathbed? This guy may not make it to September 1st. I mean, he may not even make it to August 1st. This guy is really in his final days. Would you believe that two different guys, completely independent of one another, scammed him for America's cardroom chips? Yeah. And of the two scammers, who again were not working at Cahoots, one didn't know about the other, of two separate scams that occurred on the same day. One was a tennis player from Baylor University. The other one was a guy I actually knew 10 years ago. Never a friend of mine, but someone I knew and sometimes talked to 10 years ago. And the second guy is actually a career scammer who is near my age. So I'm going to talk about that reprehensible crime that occurred against the terminal cancer patient. Can you imagine scamming a terminal cancer patient? That's disgusting. And by the way, you could say, well, maybe they didn't know he was a terminal cancer patient. Well, he told them after they scammed him, they still didn't send the money back. Here's a question that you may have pondered before, and we're going to talk about on the show, because Daniel Negreanu brought it up on social media recently. If you use a VPN to play on a site that doesn't allow U.S. players, and you use a VPN to make it appear that you're in a different country so they allow you to play, and believe that you're in that country when you're really still in the U.S., is that considered cheating? Some say yes, some say no. I will tell you my opinion, and I'll tell you Daniel's opinion about it as well. A poker player won a $500 Royal Flush promo. That is, if you get a two-card Royal Flush during uh, specific hours, I believe, they pay you $500. This happened at MGM Springfield. However, he was very disappointed to find that they would not pay him a dime because he didn't have his ID on him. And when he asked to go get it from the car where he left it, they said, you can go ahead and do that, but we're not paying you the 500. You don't have the ID on you and you don't get paid. Wow. Again, this wasn't someone who couldn't show ID. This was someone whose ID was in his car, which he had to go walk over to and come back five minutes later and show them. They were not accepting that. I'll tell you why this happened, and I'll tell you what others have been saying about this. Some are on this guy's side and some are not. I'll tell you how I feel. I think you can probably guess. WSOP.com, in controversy again, they allegedly shipped the wrong amount of chips to someone who won the main pot in a three-way pot where somebody was all in. Talk about that and the fallout that has happened since then. Maurice Hawkins is back in the news for allegedly ripping someone off. This already happened last year, and then it got settled amicably, supposedly. Then Maurice actually emailed me and wanted me to take the story down, which I refused to do. I told him I'll update it and that it was settled, but I'm not going to take the thing down because it's a real story. But uh, he's now accused of ripping someone else off. He's accused of uh, owing $103,000. So we'll talk about that story. And we'll talk about how 
Maurice Hawkins could be in that position, given that he's done so well on the tournament scene in 2019. Speaking of guys who owe money, Dennis Bielden, who has appeared on Live at the Bike, is accused of embezzling $22 million in order to gamble and uh, basically live a high-stakes lifestyle. Wow. $22 million. And just in case Dennis Bielden felt like he was lonely, he has company. Another prominent person is now accused of embezzling money in order to gamble and play poker. Robert Alexander, who was highly involved in the uh, distribution of the Grand Theft Auto video game series, which is very, very popular. He is accused of embezzling investor money to gamble and supposedly owes Patrick Antonius $700,000. Talk about that interesting story and how Robert Alexander went from someone doing quite well to basically a deadbeat who borrows money from everybody and then investing money from his own or embezzling investor money from his own company allegedly we talked about Phil Ivey being at the World Series of Poker and people were wondering well why is he here if he owes the Borgata 11 million dollars from a judgment can't the Borgata just seize whatever he wins the same way that Mason Malmuth seized Dutch Boyd's winnings when Malmuth had a judgment against Dutch Boyd I thought, well, maybe Ivy's just playing for the fun of it. Maybe he's playing to, to accumulate World Series points. Maybe he's playing for side bets. Well, I still don't know the answer as to why he was playing, but some were insisting that Ivy had some kind of legal victory that I just hadn't heard about that prevents the Borgata from going after any kind of Nevada assets or Nevada winnings. That's untrue. It turns out that the Borgata did go after Ivy's Nevada assets and WSOP winnings, and we will talk about that as our second-to-last topic if I'm still standing. And finally, if you're in a casino, the last thing you're probably ever worried about is the roof collapsing, especially if there's no earthquake or anything that should be causing it. If you're just sitting there and nothing else is happening, you probably don't even bother to think about, hey, what if the roof collapses? Well, if you were at the Lucky Lady Casino in Gardena, California, then you probably should have thought about that because the roof did collapse and some people got injured. Those are our big 20 topics on this July 22nd, 2019. Let's get going. But not before we reach Trader Ruski. Now keep in mind, I may have to take some little breaks here. Might take some water breaks. <clears throat> may have to do that. It is not easy doing a show where you have to talk so much when you have a cold. So we can reach Trader Ruski. What's happening, Druff? Trader Ruski, glad to hear from you, and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, let's just jump right into it. I played the main event, again, as I have every single year since 2005. That was the first year I played. I did not cash. I will admit that in 2005, uh, kind of still feeling my way around no limit tournaments, though later that year I did actually manage to finish uh, fourth at a, a major event in the Caribbean. Somehow I managed that one. And I also 
bubbled or pseudo bubbled as like three off the money uh, World Series of Poker no limit event that year, which some of you don't know. It could have been my third consecutive cash to start my World Series career, but I just missed it. I think uh, Svetlana Gromankova busted me from what I remember. Anyway, I've been playing it every year, and I've had kind of a love-hate relationship with the main event. So from 05 through 09, or let me, let me start, let me go back a little further. 05 to 08, I played it and busted first day every time. And to be honest, I wasn't really playing it right. I was uh, putting chips in way too easily, calling off too light. I was, I, I just wasn't playing it right. I, was, I, was, I wasn't playing it conservatively enough. Even back in those days when you didn't start as many chips and the, the structure wasn't as good, still I, I wasn't playing it right and my results showed from 05 to 08. In 09, this is the first time I made my second day in the main event and I had improved somewhat regarding my approach to it. I still didn't really have the correct approach. I made day two with a short stack, and I ended up at the TV table, which you can still find online. If you enter Todd Wittellis, Phil Helmuth main event, you can probably still find me because I was on the TV table, the ESPN TV table with Phil Helmuth. And in fact, Phil Helmuth busted me when he, for whatever reason, raised uh, Queen Deuce suited under the gun and made a flush on me on the turn after I flopped a set. So a very straightforward hand, other than him playing Queen Deuce suited under the gun. And the board didn't pair in the river, and I was gone. However, I did get almost my entire buy-in back that year, because this was still when you could get sponsorships to appear on TV fairly easily. So I actually got two different sponsorships, one which paid 5000 and one which paid uh, 4250 So I got almost my ten k back. And I was very happy about that. I did have a requirement that I wouldn't get paid for both of them unless I prominently appeared on TV. And fortunately, because my bust hand was against Helmuth and it was a fairly interesting hand, as soon as I busted, my first thought was, well, at least I know this is going to be on TV. And sure enough, it was. So you can find that on YouTube. They also wouldn't let me taunt Helmuth about UB. I tried. I tried and I did taunt Helmuth at the table and they actually... Shut me up. Phil complained to the floor. And the floor told me if I continue talking about UB, they're going to give me a 20-minute penalty, which would have blinded off the rest of my stack. So obviously I had to shut up. That happened too. And it really wasn't covered at all in the media. I, I mentioned it, but no one else did. Then came 2010. 2010... I thought about the main event, and I said, you know what? I think I've been doing this wrong. Even last year, 2009, I think I've been doing this wrong. I think I've got to play more small ball. I've got to keep the pot smaller. I've got to stop getting myself in situations with big pots where I have a good but not great hand, and somebody raises me, and, I, and then i got to figure out what to do. And you know, it's, it's never either way the decision can be terrible if it's wrong. So I adjusted some. Well, the adjustment worked. Despite having a pretty good first day, on the second day, I immediately lost a lot of what I gained the first day, and then I sat there short-stacked, but surviving and picking my spots very well for the remainder of day two, day three, day four, day five, and even most of day six, finally busting in 88th place, because, mainly because I lost a race to cripple me queens against ace king 
Finished 88th place, cashed almost $80,000. That was my first main event cash ever. And I said, aha, now I know what I'm doing here. Now I know how to play the main event. Admittedly, I got lucky in some ways. Even though I never had a really big run-up, I never had a hot streak other than on day one, I did have the fortunate situation in 2010 that nothing bad was happening. I wasn't running into coolers. I wasn't running into bad beats. I wasn't losing races. Just whenever I had to win, I was winning. Then I wouldn't win for a while again, but whenever I absolutely had to win, I was winning. And that's what kept me alive. So 2011, I returned to the main event very optimistic. I'm going to do this again. I'm going to try to do this again. I I know what to do now. And it seemed like I did. And I got to day three, but I did not cash. I kind of just lost every hand day three. I was gone. Fairly close to the money, too, even though they only paid 10% of those days. Made late day three. 2012, I said, okay, well, I'm still encouraged. I almost made the money again. Well, I had a very good first day in 2012. But then it just uh, kind of declined from there. Didn't make the money. Had a bad day three. I was gone again before the money. Again, fairly close to the money. 2013 was my most painful main event year. Much more painful than busting 88th in 2010. 2013, what was so painful is I played it really, really well. And so many times I correctly sensed danger when people raised me or bet into me or raised pre-flop or re-raised pre-flop. Whatever it was, I had an excellent sense that year on all three days when I was behind. And I found out in various ways, even when the cards weren't shown, what the person had. I made so many good decisions I estimated that probably five different times or more I could have been busted, that many other players would have busted and I did not bust. I wasn't playing scared poker. I was just seeing it so well when I was behind. And I was very proud of myself. And then I was getting short-shipped. We were close to the bunny. Someone limped. Someone else limped, and I had ace-king. I go, okay, I'm going to go all in. Probably just going to go up and fold around and everyone will fold out, including those two uh, limpers, and I'll get some chips that I need badly. So I go all in, and the original limper snap calls. And you probably know what he had. The sad thing was, had it not been for the second limper, I would not have gone all in. I would have just raised. The limper would have put me all in probably, and I would have folded. It was only because of that second limper that I went all in instead of re-raising. Or instead of raising, not re-raising. And I was like, they were in a state of shock because all that time, all that time I spent and all those almost bust situations that I saw through and folded, and it was all for nothing, all because of that one hand. And I had, was probably the first, like, panic attack of my life. I've never had a panic attack having to do with poker before. Never before, never since. But I had one a short time after I busted, after I walked away from the table. Not while I was at the table, but I walked away. And as I was walking out of the room, I felt like I couldn't continue walking and I had to sit down. 
So I grabbed a seat at the nearest empty table and sat down. Then a security guard ran over and said, sir, you can't sit here. You can't sit at an empty table. So I forced myself up, feeling like I was like having trouble breathing and having like it was a, it was like a real panic attack over what had happened there because I, I worked so hard to keep those chips. And all because of that ace king where it happened to run into aces and that exact way the pot came down, it was so devastating to me. And I had to go, I eventually sat at an abandoned vendor booth in the hallway and sat there for about 15 minutes until I felt uh, normal enough to get up and walk away. And I was just so devastated by it. And after I said, you know, I've got to, I, I was even considering quitting the World Series of Poker after this. I said, if I'm going to feel this way after I bust a tournament, this isn't healthy. But uh, I decided, you know what, I'm just, I'm just not going to let this get to me so much if this happens again. I'm just going to, I'll be disappointed, but I, I can't let this like get to me this much. And to my credit, I haven't since. 2014, I got a very tough starting table, got moved, was thrilled, and got moved to an even tougher table. This was like I was at day five tables on day one. It was unbelievable. The main event, you got to understand... There's a lot of recreational players in it. I mean, a lot. If you get a table with very few recreational players on day one, and mostly pros and good players, then you got a terrible table draw. Just because it's a 10K buy-in, just because it's the main event, does not mean that the beginning is tough. The beginning has a lot of amateurs. And if you don't get a lot of those amateurs at your table, then you've gotten a terrible table draw. So I got moved... From a tough table to an even tougher table. I probably had two of the toughest tables uh, in that entire day. And I I kept getting in terrible spots where I'd have top and bottom pair and someone would shove all in on me and and we're both deep. It's like really tough spots over and over and over again. And even the one where I busted was tough where I I had top two against a tight player on an ace-10-5 board with a flush draw possible. And uh, the guy puts me in. So finally, I had to do it. I called and he had fives and I was gone. Tough day, tough table, tough breaks. Didn't make day two. 2015, just didn't have uh, a good World Series. Uh, I think I made day two and that was it. 2016, same thing, uh, made day two but did not make day three. Also just didn't do very well. 2017. That one was looking good. I made day three with uh, above average chips. And it looked like the money would hit sometime in late day three. I ran really bad, though, on day three. And everything I was doing wasn't working. Every time I had bet or tried to take down a pot where it seemed like no one had anything, they had it. Every time I flopped something, I didn't get action. Just everything fell down wrong. I ran poorly, and I didn't play that well. That one was very disappointing, too. Didn't have any panic attacks, but I was very disappointed. 2018. 2018, I just, uh, I didn't do very well. 2018, I did not make day three. Made day two, didn't make day three. And I was gone. And didn't sniff the money that year. Well, that's eight years in a row that I flopped. Eight years in a row, I bricked it. And I'll tell you, even though I came close to the money in 2011, 12, 13, and 17, that's four out of those eight years I came close to the money. So 
So you'd think that would be encouraging, but it wasn't. I, I felt almost like I'm just tossing away 10000 every year. Part of me was thinking maybe it's just time to quit it. Maybe it's just time to say main event just isn't working out for you. Just, just give up. I'm not kidding. I, I was really thinking that uh, what I did in 2010 just seems so long ago now. The game's changed a lot since then. Maybe I just uh, don't have it in me to really uh, do that again. I can't even seem to min cash. Maybe my style just doesn't work with the main event. Then I'd slap myself into sanity and say, wait a minute. A lot of these players at the main event are not good. A lot of amateurs, a lot of types of players that I play very well, that I read very well, that... I'm very good at extracting the max out of them. I just have run poorly at the wrong times, the years I've gotten close. I thought about Eric Froelich, who went 0 for 13 from 2005 through 2017 in the main event, and then he came fairly close to the final table last year. I said, what about him? I'm sure he thought about giving up <laughs> at some point, never having cashed it over 13. Alan Kessler, by the way, another one, Ofer in that event. So I thought, look, you know, that can happen. Yes, I, I'm, I'm only uh, one for 13 myself. The one was a deep run, but still, I'm one for 13. It's still, you know, that's, that's the way these tournaments go. For a while, it was 10% caching. Now it's 15%, but still... A lot of people don't cash. And if you just have several years you don't run well, then you're not going to cash. So I talked myself into playing. Again. It wasn't very hard to talk myself into it, but I, I did consider not playing. And and I didn't sell it. I, I would put the whole 10000 up myself. So it's not even like others would shoulder some of the burden if, if uh, variance isn't being kind to me. It was, it was my $10,000 out the window every year. So this year I plunked down my 10,000 again and I made some tweaks to my play style, which I, I don't want to describe out here because I'm going to use similar styles again next year, which I'm going to tweak again, by the way, after some t- time playing and getting deep, there's a few things I would have done differently, but uh, I made some tweaks this year, similar to how I made some tweaks in 2010. Well, 10, 2010, I made a lot of major tweaks. This year was kind of more minor. But, but I definitely made some changes. And I planned those changes. I think I thought about it. I thought, well, is there anything I can do differently to do better in the main event this year? So, I entered the main. I played day 1B, which is the second of three starting days. And that was on July 4th. Well, I had a problem. July 4th, and, and we already talked about this somewhat, so I'm not going to talk about this so much. We, we did a show on July 7th, so I already talked about my days one and two. So I'm not going to rehash that whole thing. But we had I had an earthquake wake me up an hour early for it, which was a big deal, actually, because I was having trouble getting my sleep schedule back on the schedule of being up at noon. Or up up to play at noon, not up at noon, but up to, up early enough to play at noon. So the the earthquake woke me an hour early, which made me kind of feel tired throughout that first day. And 
So I battled with that. But but anyway, at the end of day two, I had a pretty good stack. And that's when I left you guys off as far as radio is concerned. I did a show between day two and three. We had an off day. So during that off day, I did the show. I believe I was I calculated I was 384th in chips out of everybody. Actually, I, I hadn't had that calculation yet because they were still playing day 2C at the time. But uh, later that night after day C had been completed, I, I figured out I was 384th out of the entire field at that point. Of course, a lot of people had busted. We still weren't that close to the money. Looked like it was going to be another full day to make the money. But I was 384th in chips at that point. I estimated last time I did radio that I, it was probably somewhere between 350th and 400th, so I got it right. So that's it's pretty good. They got 8569 entrants, so 384th out of that many people in chips after two days. Pretty damn good, right? Not spectacular, but it's pretty good. And I felt like I'm probably going to cash, but still... I didn't have such a mountain of chips that it would have been a shock not to cash. You can easily lose those in the long day three that you have to go through to cash. A lot can happen. A lot of good can happen. A lot of bad can happen. And I knew that. And I prepared myself for the possible disappointment of not cashing. So I showed up to day three and I got moved pretty quickly. The starting table I got was not very good. It had Max Silver. It had some other good players. But they moved me to a different table, which was much better. I got a much better day three table than the one I started with. And I I got moved after like an hour. The whole table broke and they moved me. And I stayed at that table for the entire rest of the day. So I was pretty happy with the table I got and... I felt like I had good control over it. I had good control over the people there. And I, I liked my chances of cashing on day three. Day three was pretty uneventful, though. I didn't play a lot of big hands. The biggest hand I had was a flush over flush, which was in my favor. But aside from that, unfortunately, the flush over flush was against a pretty cautious guy. So... It's hard to get chips out of him. Like, I I got chips, obviously, but I didn't get as much as you could get against someone who'd be more aggressive or more willing to call off. This was like an amateur who was very cautious. Anyway, that was... I really didn't have very many major hands on day three. So, I finished day three kind of, you know average-ish in chips, like right around average. But we made the money. It was a big clusterfuck, which I'll get to shortly. But we made the money at the very end of day three. Right right when the bubble burst, they ended the day because the day only had six minutes left anyway, so they just decided to end it and pick up where they left off the next day. I will admit it was a bit of a relief to finally cash again in the World Series after eight years of failure. By the way, I'm not taking any calls right now. I see a call's coming, but I'm not going to take calls right now. But it was a relief to cash after all those years of failing to do so, after all those days three that tortured me, to finally do it, 
to finally cash again. While this min cashing was not my goal, I wasn't playing scared, but it was a relief to finally min cash again. Even though I actually never min cashed in the main event. I had a deep run and that was it. But at that point, I had a min cash now in 2019, and it was a relief. Okay, I cashed it again. Okay, day three didn't screw me this time. And what I actually said to myself as the day ended is, good, now the pressure's off. Now I can relax. Now whatever happens, happens. I have an average stack going into day four. If I run it up and do great, then excellent. If I don't, then oh well. But at least I cashed here. At least it's 15000 minus the 10 I put in, of course. At least I've got this no-cash monkey for all these years off my back. Well, that attitude lasted all of a few minutes into day four, and I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? Of course there's pressure. This is the freaking main event where I could win $10 million if I do well. There's a lot more pressure now. There's not less pressure. There's more pressure. <laughs> so there, There's not one point I have to worry about passing, but uh, yeah, th- this is pretty big at this point now. Now 85% of the field's gone. Now, if I do well, I can really get myself into big money. So, of course, the pressure's on. What am I thinking? Day four, the table started off uh, okay. It, it had some tough people at the table. I had Tom Canuli, who previously made a final table at the main event, a young guy. I had Josh Arie, who finished third back in 2004. He's no longer a young guy. He's in his 40s now, but obviously uh, he's pretty good. He, he finished second in the Poker Players Championship this year. So, yeah, there were tough people at the table, but there were some amateurs at this table. However, by the end of the day, by the end of the day, it became an extremely tough table, even by day four standards. I mean, like, like pretty much every seat at that table was tough. Everybody who got moved to replace the amateurs who busted was good. So it got to be a very, very tough table. There was this one Polish guy there, a 30-year-old Polish guy, who just was super aggressive and loved to just go all in and put you in really tough spots. And it just seemed like every time it happened to me, I, I had a hand that was very tough to fold and very tough to call. I, I just happened to have exactly what was very marginal as far as deciding fold or call. It seemed like he never did this when I had trash and I bet into him, and he never did this when I had the nuts. It was always something in between where he could have had nothing or a draw or could have had me crushed. So it was a tough day, that day four. But just as I got short, not really short, but semi-short, I doubled up back to average. So I went from like half average back to average by winning a race ace-king suited against queens. And again, I finished the day around average. Or actually a little below average. I was average and then finished the day kind of below average. So I got like the bottom third in chips. But I made day five. Well, at this point, we're way past min-cashing, as you might guess. Day four, we're already the money the entire day, so I'm now entering day five of the main event. What is interesting is I've always made day five, at least, late day five, at least, when I've cashed. (laughs) I've never had it where I just min-cash and go out. I've either had it where I don't cash, or I make at least late day five. 
So here I was on day five again. Got uh, Joe Hashem's son to my left, who was 10 years old when Joe Hashem won 14 years ago. Now he's 24. I actually avoided busting against him. It's kind of an interesting hand. Uh, I was getting kind of short. Not super short, but kind of short. I had lost the previous hand against him. I was from the big blind. I had ace-king in the big blind and lost some chips on that hand. And I have a small blind now, and it folded to me, and I had ace-jack suited. And boy, it was tempting to just say, I'm all in. But I had too many chips to do that. And this event moves too slow to play that recklessly. So I was very close to saying I'm all in. I was fairly short, not super short, but I was fairly short. If I was super short, it's an obvious uh, all-in with ace-jack suited. Small to big. And I kept thinking, well, look, it's small to big. What's the chance he's got ace-jack suited beat? Don't I want just the blinds and annies? But just what I was going to pick up with the blinds and annies was not... It wasn't big enough to make it worth it going all-in like this if he had me crushed. So I just raised. Well, then he re-raised me. Now, that was concerning because from what I had seen of his play in the short time we were together, he was pretty tight. I wasn't sure if Joe Hatcham's son was going to be, like, crazy aggressive, but no, he was just tight. So I was like, well, this isn't good news. But I said, well, I'm going to have to call this. If I flop anything reasonable, I will have to put it in, and if I bust, I bust. Well, the flop came Queen-Jack-10 with, with one diamond. So that's not a good spot to be in with Ace-Jack of diamonds for the rest of your chips. I checked. He kind of thought about it and then went all in. Obviously, I'm not calling that. I tossed it. That was even shorter now, but I was wondering, did I perhaps throw away something like, did he have pocket eights or something? Or pocket nines and run me off, run me off it on the flop? Kind of bothered me a little bit. The table broke, though, pretty quickly. The table broke after less than two hours into the day. So we stood up, and I asked, what did he have that hand? And he told me very quickly, a matter of factly, I could tell he was telling me the truth, aces. He even told me that he hated the Queen-Jack-10 flop, and that was why he paused for a second before going all in, because he was afraid that uh, I had him crushed in some way, and he didn't really want to go all in and have me snap call him and have him crushed. So, obviously, uh, had I where, gone... Where was the money then, Draft? Do you remember? No, I don't. Uh, but it was early day five. It was, it was uh, substantial, substantially less than what I ended up cashing, but uh, a lot more than a min cash. Don't remember exactly where it was, but, uh, boy, if I'd gone all in with that ace-jack suited, I would have, uh, borrowing like a king or a jack at some point the, the, you know, the king would have chopped it for us the jack would have won it for me other than, or backdoor diamonds other than that I would have been gr- gone right at the beginning of day 4 so I was at that point pretty happy with myself that I resisted the temptation to either go all in open all in pre or go all in over his 3 bet pre flop and I thought about this. I thought maybe I should come over on him. I go, no, you know, this guy's really... 
I said, this guy's tight. I don't see him doing this to me with worse than this. I even considered laying down the ace-jack suited. But the three-bet wasn't that big. I said, I might as well see what I flop. So good thing I didn't just, like, flop top pair with a jack. I would have been crushed. Thank God for the queen. Yes, <laughs> right. Exactly. Thank God for the queen. So I move to a new table, and I go, shit, I'm kind of short on chips here. Then I just get just trash. Now, I should tell you, before I started playing at that new table, I sit down, and, of course, I take a look around. And I, I had researched all the opponents at this first table, but then I got moved in less than two hours because the table broke. So I didn't know anyone at this new table. And I didn't know who I'm playing with. And so I, I see a big mountain of chips to my left, the big stack to my direct left. I'm thinking, oh, who's this kid? Who's this young kid with, with this big stack next to me that's going to pound me all the time? So I look up, and it's a guy who is not a kid. It's a guy who looks like he's in his 50s, a kind of a Middle Eastern-looking guy. That was Hossein Ensan, the soon-to-be winner of the main event. That's who they sat me next to. So I was carded. I had nothing to make a move with, and we're getting towards the first break, and I'm going, shit, I'm just... This is a sucky time to be card dead, and I really want to have something to make a move with. And they go, okay, you know, the, the chip color up's happening. The big stack needs to buy all the all the small chips. So Hossein was the big stack at the table. He was buying up the thousand dollar chips that they were taking off the table at this point. He had all these thousands in front of him that people had sold to him. And they go, okay, people. You know, so this is the last last hand before the break, and. They reminded everybody that we're taking a half an hour break and they're doing the color up, blah, blah, blah. So Hossein's all distracted with all these chips in front of him. I'm thinking how crappy it is that I'm down to this amount of chips. I had a, I can tell you how many I had. I had 727,000 at that point, and the average was now like, I think, 1.8 million or something. So 727 kind of sucked. Forgot what the blinds were at this point. Anyway, early position. I get dealt my final hand before break. Pocket kings. Okay, very good. Now what do I do? Problem is, I forgot the blinds now, but I had just enough chips to where if I raised and I got a caller, it would be hard to play post-flop because of how many chips I have left. So, like, if it's... I, definitely, if, if an ace doesn't flop... I'm getting my chips in with the Kings on, on any flop that doesn't have an ace. And with an ace, I can probably let it go, but I'm thinking, you know what? Most of the people here have a pretty decent-sized stack. There weren't many short stacks at the table. A lot of people had a lot of chips there. I said, you know what? I'm just going to go all in with this and hope someone wakes up with something reasonable and calls me. Screw this. I'm not going to... You know, who who wants someone to just flat me and then uh, and then miss the flop and fold? I, I want to get maximum. I want to I get a lot of these kings. I, I'm hoping maybe someone wakes up with something and calls it and just thinks I'm desperate because it's right before the break and I'm uh, and, and, and I'm short. And so I, I was hoping someone will wake up with something and double me. So I go all in. Pre-flop. Hossein is screwing around with all the chips that, that he's coloring up and then they say, you, you know, the action's on you, sir. In the meantime, everybody stood up to go to the break and so it was chaos in there. He looks at his hand and goes, oh, uh, 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 yeah, 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 I call. How much is this? And, like, and I'm thinking, okay, well, hopefully it's not aces. Fold, 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 fold around. I turn over my kings. He turns over queens, exactly what I was hoping to see. Board runs out safe. There was an ace on it, but uh, obviously it didn't matter and I doubled up. 
And by the way, that's that's exactly why also like I I wanted to just go all in pre because I I didn't want an ace to slow down the action if they didn't have me beat like I I just I I felt I'm going to get a call here from a lot of these guys if they had something reasonable. And, and by the way, that's a leak that a lot of the World Series of Poker main event players have, even some of the good ones, is too loose of calls pre-flop when people go all in. I, I saw a lot of that. That surprised me. Even people calling with things like fives. like You, you don't do that there. Even if you've got a lot of chips, you don't do that. Unless you know, If you think the person's really desperate and down to almost nothing, then they've got to do it with anything... Uh, like semi reasonable, yeah. Then sure you call the fives, but the, there's people calling off like a lot of chips pre to someone who's short, short, like sort of short stack goes all in with hands like fives. So like I, I thought, hey, look, any decent pocket pair are, are, is calling me here. Ace king calling, ace queen's probably calling. So okay, I'm just putting it in here. That's really what you want with kings. You really don't want to play post flop with kings. You just want to you want people to give you as much pre flop action as possible if they don't have aces. So, okay, great. I doubled before the break. Now I'm almost average. Great. Well, unfortunately, and by the way, when that happened, I was wondering how Hossein was going to act. Uh, you know, he didn't take a bad beat, but it was kind of cooler, and he lost about 20% of his chips from this. But he smiled, patted me on the back, and said, nice hand, friend, and didn't seem bothered in the least. Like, it didn't even seem like an act. Obviously, he wished he was going to win the hand rather than me, but... It, but but he had a very good attitude about losing, about as good as you can have. The attitude he seemed to have was like, oh well, that's the way it came down. Oh well, that's that's the way it is. Like I like hey, I know you needed it. That's the way it came down. Yeah, good job. Like really, it seems it seemed very sincere. So I thought, oh, what a nice guy. Unfortunately, from there, I I could never run it up again. Uh, whenever. It would have been great to hit something. I didn't hit it. Whenever I did hit, nobody had anything and they folded. I just wasn't accumulating chips. I, I just, I wasn't shooting off chips by any means. I just wasn't accumulating them. I just could, couldn't get a spot where people would get it in with me where I had a, a very big hand. But yet they weren't getting much out of me either. And I was also very card did that day and, and folding a lot. So I was just kind of hanging on for a long time on day five. And and I'll tell you about this obnoxious second bubble shortly. But uh, we got past the uh, what I call the second bubble at uh, 162nd place. So between 162nd place and 100th place, there was no pay jumps. It was 59235 the pay. And... At that point, I was pretty short, and I said, okay, with this this is where I'm going to end up unless I run it up, because I didn't even have enough chips to survive all the way to 99th, even if I wanted to just fold to the next pay jump, which I didn't, by the way, but uh, even if I wanted to, I couldn't have. So I knew I'd have to win some hands to get past that. I had a, a promising moment where I was short-stacked, and it, uh, a guy limped in early middle position. We got a few other limpers, and I looked into the small blind queens. Okay, all in. Big blind, who is Hossein Ensign, folded. Back to the guy who limped. Snap call. I go, oh, no, not this again. <laughs> folded back to me, and so it's me and him. I'm sure he's going to turn over aces. No, he turns over ace-king. 
Really weird. So we rented out, unfortunately, an Ace Flops, and that was that. And I pick up my stuff to leave, and they go, whoa, 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 don't go anywhere. He had fewer chips than you. Yeah, he did. He was the only person at the table shorter than me, which I didn't realize. I actually thought I was the shortest, but he was—he had a—he actually had 140k fewer chips than me, which by that point was very little. That, like average was like 3.6 million by that point. So I had 140k left. Like, oh boy, well, I'm going to need tremendous luck at this point to stay alive. Well, I actually kind of got on my way because I—I put it in uh, this Asian guy who was opening very loosely. With a big stack, I got King Jack offsuit, and I go, okay, well, this is good enough. <laughs> by the way, the blinds by this point were three thirty k, sixty k, sixty k. So it was thirty for the small, sixty for the big, and then sixty for the big blind Annie. So that uh, obviously one forty k was not going to last me very long. So I was just looking for any reasonable hand to put it in. King Jack looked like the nuts in that case. So I put it in. He had nines, it turned out, and he actually had a reasonable hand this time. But I was glad to see the nines with King Jack. But I got nothing in the flop, nothing in the turn, and a king on the river to triple me up. My short stack was so short, the blinds actually tripled. We're also like a, uh, another uh, player I was beating. So I tripled up, had 420K, and uh, I came to the big blind. I traded Ruski. This is a tough one. I haven't told anyone about this hand yet. You're, you're all going to hear about this for the first time. This is a freaking tough one. So I got 420k, now I'm in the big blind, and I have to put in 120 of that 420. 60 for the big, 60 for the big blind ante. So now I've got 300 behind. I look down and I see I have ace-8 offsuit. So I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be it. This is where we're going to put it in. Why didn't you hear about the ace-8 offsuit hand that I either lost or won? Well, that's because someone in early position raised, and then someone in later position Three bet him, and it came back to me in the big blind. With ace eight, Trotorowski, what would you have done in that spot? You only have three hundred k behind. The blinds are thirty sixty sixty. Do, do you do you put it in with the ace eight and just hope to uh, strike gold with it somehow and triple up and, and into being back over a million, or, or do you say ace eight is just so crushed here against two people like that, the or early raiser and a three bidder over the early raiser that you don't bother? I mean, I just think you have to ditch it. <clears throat> I mean, you know, I'd say, like, if you're close to the next money jump, if you, like, just got over a money jump, maybe. But, I mean, you still have five bigs. Yeah, so that's that's what I thought. I thought the ace-8 is going to be so cr- – if both of these guys play the hand, if one doesn't fold, if the, if the – I'm going to be so crushed that um, – it's it's almost impossible to win. Let's think about this. Let's say one has. You got to hope it's like sevens against sixes. Right, um, right, right. So let's say one has ace king and one has, one has jacks. I have almost no chance. I, I, I it's not even just drawing thin. I'm drawing super thin. Ace king jacks versus ace eight. I have to get, get like two eights or one card straight or one card flush. It's my only chance. So I, I'm almost surely out if they've got something like ace king against jacks, and that wasn't unlikely because there was an early position raiser who wasn't raising that much. And, and a guy coming over him who obviously had been seeing that this guy wasn't raising much. So I'm thinking they're probably going to both see the flop, and, and I'm and I'm screwed. So now, yes, one of them could bet the other off, but I say, yeah, forget this. So I tossed the ace-8. Well, I never got to see how it would have done because uh, one of them, uh, the the original razor went all in and the, and the, and the three better folded. So, But at best, even, even in that spot, I, I still would have been three outs at best. 
that's the, even against one of these guys, I'm very likely to be three outs. Uh, again, unless it's like sevens or lower. But the guy who went all in for sure didn't have sevens. He obviously had something very good. So he either had ace-king or, or, or a high pair, and it was dead. Maybe even aces. So um, down to 300. Small blind, I got some total trash. Didn't play it down to 270. Next hands, trash, trash, tra- I mean like big trash. And like raises in front of me, like there, there was no chance to put it in. But I, I, I was too off the button then. And it was fold, 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 fold to me. Open, all the way folded to me. And I'm too off the button. So I'm thinking, okay, well, I probably have to put it in here no matter what. The blinds were 30, 60, 60. And I had 270, so I, I didn't have such a trivial amount of chips where I'm getting like called with anything. I'm being, I'm going to be called with anything like, kind of reasonable, but if if if, uh, if people, if the other people have trash, they're probably laying it down for 270 all in. Especially because people are seeing I'm waiting for a spot to do it with. Like they'd seen my all ins that they were, uh, these were all with 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 good hands. So yeah, I think it's any A's, any connectors, any suited cards. Yeah, really. so, so right. So I got I, so then I, I look at a hand which is marginal to do this with, but I thought it was good enough. That was ten eight offsuit. Ten eight offsuit. I wasn't thrilled about, but I thought about okay. Well, let's look at this. Ten eight offsuit has a reasonable chance against everything except for pairs uh, eights and above, or anything with an eight or anything with a ten. So I don't want to be against ace ten. I don't want to be against uh, ace eight. But uh, and I want to be against eights or above. But even against ace king, I'm not in that horrible shape. And uh, like sevens and below, I'm actually racing. So and, and then there's a chance they're going to fold, and I'll pick up uh, 150k worth of blinds and antis. So I, I got to do it because it was, the point is it's folded to me so far. So I know I'm not facing a premium hand yet. If someone's already you have a little fold, fold equity, how big uh, were they? Huge stacks to your left or? They were, but but none of them were like, none of them were just like calling with anything. These were all guys who were going to call with something reasonable, but weren't going to just you know, snap off with crap. So right, so to take any good chunk if if they uh... yeah, not a, that good of a chunk. I only had two seventy k, which is nothing at that point. But it's still it's still enough to where it was it was still as you said five bigs. Like they don't want to throw that away for nothing. And again, if they do, I, I've got a chance against any reasonable hand, against any hand that's not like a premium eights or above, or or, or it's only ha- something that happens to be a better eight or better ten. So I got I can't you know beggars can't be choosers. How much more time do I have to wait here? At least nobody's raised in front of me. So I went in with a ten eight. Unfortunately, to my left, Hossein Hossein Ensan, as you've seen, a very unlucky guy this year, has aces. So that was the end of me. Not even any drama too. The flop was like a. The, the flop was queen seven seven. Like, could that be much worse <laughs> for ten eight against aces? That's so brutal. And then, when and they turn over the aces. And then, and then the flops queen seven seven. I even got like a backdoor exactly. two pair sweat. Like, that, like I go well. Like, I, I've either got to get eight eight or ten ten or six nine at this yeah. point. Or nine <laughs> so, ball on the turn. You have an open ender. Yeah, so, but then a five comes on the turn and I'm drawing dead. I go, oh, I can't even have any freaking sweat on the river. And then of course they, they, I get the eight on the river just as a kick in the ass. Like, like, why not at least put it on the turns? I got a little bit of hope for another eight. Yeah, give him ace king. You got the eight. Right, right, right. Give me ace. Give him. I thought of that too. Like, why can't he have freaking ace king here and I'd river him? So anyway, uh, that was the end of me. Um, you've you've heard now about the two hands I played against Anson, the kings against the queens, where I beat him and doubled up, and then the bust hand ten eight versus aces. Neither of us bad beat the other. 
Both hands went down as you'd expect. Both hands were pretty straightforward. Maybe I could have folded the 10-8, but truthfully, you know, in the, in two off the button, I had to do it. If it was if, I, if it was ten deuce offsuit, I'm, tra- I'm trashing it. But ten uh, eight, I had to do it. And I, I don't regret the ten eight. Like if I knew I was going to run to aces, I'd regret it. But like like without knowing what was going to be after me, I had to do it. So and, and of course I, I knew I had to get super lucky at that point with two seventy k to get back into playing shape there. So uh, so that was it. I was at one. Yeah, but you should have been like forty percent. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Like I was, I thought I was going to get a call from like a, you know, like like King Nine or something, and then be like forty percent. That's really what I thought I'm going to get. I thought they're probably calling me, but it's probably something that I have a reasonable chance against, not aces. So happened to be the aces to my left. If there was a raise in, in in front of me, I would have tossed it for sure. But there wasn't. There's nobody. Anyway, so that was it. Fifty nine thousand two hundred thirty five was what I cashed. I finished in one hundred twenty eighth place. I beat every female in the field except for one. Some, like, older white woman actually beat me and finished 116th. I saw her playing. She looked like she played, like, no hands. She was never at my table, but there's no one I'd ever heard of before. I beat every female except for one. I beat uh, every main event champion of the past. Every single one of them busted before me. Like, Quee Win was doing well for some point, but he, but he, he did not outlast me. I beat... Uh, most of the big name pros, like like just about all of them, Antonio Esfandiari, who had a big stack at one point on day four, um, and he didn't make it as far as he hoped he would, but he outlasted me. Alex Foxen outlasted me. Uh, Dario Sammartino, who finished second, obviously outlasted me. So there, there, there were some well-known pros who uh, made it farther than me, but most of them did not. Uh, the vast majority of them did not. And and truthfully, when I look back on the whole thing, really, when I walked away, was I disappointed I wasn't in? Yeah, of course. But I thought, just like I thought in 2010, that I stretched it as far as I could with the cards I got. Because let's think about this. I had one and only one hot streak in this entire main event. One. The hot streak was on day two, where I ran it up from 93, I started with, to 287K in the first half of day two. And was among the top of, of, of people who had the chips. I wasn't like chip leader, but I was like near the top. That was it. The rest of the day two, I went nowhere. I, I spun my wheels and finished with like exactly 300 for the second half of day two. So starting from the middle of day two, I never had a hot streak again. Never had a big run-up. Yeah, I did some double-ups. That was it. Never had a big run-up. Never was crushing it after midday two. And I lasted all the way till... Just about the end of day five. 128th place out of 85-69 people. I beat 98.5% of the field with one hot streak the whole time. Now, I'm not going to say my luck wasn't good. My luck was good in certain ways. I didn't run into any coolers. I didn't lose any big races. I didn't take any big bad beats. None of that stuff happened. And to play all those days and not have that happen is lucky. That's exactly how it was in 2010. I went like five and two Thursdays without getting unlucky. Here I went almost five full days without getting unlucky. Until finally I lost that race, which I wouldn't say it's unlucky, but I, you know, I lost that big race with the Queens against the, king, the Ace King. 
So I'm not going to say, oh, I'm such an unlucky player and still I made the end of day five. I'm not going to be arrogant like that. Of course, I was fortunate not to be in bad spots all those days. But I wasn't killing it. I wasn't like destroying it at any point where I'm just like dominating except for that one part for five hours on day two. That was it. So just like 2010, I felt, okay, would have been nice to make it all the way, but I did what I could. I took it as far as I could. During day four, I was approached by Chad Holloway of Poker News. Chad Holloway is a nice guy. He once won the Casino Employees event. He's a, a smart guy. He's, he's had a lot of different uh, poker media jobs over the years, mainly with Poker News, but other, other jobs as well. Uh, I've always had a good relationship with him. We're not, like, good friends or anything, but as far as, uh, like, non-friends, we get along very well. And uh, he approached me and said that he's been following my Twitter and, and reading the site somewhat and saw my story about uh, what I went through last year with with the severe anxiety and depression and the anhedonia, which is where you can't feel any kind of... Uh, pleasure or positive feelings like it's been extracted from your brain and uh you know i had severe versions of all that all together and how i never thought i'd play poker again and just all everything i went through last year he had been following and and he, he had seen how i was open about that and he said that uh they do a series on poker news called uh, the mental game where they talk about things in poker that have to do with uh, your brain or, or things that uh, challenges one might have psychologically being a professional poker player. And he asked me if uh, they can do an article about me. And I said, sure. I've been open about this the whole way. You know, some people are very uh, afraid to talk about it if they had psychological problems. They think there's some kind of stigma or they're, they're ashamed of it. I wasn't ashamed of this. I just, uh, I, I, in fact, I, kind of opened my eyes to the people who who go through this who have gone through this and can't get rid of it for most of their lives and it made me feel so bad for them because i got to experience it myself and how terrible it is and and i'm thankful every day that i came back from it that i got out of it and that it actually was from a physical cause you know it's not like i had something bad happen and i got over it over time this was this was from a physical cause this was from a real chemical disorder in my brain and i got out of it and I've approached my poker career differently ever since then because I think no matter what happens in poker, I'm still doing better than I was in August and September where I had, like, no quality of life. And I said that to him. And I, I, you know, when they interviewed me for this, I, uh, he already knew a lot of the story from following me on social media and reading Poker Fraud Alert, but he, he asked me some questions and I, I answered them all honestly. And I told him, look, whatever happens at this main event, that's what happens. And no matter how frustrated I am, I, I, I just have to think I could be like I was in September again. And the fact that I'm not, already I'm doing well. And that's really how I felt. I didn't just say that to sound positive or put, put something out there to make myself look good. Like That's how I really felt and still feel. And this is on day four in the main event where I was struggling against that tough table and not sure how far I'd make it. And I was kind of shorter stacked, but I said, hey, look, the fact that I came back from this and came into the main event and ran deep 
whatever happens from here, th- this has been a great result for me. That I've not only come back from this, but then also run deep in the main. Well, it turned out I ran over more than a day past that before I busted. That was kind of like a midday four when we talked. And you can find that article on Poker News. Just uh, Google uh, Todd Wittellis anxiety, Todd Wittellis depression, whatever. You'll see that comes right up there on Poker News, the article about me. And uh, you can read it. And I, I thought he did a good job with the article. I, I posted uh, the article up on my Facebook. I posted it on uh, Real Grinders. I posted it on Twitter. I posted it on the Poker Fraud Alert. Actually, somebody else posted it on Poker Fraud Alert before I could. But if you haven't seen it, go go read it, and it's all true. It's all the truth. It's all really how I felt and still feel. So that was a, an interesting side note to the whole thing, that this was the World Series following all of that last year. And how that really did change my perspective of, like, think back to 2013 when I was so devastated and had that panic attack after the Ace King ran into Aces. And after all that work, I busted with nothing after I avoided busting like five times and how frustrating it was. It wouldn't happen today because immediately my mind would go to, like, you were screwed up big time last year and you're not anymore. There were times that. I just said, if only I can go back to normal, I don't care whatever happens with poker again. I don't care if I always lose again. I don't care. Like, there would have been so many things that I would have given up or given away to come back to normal. And I did. And I kept saying, if I ever come back from this, I'm never going to take for granted that I did. So that you can read the article. So that was uh, an interesting thing there. Once that was, once that article came out, then I had people approaching me in the hallway, going, "Oh, I read that article about you. How are you feeling?" And, and yeah, it was nice of them to ask me. But I was like, "You know, no, I'm okay. I'm okay with that now. Like, I'm not perfect, and some of the stuff that caused this in the first place, I've still got problems with. But like psychologically, that's that's pretty much back to normal." Okay, so let's go back to talking about uh, some screw-ups at the main event. I, I guess before I tell you that, I just want to give you a few uh, comments about Hossein Ensan. After I busted, there weren't many people left who I knew at all, like even knew of. I mean, yeah, I had some of the names I'd heard of before, but there really wasn't anyone that I wanted to win or lose. Like there was no one I really liked or hated in the field, to be honest, at that point. So I said to myself, you know what? Even though he busted me, I hope Hossein Ensan takes it. And this is 128 left. This wasn't anywhere near the end of it. But I thought if I had to pick someone, I'd actually pick him because he was the the attitude he had when he when I doubled off him, it was so good. And and he was nice throughout the day. Like he was a very pleasant to play with. He was a nice, easygoing guy, and but just re- really stuck with me with the way he took that uh, that cooler of the kings against queens to lose 20% of his stack. Like, just rolled right off his back. In fact, it, it almost seemed like he was happy for me. So I said, you know what? I hope this guy gets it. And not only that, if someone 55 wins, I thought, I didn't know he was 55, but he seemed like he was over 50. It turned out he was 55, but I could tell he was older than me. But, like, not by a lot. So I thought, I think it would be good for poker if someone that age wins. I think it's a much better look 
for someone 55 to win at this point than another guy who's 27. We want the middle-aged recreational players to, to look and say, hey, look, I got a chance. Now, he wasn't a recreational player. He's won an EPT before. He came in second in an EPT before. Like he, This is obviously a, a good tournament player, Hossein Ensign. He's not some wreck who got lucky. But still, he's 55 years old, and he's not really well-known. So people see a, a 55-year-old guy they, they hadn't heard of before win the main event, and you know, the average 55-year-old guy who just wants to take a shot at the main goes, oh, sweet, okay, so, so you can win this even if you're, you're not 27. Someone my age can win. And that's what they would have thought if I won, too. <laughs> it would have been the same reaction, like, oh, good, a middle-aged guy won. So I, I thought it was good for that reason, too. I thought it was good for poker for someone like him to win. He, he wasn't the most exciting or interesting champion, from a personality standpoint, but he was a nice guy, and he's older. I don't remember the last time someone 55 or older even won. Like, when was that? It was a long time ago. I think it was 99. Who won that year, 99? It was a name I hadn't really heard of. But I know they mentioned it, and they've been talking about it, and I'm pretty sure that's what they said. Okay, yeah. I I knew it was not since I started playing, because I started playing in 01, and... Since I started playing in 01, nobody who was 55 or older had won. So uh, I, I thought that was good just for that as well. So I was actually hoping he won, and, and he did. <laughs> from, from the moment I busted, I thought, okay, well, now who do I hope win this? wins this? And I go, oh, you know what? If I had to pick someone, I'd say I'd pick him. That was really what I thought. It wasn't like the first thing I thought was walking away, but you know, I had a lot of thoughts walking through the hallway back to my room, and that was one thing that popped in my head. Like, okay, uh, who do I want to see win now? At least, like, I also thought about, like, who don't I want to see win now? And I couldn't find anybody. There's nobody who was left at that point that I hated, which was good. <laughs> so I didn't have to anti-sweat anybody. Oh, Noel Furlong. Noel Furlong, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. He was older, yeah. So, yeah, so, so yeah, I, I, I thought very nice things about Hossein Ensign, and I'm glad he won, and uh, $10 million for him. Not sure what kind of sponsorships he'll get being uh, – 55 and uh, kind of just kind of a quiet personality, but hey, he won the main event and got 10 million bucks, so that's uh, I'm pretty sure he's thrilled right now. I actually did he do any of the late night shows or anything, Druff, or is that out from a few years ago? What about the late night shows? Well, sometimes they have the World Series of Poker winner on Kimmel, or oh, I, I, I don't think so, I don't think they. I don't think people care enough anymore. Um, I when uh, when I was thinking about like, what if I make it like super deep? Like, at, at what point will I be satisfied with it? And I thought, you know what? If I finish ninth, even the one million and ten million is such a tremendous difference. If I finish ninth, I'd like I'd, I would just be so happy. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to be greedy here. If I finish ninth, that's cool. I really thought of that. I wasn't even like, oh, if I get that far, I've got to win it. I was really thinking, like, if I finish ninth, then I'm going to be, like, thrilled. Now, how do I feel about this? How do I feel about 128th? I already told you some I wasn't super disappointed walking away because I stretched as much as I could. But, like, how do I feel? Like, I've kind of had mixed feelings. Like, part of me thinks, oh, I got so close. Like, at 128, you can really start tasting the final table. And so, yeah. I thought about, like, what if the Queens did win that race? What if I did go on a hot streak starting right then? I thought about that. I thought about that I was close enough at that point to the 
final nine that it wouldn't have been unrealistic to get there. I wasn't a favorite to make the final table by any means, but it wasn't unrealistic or crazy to think about at that point. So that stuck with me. Like, oh, I was close. I was so close yet so far away. Like, I, that, that was on my mind. But part of me also thought, hey, I got 59000 And I really stretched this as far as I could. And I finally ended this frustrating streak of not cashing with all these day threes where I couldn't make it, including two years ago. So I walked away feeling mostly positive and every year following the main event, I've been having these stupid dreams where I dream I'm back in the main somehow and like somehow I'm dropped in day four or day five with chips again. Not always a lot of chips, but like something. I'm like back in the event somehow either through some confusion or some exception where they let me come back in. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's a dream. You know how it is. So every year I've had these dreams and I wake up feeling really like stressed out and frustrated. This year I did not have a main event dream. This year there was no main event dream, which means that my brain was satisfied with the way it went. There was no main event dream of me coming back in and making the final table. Nope, no main event dream, which means my brain was not bothered by the way it ended. Nor did I have one in 2010, by the way. Okay, let's talk about the bubble, because this is a mess. Didn't really affect me much, but it was a freaking mess. Okay, so they paid 1,286 spots. 1,286 out of 85.69, that's 15%. And as you'd expect, as it gets close to that, people are going to want to get tight. People are going to want to stall. People are going to really, really want to make the money because they've been playing three days. The bubble is coming at the very end of day three. You play these three long days, and you're either walking away with nothing or 15000 minimum. It's a, Even for people that are not amateurs, it's a little bit hard to just ignore that. A lot of people go, oh, if I'm in the bubble, I'm just going to just go crazy. I'm going to rape the bubble and keep raising and screw the bubble. I'm not going to be afraid. Yeah, say that when you're actually there. Say that after you put three days into it, that you're not going to care. You're you're probably going to care, trust me. In fact, there were guys at the table, like there was a guy next to me on day three, and this guy was super rich. This guy was the owner of a big company in Atlanta. This guy was super rich. Boy, was this guy, like, not wanting to bust before the bubble. Like, it was a big deal to him to make the freaking money. So, and this is an amateur player, of course. People don't want to bust before the bubble after three days of work there. And that's normal, and that happens every year. But what doesn't happen every year was the complete mess of the mismanagement that occurred at the bubble. So we get to 1,386 players, which is 100 off the bubble, and I notice something. It freezes. I'm, like, watching the number, and I'm not short-stacked by this point. I'm, like, average-stacked. I... So yes, I could bust, but I'm I, I'm not close to busting, nor do I have to uh, worry so much about that. So it wasn't that. But I, I was looking out of curiosity how many are left. It's stuck at 1386 for a long time, and I actually say out loud to the table, I go, you know what? I have a feeling they're holding this back. I have a feeling that they are showing more people left than really are left in order to prevent stalling. And someone said, you know what? That's not a bad idea. I said, you know, I kind of agree. I, I think that's actually not that bad of an idea to prevent the stalling to not give an entirely accurate number. But I said, you know, there's also a chance, because this is a Caesars property, it's also a chance they're just 
not able to keep track of it and they're not updating it well because they're incompetent. It's one of those two. I actually think it was the latter. I think they just weren't competent. So it would be stuck at 1386 for a long time and then it would just shoot down like, like by 20 spots. I'd understand if it changes by nine. Sometimes they'll do it by table. Every time they break a table, they'll decrease it by nine on the board. But this would like drop down by like 20. And this kept happening. So it was kind of hard to keep track of who was really left. As we got to about 20 off the bubble, according to the board at least, the stalling got crazy and out of control. Not just at our table. Every table was stalling tremendously. And it wasn't just one or two short stacks. Like, everybody. First player acts, hmm, what should I do? What should I do? People sit there for 30 seconds to a minute to two minutes to three minutes, fold their hand. Next guy, again, he takes forever to act. Next guy, he takes forever to act. Pre-flop we're talking about. With no action. This is starting to happen at every table. Well, there's an easy solution to this. The easy solution to this is if this has become widespread. If it's one table doing it, you can threaten the penalties. If it's become widespread, what you do at that point is hand for hand. Hand for hand, for those of you that don't know, means that each table plays one hand, then the dealer stands up, and they don't deal another hand until every table is done with that hand. What that does is it makes stalling useless. Because you're still playing the same number of hands no matter how long your table takes to play that hand. So at that point, nobody even bothers stalling because they know that hand-for-hand renders stalling as a useless tactic. Well, they wouldn't go hand-for-hand. Then we get to 10 before the bubble. They will not go hand-for-hand. At this point, the stalling is even worse. At this point, the floor men are running around like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to scream at everybody to stop stalling and threatening penalties, but there's nothing they can do. And you know what? They they eventually realized this has become so widespread they'd have to penalize the whole tournament. Really, like every single table was doing this. Why? Because the tables all realize that if they don't do it, it will be a big disadvantage to that table. Now, yes, for the big stacks who are trying to take advantage of the bubble, the, the stalling hurts them, but... The truth is that um, most of the big stacks didn't want to be assholes and complain because they've already got all the chips. So, like, they they don't want to be dicks and say, hey, short stack, we're going to speed up the play now because I want to try to collect more chips through my aggressive raising on the bubble. So very few tables did the shorts, did the big stacks complain about the stalling. They kind of just understood they've got the big stack. They're happy with that. And they'll let the, they'll let the short stacks here they've been playing with all day squeeze into it. So the stalling was everywhere. And all they had to do was go hand for hand. And players were getting fed up with this and jumping up and telling the floor men, please, please make this hand for hand. I was one of those players who did it. But I wasn't the only one. I saw tons of people getting up and complaining. Mike Matisau, I I didn't save the video, but there's a video up on Twitter of him screaming about this because he was uh, in the main event uh, past the money. Tons of pros were tweeting about what a travesty this was, about how disorganized it was, about how they wouldn't go hand-for-hand with tons of people complaining about the stalling. They wouldn't do anything. I finally asked the floor man in our area. I said, do you, you obviously see the stalling here, right? Yes. Okay, you know going hand-for-hand will stop this stalling, right? Yes. Okay, we're pretty close to the money. Why don't you? His response was, I agree with you, but they won't let me. 
I said, who's they? Upper management? He says, yes. Whoever was in charge, I don't know if it was Jack Effel or someone who works under Jack Effel, whoever was in charge decided that the original plan was to go hand-for-hand at 1,288th place, which is two from the bubble. (laughs) It's even worse than it sounds, because every year they do something informally. They never announce it beforehand, but they've done it every year for a long time. That the stone bubble of the main event, and this year it would have been 1287th, gets a 10K seat to the main event for the following year. So that person gets something too, which is worth two-thirds of the min cash. So the real bubble is 1288th, so they're actually going hand-for-hand on the actual real bubble. (laughs) Can you believe this? So... when you don't do that, then everybody stalls up until that point. Can you imagine such a huge field and they don't go hand for hand until 1288th when they're paying 1286 plus one more spot gets a free seat for next year? It's insane. Now, if everybody's behaving well, then I guess fine, but the whole damn tournament was stalling. Everybody was getting so frustrated. Everybody was tearing their hair out saying, please, please do something about this. And they would not do anything. Well, finally, it got to, well. It got to twelve eighty nine. People were begging. Okay, come on. We're one off the point when you said you would do the bubble, can, uh, the hand for hand. Here, can, can you do it one hand early? The answer was no. <laughs> finally, we get to twelve eighty eight. They announce hand for hand. I'm thinking, okay, this is going to take forever. No, we play one hand. And they say, congratulations, everybody. You're in the money. Yeah. And everybody cheered. I said, wow, that was fast. We lost two people? We lost two people? Okay. Well, at least the nightmare is over here. Then they did a quick announcement that the 1287th place finisher, I forgot the guy's name, that he's going to get a seat for next year. And that now we're going to stop play and come back the next day with six minutes left on the clock, that we've all made the money, 1,286 people left, and the day's over. So, I said, all right, we're done. Well, something was noticed the following day, on day four. Going through the list of finishers, there was something conspicuously missing. There was no 1,286th place finisher. How's that possible? How does someone finish in 1,286th place and just walk away? Now, when I looked, this was at a point when we were way past 1,286th place. Remember, people fall out pretty fast once the money hits at the main event. All those tiny stacks holding on now can put it in. In fact, it stays as 15000 for quite some time. So, what happened to that 1286-place finisher? I brought this up. Some people said, oh, well, he probably just didn't collect his money yet. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. There's two processes after you bust from a tournament in the money, in the World Series of Poker. The first thing you have to do, and this is mandatory to do immediately, is to go over to the desk and they register your cash. You have to do that then. You can't leave. You can't come do it later when the line's shorter. You you have to do it then. 
register your cash. That's mandatory. And then after they register your cash, then you can come back anytime to pick up your money. Because they already have you in the system, you just come back anytime and then they know what they owe you and they pay you whenever you feel like being paid. So if there's a line then, then then you can avoid it. But you can't avoid the first line. You always have to register your cash. 1286th place was the only place where the person did not register their cash. But what was really weird about this is there was no line that night. Because this was the final thing that happened that night. And nobody was in the money that night until the bubble burst. So how could that person not have registered their cash? How could they have... How could someone have made it all the way to barely cash in the main event after three full days of play, barely pass the bubble and be the first one after the bubble bursts, and then just walk off? I thought, well, maybe, maybe, maybe this was an amateur who didn't understand that they can't just walk off, that they have to register their cash. They had said 1286 were left when we... uh, ended for the night, but maybe someone busted and uh, they didn't realize that and that person walked off. But I thought, why would he walk off? Why wouldn't he ask, okay, how do I get my money? Like, why would why would someone ever just walk off at that point when, they, when they're the first one to bust in the money? Why would they ever just walk off then? People said, well, give it time. Maybe the person just was confused. Well, I gave it time and nothing changed. I tweeted asking the World Series of Poker, what happened here? At WSOP, I said, what happened? You know, where's the 1286 place finisher? I, I linked them to the results. Where is he? And I said, look, if this 15000 somehow wasn't awarded, if somehow someone was misled to believe that uh, they did not finish in the money and they're gone and can't be located, then something has to happen with this money. It can't just disappear. It has to be put back in the prize pool or this person has to be found in some way. You guys can't just keep it, which is true. That would be against the law for them to just keep it. Now, technically, they could hold it while they're trying to figure out who it is. But ultimately, it's owed to someone. No answer. Nobody would answer me. I was the first one to bring it up. Nobody would answer. In fact, surprisingly, nobody took that much of an interest in this. I shouldn't say nobody. Most people did not take an interest in this. I told people that day on day four that I suspected this. Nobody cared. It was surprising to me that nobody cared about this because to me it looked like that in all the chaos with them not going hand for hand that they ended up miscounting and that someone was told that they didn't cash when they really did and that some poor sap there really cashed 15000 or at the very least 10000 that you know should have gotten the, the seat for next year and didn't realize it and walked off. I thought maybe the 1287th finisher was really 1286, and maybe the 1288th finisher was really 1287 that should have gotten that seat. Someone got screwed here. And I was afraid they'd never know who it was, and in fact, maybe they would never answer this. Well, thankfully, finally, Poker News took an interest in this. Probably because they saw me tweeting about it, but, but they took an interest in this. And they asked the World Series. And finally, they got an answer. The answer was exactly what I suspected. They blamed it on a dealer not saying that someone busted, but I don't believe that. Or may have been part of what happened. But the, the truth was, it was because of all the chaos. It was because they were not managing the bubble well. It's because they weren't going hand for hand. 
So because of that, and because they didn't have a good count on who was left, and because all they were doing is running around in, in a panic about the stalling rather than trying to manage the bubble well, the guy who busted what they thought was 1288th, it turned out that he really was 1287th, and the bubble had actually burst. The guy who busted 1287th, so they thought, where they gave the seat to him, really was 1286th and should have gotten no seat and $15,000. So that's really what happened. And they figured it out because they saw there was no 1286th place finisher and that they had screwed up. And they, uh, I mean, they must have known this because the first person was registered as 1285th place. So they must have known that they handed, a, that, that there, there was no 1286 and they screwed up. So somehow they realized they screwed up and they just didn't want to admit it yet. And they were trying to figure out what do we do? So they pulled up surveillance video and fortunately for them, the player who got screwed was a known player. The player who got screwed actually won a bracelet this year. So they were able to locate him and contact him. So they called up the guy and said, hey, you know, you, you thought you finished 1288th and didn't get anything. You actually finished 1287th and you're supposed to get uh, a seat for next year. So that guy's like, oh, sweet. <laughs> What's he going to say at that point? He's like, oh, good. I, I thought I was getting nothing. I, th- I thought I busted in uh, 1288th place. I thought after three days of play that I was walking away with zero point zero. But I actually got a 10K seat for next year. Sweet. So he was happy. Then they had to call back the 1287th place finisher who they gave the seat for next year and go, uh, we got bad news and good news. The bad news is we're taking away your seat for next year. The good news is we're giving you $15,000. The one who finished in 1287th that turned out to really be 1286th, his name is Ryan Potchedley. And by the way, he wasn't very happy about something else, which I'll talk about shortly. He posted on 2 Plus 2 about how he was pissed about this whole thing. And the one who finished 1287th, who they told got nothing, his name is Jonas Locke, L-A-U-C-K, and he is a German poker pro. And he had just won the 1500 Turbo Bounty in 2019 to win a bracelet. So they recognized him. If it was just some like random amateur, they wouldn't have known who the hell he was. And there would have been no 1286 place finisher. They're, they're fortunate that the guy who got ripped off here was a known player that they could identify from surveillance. This is what... Uh, Jonas Locke said, he said, I knew it was really close to the money. I stone bubbled the main already three or four years ago. So I told, uh, I did not get a seat because I lost the high card flip. Oh, interesting. I, he said that he, he stone bubbled it along with somebody else. So they had to do like a little high card uh, deal out to see who gets it. That's, that's a pretty bad beat to lose a, to lose the high card at that point uh, and not get the 10K seat. He said, he said, so I see the calls coming, by the way. I'll, I'll take your call in a second. So, so I told my friends on break before that I don't want to bubble again and we'll chill until we reach the money. But then I got kings with 20 big blinds and the chip leader of the table who was very active raised. So I went all in expecting him to fold, but he had aces and they held. I knew it was like two or three off the money, so I was hoping that there were other busts. The floor told me, you can go, you didn't make it. <laughs> Great. 
So they actually told him. He's like, are you sure I'm not actually something? Nope, no, nope, no, nope, you're gone. You didn't make it. You can go. Okay, that sucks. But yeah, he did make it. At least he gets the uh, 10000 He said, I was contacted by Jack, Jack Effel. He explained to me there was a mistake, and I became Bubble Boy instead of two off the money, and we'll get a seat next year. Of course, I was super happy because I felt like I won $10,000 today that I didn't expect. So how does the other guy feel? Ryan uh, Pochidly? Pochidly? How does he feel? He's pissed. Why? I mean, he got another $5,000 out of it. He got 15000 instead of a 10 k seat. Well, he was pissed because on the bubble, what he thought was the bubble, and it turned out it had already burst, and he was actually, uh, would have been 1286 place. So by this point, this other guy had gone out already, and they thought they were on the bubble when they weren't. He had a hand where he had ace-king, and he raised, and a guy three-bet him pre and he decided not to put it all in because it was on the bubble. So the flop came like 8-7-3. He was going to check fold, but then the guy bet really small on the flop, so he he felt he had to call. Well, the turn, then he hits the king. For whatever reason, he decided to check instead of bet out when the king hit. And that guy checked. The turn, or sorry, the river was a 7, so that's 8-7-3... King seven. He checks again, and the guy goes three hundred k, which is a pretty damn big bet for the, what the pot was at that point. He thought and thought and thought and called, and the guy turned out to have seven six suited, and and he busted. Either busted or was crippled, whatever it was. Uh, he was very unhappy, saying that the guy with seven six suited actually wouldn't have three bet him if it wasn't the perceived bubble. The reason he was explaining is that. The guy was three betting, thinking that everybody's going to fold to a three bet. It was a guy with a big stack. He's everyone's going to fold to a three bet on the bubble, be afraid to play a big pot on the bubble. But if it hadn't been the bubble, then this guy wouldn't have been ballsy enough to do the three bet with a seven six suited. He said he's been watching this guy play. That it was only when he got close to the bubble this guy got very aggressive. So he said that hand would not have gone down that way. Therefore, what he actually wrote on two plus two, the, the title of his thread was "WSOP mismanages the main event bubble and cost me equity." And his argument was that he would have had way more equity to have gotten deeper in the event if they had managed the bubble right and if that hand had been played as a non-bubble hand. Well, my answer to this was that he's not really correct with that line of thinking because it wasn't like it was destined for him to lose the hand once he played it. He could have easily won the hand. He could have easily doubled up on that hand. Uh, Let's say the flop was... uh, was was a seven six, and then a king on the river, and they get it in, and he doubles up. I'm sure he wouldn't be out there complaining. Oh man, that guy wouldn't have played that if it wasn't the bubble. Oh man, I should I don't deserve these chips. He wouldn't have been out there saying that. He was bitching about it because he lost the hand. So yeah, I agree with him. There's a good chance the hand would have played differently if it if the bubble had been reported correctly, but that wasn't a bias against him in any way. It just changed the situation, the way things were being played, and it happened to fall on the wrong end for him. But it was no disadvantage to him compared to anybody else. I see why he's annoyed. I see what the thought process is. But you can say this for anything. Every slight thing. You've heard of the butterfly effect. This so much exists in poker. You do the slightest thing differently. You you take a second longer to fold. It changes the shuffle the next time. Everything you do 
affects everything happening going forward in poker, even things that seem inconsequential. So in this case, yeah, they mismanaged the bubble. There's no excuse for that. It was incompetent. It was stupid. People were begging them to do it right, and they wouldn't. That's the big thing to focus on here. Just because he happened to play a hand that played as if it was a bubble hand when it wasn't, and that caused him to lose more chips and bust, that doesn't mean that it was unfair to him in any way, because it could have gone the other way just as easily. In fact, he actually got to play the better hand pre-flop. He got to play ace-king versus 7-6, when normally he wouldn't have gotten to do that. Okay, I'm going to take a call here from someone who's frantically calling here. Caller, you're on the air. Caller. Yes, Ty. This is Tyrone again. Yeah, hi, Tyrone. Uh, by, by the way, Tyrone, I, I always take calls like between segments here, so I was going to take the call at the end of the segment. I saw you called a bunch of times, so I finally took it. But uh, anyway. No, no, no. I'm, I, 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 I basically... Uh, it's difficult to, to tell what, when is the sigma come. Okay, all, I, I guess that's fair. I, I guess that's let, fair. Let, Go ahead. What do you want to uh, say? Yeah. Let me tell, tell you three things. First of all, uh, are you okay? Yeah. Cold? Well, not, not, I'm not totally okay, but it's, I'm, I'm making it through here. Having a cold when you get when you get older and older is. It's uh, longer, longer recover time, right? I'm not really for finding that. People. No, I, I, it's, for me, it just goes all over the place. Sometimes I'll recover very fast. Sometimes it takes weeks. Sometimes it takes uh, one week. I never know. This one, the recover time wasn't that bad. It's just uh, um, it, the, the symptoms were very severe for five days, and then they got better. So, Oh, I'm sorry about that. Second of all, the, the, I will change for you all the way. Uh, I've... I, I think you have a wonderful World Series. Well, thank you. I, I saw I saw you cheering on Twitter. I saw your, your messages on Twitter. I appreciated those. Yes, I I I, I was uh, uh, again. Let me restate again. You know how uh, again most people do not realize how difficult it is cash in World Series, and then it is more difficult to cash in. The main event. So, so uh, even though, uh, so uh, it is therefore congratulations, congratulations. Uh, thank you. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, thank thank you. you. Now, I I have a very very interesting story to tell you. Yeah, I don't know whether you appreciate that. Uh, it's about fifteen years ago. There was. Some guy I knew who were playing limit poker. He he was playing on online. He accidentally clipped to a high limit t- table, and he got lucky. He flopped, flopped two sets, and then uh, he won a lot of money. He said to he he, he said to himself, "Hey." Why don't I use the, uh, that money pay the main event? Uh, main event. So he went to the pay the event the $10,000. And he flopped four jacks. Four, four jacks. But however, he got beat. Wow. By a straight flush. Huh. Huh? That's pretty, that, that, yeah, uh, that's pretty bad. 
that that's pretty bad. But at that time, Jack Lee is the sponsor. ESPN say, don't worry, you, uh, your case will probably show on TV, and we're gonna pay you about anywhere to eight to nine thousand dollars if you got show on the TV. But somehow, it didn't show. Oh. <laughs> that was a bad beat. Then, then he said, then the Jacqueline B. Jerky say, it's okay. We'll give you a consolation prize because you flopped for Jack. We're going to give you $3,000 worth of Jack Lane B. Jerky. Oh, wow. He probably still has it today. Yeah, well, wait, wait a minute. Let me tell you the bad B story. So when we're playing limit poker, poker, so he paid the beef jerky to everybody to eat. But unfortunately, he was living in a motel, and uh, he had all this tickets. He put it in the, on the stairs. The housekeeper thinks, hey, that was terrible. Uh, that was a housekeeper thing that was in the trash. Oh, no. All the way in the beef basket. So what I basically say is that he got good luck win the most series of, uh, I mean, got got uh, injured the most uh, series of poker by accident. By then, uh, all this bad be happened to him. So I never heard this story. That's interesting. Wow, that that, that is interesting. This I never heard this whole me, thing. This happened. I I know this guy. You know. Okay. I haven't seen him for a long time, but uh, that was a bad B story of of. Uh, Really, really bad B story. That is actually that. That is. I mean, that's. Uh, I do remember when Jack Links was was a sponsor, and I think they even gave beef jerky out one year, and then it created such litter around. Like there were wrappers everywhere, and people were very unhappy about it. It, it, it wrappers from be- Jack Links beef jerky was. It was just all over the Rio hallways, and people were really pissed about it. And they said, "We're never going to do this again." It was like on every seat for the main event. Well, anyway, I'm going to cut this short. I just say that uh, congratulations. You're a very, very skillful poker player. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Tyrone. Okay. I, I, saw, I saw your messages during it. It was very encouraging, and thank you. I appreciated the support there. Oh, you're welcome. Okay. okay. Thank you for calling. Okay, bye. Bye. Tyrone's become a regular caller here. I, I I wish he didn't like hammer me over and over with calls, but uh, since it's Tyrone, I'll look past it. He's, he's become a fixture on this show, and... Uh, Middle of 2019. Okay, so, th- so I, I'm done talking about that bubble, but l- let's talk about the second bubble. You may say, what second bubble? How is there a second bubble? I don't mean the main event bubble. Ah, crap. I have another call coming in. Fine. Well, before the second bubble, we'll take this call. You're on the air. Caller, hello. Good morning, Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I wanted to get us back to the main event for just a moment, if I could. Yeah, who is this? This is Joey, yeah. Okay, Joey, yeah, go ahead. You know, I thought there would have been more made about that player who was so unfortunately deprived of his chance to play in the main event just because he showed the nuts while a hand was going on. Oh. Did you hear about this? Yeah, I mean, the one who showed his penis? We talked about him last time. Uh, well, in any event, he has recently emerged on Twitter yeah, talking I know. about how it was not drugs involved. And you, 
Uh, did you have a chance to speak with him and invite him on the show this evening? I, I invited him on. He didn't respond to me. Uh, I, I will read his tweet uh, shortly about this. Thanks for reminding me with that. But yeah, I did see he reappeared on, on Twitter. He, he was in like a mental hospital for a few weeks, and he just came out of that. So we will. I, I'll read his tweet, and I was hoping he'd come on tonight, but he didn't respond to me. Now, the other topic that I wanted to touch on, I'm not sure if you have it in your artillery for today or not, um, the raids in Houston. There's a pretty big controversy surrounding that. They recently returned the money, and apparently there was some uh, shady dealing going on. I will have to look apparently into that. Apparently some, some of the people that were running the games uh, were paying off somebody at the DA's office. Wow. And uh, now there's a big <laughs> conflict of interest, and they had to dismiss the case. Wow. Okay, I'm going to have to read about that. I, I haven't heard about this, but I will look into this, and I actually have a, uh, a membership in one of the Houston poker groups on Facebook where there's, like, insider discussion, so I'll take a look at that too. Well, that's fantastic. It's fantastic news for Texas, and uh, – I think it's really, uh, really good what they're doing over there. I know you, uh, you disagree with that. You don't like the, uh, they're kind of navigating their way around the law here. No, it's not, no, it's not I disagree with it. I just, uh, th- this is bound to happen at some point. I'm, I'm fine if they want to play poker. I mean, I, I feel for them over there that they can't play. It sucks. That's, I, I don't, I don't blame people for trying to get around it. I'm just saying that these, uh, these, what they think is legal often really isn't. That's the problem. But if they, if, if they want to try, uh, that's fine. I just don't when, – when the hammer comes down, I'm not surprised, and that's what happened. Well, you know, the law can sometimes be kind of subjective, and I just think it's a way that a lot of – I'm surprised more states have not jumped on the bandwagon, uh, the states where it is hard to play poker. It is hard to find a safe and secure poker game. I'm just surprised that this hasn't spread like wildfire across the country, to be honest with you. Yeah, well, they, they sh- it should be legal. It's I mean, Of course, it's up to each state, but I – Look, it's legal in, in California. There's no problem. It's 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 fine. There's not the world hasn't ended. It's been legal in California for uh, many decades before I was even born. So that's uh, it. It should be legal in more places. And I feel bad for people who live in areas where they can't access poker. And on that count, I just want to remind people to when they have an opportunity to write to their congressmen and their senators and. Try and get poker the uh, the rightful legalization that it deserves. Anyways, I got to go. Have a fantastic night. Okay, thank you, Joe. Yeah, He's a long time listener, Joe. Yeah, we, we. What's funny is I, I turned on the call to listen line. Uh, I think like two days ago, and I heard him. <laughs> it's so weird. I was like, I, I haven't heard from him in a while. Then he calls tonight. That's so weird. Okay, so I want to talk about the second bubble now. The second bubble is something that should not have occurred. It just shouldn't have happened. So there's pay jumps at the World Series of Poker main event, as there are in all poker tournaments, where you go from the min cash all the way up to the top cash. That's very standard. That has to be. That's the way a tournament works. And these pay jumps need to be managed properly. Now, usually these are established by computer, and usually the computer does a pretty good job. But you always need a human to go over what the computer establishes and make sure the computer didn't screw up. Because sometimes the computer does things that aren't all that logical from a poker standpoint. And, of course, these can be fixed by a human being. Just because the computer says the price pool should be this way doesn't mean you have to adhere to it. Uh, 
this year they were very particular that they wanted first place to be ten million, provided they get a certain number number of entrants, which they easily got. Like provided they got more than what, like eight thousand people, they wanted it to be ten million. And they also wanted the entire final table to be guaranteed a million. So that does take away money from the other spots and they have to work around that. But the computer does that too. So they basically feed into the computer. We want these we want the following payouts for first through ninth, and then uh, the following payouts for the second final table for tenth through eighteenth. So, that, so basically, if you make the eighteenth place or higher, guaranteed four hundred k. If you make fifteenth or higher, guaranteed five hundred k. If you make thirteenth or higher, six hundred k. If you make tenth or eleventh, eight hundred k. If you make ninth, then it's a million. It goes up from there. Okay. So th- these they manually did, and then they let the computer do the rest. And that's fine, except you've got to do a sanity check. So at first it was okay. At first it was pretty standard. The bubble was at 1286, and through 1063rd you're still getting the same 15,000. That sounds like a long time, but it really isn't because people are busting fast and furious once that bubble breaks. So that's fine. And then it goes up from there. From 15,000 to 15,970 to 17,135 to 18,535 to 20,200 to 22,190 to 24,560. Fine. Okay. These are all kind of standard pay jumps along the way up. Every time the pay jump gets a little bit bigger, but whatever. Pretty standard. The problem occurred between 225th place and 100th place. Very deep in the main, obviously, 225th to 100th. By the time you're at 100th, you're almost down to the final 1%. So you're eliminating more than half the field between 225th and 100th. Would you believe in that span there is one pay jump? (laughs) And this is a big problem. And the reason this is a big problem is because people become aware of this and they don't want to be the pay jump bubble boy. So 163rd place was to get $50,855. 162nd place was to get 59295 for a difference of approximately $8,400. That's real money. I mean, it's almost the buy-in. It's 84% of the buy-in. So while people at that point are not playing for that extra 8400 they're really you know, hoping they're going to get to the end. Still, if you're very short-stacked and you see that a pay jump is not coming for a long time after that, and if you have survived all this time in this pay jump from 225th all the way to 163rd, if you've survived this long, and then it's going to be another 63 spots until you pay jump again, you think, okay, well, might as well get this 8400 and, and then start risking my chips. And let me tell you, that's what everybody did. If they had more pay jumps, if they didn't just have one pay jump from 225th to 100th, which is insane, then people wouldn't have done this. Because I've, I've been deep in the main event before. I've been deep in other tournaments before. I, in this year, nobody stalled the other pay jumps. All the other pay jumps up till there, people just played normally. Yeah, people noticed it, but they were they weren't going. Okay, well, you know, I've got to really stall to go from forty three thousand nine thirty five to fifty thousand eight fifty five. Why? Well, I mean, yes, it was still 
over $6,000. But the difference was the pay jumps were coming at a reasonable rate to where they were happening often enough to where people were just kind of naturally busting there. But uh, and, and they were just used to it. You know, you can't always optimize the pay jumps. You're not always going to be busting right after a pay jump, and everybody knows that. So if there's enough pay jumps, people don't obsess over the pay jumps. But if there's only one pay jump, then people start to notice. So let's say you're at 190th place. If there's 190 left, not 190th place, 190 left, and you're kind of short stacked, and you see that at 162nd it goes up by 8,400 dollars. You may say, but it doesn't go up again until 99th place. You may say, okay, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to be pretty tight. And then uh, once 162nd comes, then uh, then I'll be looser again. Now, it didn't happen to that extreme, but when it got close to 162nd, it really slowed down. And it got really slow once it got to like 167th. And I'd been watching the pace people were busting. It got really slow. But nothing like it did when it actually got to 163rd. Were we going to ask Trader Risky? Did they did they go for hand for hand? No, they they tried to pretend it wasn't happening. They tra- they said nothing, which which is fine. So how did they know who? I mean, I guess they were all in one room at that point. Yeah, we were all in one room, and everybody just knew. Everybody, you know, there's 163 people left. We we know we know when it's coming. We, everybody who's playing at that point was aware that 162nd was the only pay jump in the entire span of 225th to 100. So it gets to like 166, 167th, something like that. It slows down big time. But then it, at 163rd, that that bubble for that pay jump, you would not believe. The stalling, the the, the super nitty play. I was looking at every short stack. Because I could see them all pretty well because it's, it's, it's not big at this point. There's only 163 people left. There's only uh, there's like, like fewer than 20 tables. I can't see every single one of them, but I look around at all the tables I can see, and I, I even got up sometimes when between hands when, when things were short, like when things were taking a long time and I, at my table, and I, I looked around, and I saw stalling. I, 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 certain people who – I'm not going to name, but certain people who are not at all known for tight or nitty play were playing like no hands. It, 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 there was definite stalling and super, super tight play to avoid being that 163rd place finisher. It took 35 freaking minutes to burst that pay jump bubble. 35 minutes to go from 163rd to 162nd. And guess what happened once we got to 162nd? Well, then it starts all going in. Then everybody busts really fast. I know you're all shocked. No hand for hand, no announcement about it, but people were aware. They knew it. And it's because this this pay jump was done improperly. You should not have one pay jump when more than half the field gets eliminated. It's insane. They could have easily adjusted this. They just needed a human being with a calculator to go through this and and, and redo the payouts to where this doesn't happen. Just put more pay jumps in. That's all they have to do. Just start. And sh- I don't care if they're smaller pay jumps. Just put more pay jumps in so it's more gradual. Easy to do. It wouldn't take that long. Give me an hour and a calculator, I could have done it. So th- this was a screw-up big time. I don't know what it's been like in previous years. I wasn't really watching, but it took 35 minutes to lose one player from 163rd place. Now, I was fairly short then, and I was thinking, this is going to be really annoying if I'm the if I'm the one here, because I'm not even trying to play this way. I, I want to play to get deep. I want to play to make the final table. So I'm not going to just throw it in with trash, but at the same time, 
And, and like at my table, it's not like I could bully anyone with this because at my table, it was a lot of big stacks. A lot of big stacks at my table. So there were not many short stacks at my table. So there, there wasn't really stalling going on at my table. But the other tables with the other short stacks, boy, everybody was, was stalling. Stalling, playing super tight. So I thought, you know what would kind of suck is here I'm playing this normally. But like, let's say I get Del Ace King and go all in pre and someone with nines calls me and then I just don't hit and I lose. Wouldn't that suck if like I'm the one who's not being the nit here and I end up the 163rd place finisher? Well, it almost happened. This Asian guy who had a lot of chips, I don't know his name, but I don't know, I don't know where he finished, but he had a lot of chips. He was raising a lot of hands pre. Tyrone? Just kidding. Oh, it was Tyrone. Oh, he was he was there with me. I didn't know it. There was a an Asian guy opens under the gun, young Asian guy. I'm like a, like two to his left. Look down, Ace King offsuit. I look at it, I think for a moment. Do I really want to do this? Do I really want to put my tournament life at risk at this 163rd bubble that's already taken 20 freaking minutes because of all these nits and stallers? And do, do I want to be the one who actually puts the chips in here and, and loses? And I thought, you know what? I, I got to do it. Fuck it. I'm not, I am not folding ace-king here. I'm not folding ace-king. I'm not playing it funny. I'm not just calling it and seeing what I flop. Screw that. I'm going to play this like it's not the bubble at all. I'm just going to play it normally. So I did what I had to do. All in. Fold, 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 fold. Back to him. He thinks a little bit. Says, no, I'm not going to play eights here and throws it away. Which makes sense because, you know, I, I would have done the same thing with nines or higher. So I see why he didn't want to play eights. I, I had enough chips to put a dent into him. So, uh, like, I, I had to do well, the all you probably did think your hand was over strong since you're, you know... Yeah, yeah, and it's on that bubble, too. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if he was aware. I didn't talk about it at my table. I, I didn't want people to try to bully me because I was a short stack. So I didn't mention it at my table. I was just quietly noticing. But uh, I, he may have known anyway. But like he, he had a ton of chips. He wasn't worried about being the 163rd bubble. But uh, um, anyway, I, I put it in, though. I did it. I didn't fold the ace-king. I, I, I went all in. And, you know, there's a decent chance I could have been called. It was an under-the-gun raise. The guy raised a lot, but he wasn't, like, playing every hand. And it was under the gun, so... The guy easily could have called me if he had something uh, a little bit better. I did it. I put the t- I put the chips in. He just uh, didn't call me. And then from that point, another 15 minutes passed, but I just got dealt like complete garbage the rest of the way. So the card kind of made the decision for me. And finally it burst. So, but that was so stupid. It totally could have been prevented. How did they not just like look at this? How, how do you just not look at the payouts you've established and go, hmm, let's see here. Oh, wait a minute. There's only one pay jump from 225th to 100. Oh, that's not very good. Let's fix this. Like, how hard is it to quickly eyeball this and go, this, this looks wrong? And, and keep in mind, they, 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 you know, they, they had pay jumps. Like, let's look at the previous pay jumps here. They, they had one at, at 541st. 478th, 415th, 352nd, 289th, 266th, 226th, 163rd, 100th. Actually, that's, that's, the, that's the bubble in each one. But whatever. So you take one away from each of these. But you know what I'm saying here? That as it goes on, there should be less space between pay jumps because there's fewer people left, not more space. But they were making more space. It, it, it didn't make any sense. They, they, they needed. Actually, there, it wasn't really more space. They were taking about like the same space between pay jumps, 
but there's a lot fewer people to where it's like a much bigger percentage of the field. So how when there's 160 second, 162 people left, how do you take another 63 people before another pay jump? How do you take out like, like more than a third of the field before you do another pay jump? How do you possibly do that? So it was just really mismanaged. And it, because they left the computer selected and they didn't do a sanity check. The reverse of this happened at the Colossus the first year they had it a few years ago. I don't know if you remember this. When the Colossus got like the record like 21,000 entrants at the time. And people were like, oh, I wonder what big money is going to be at that final table. And it turned out like with, with 21,000 entrants putting up $565 each that uh, ninth place got something like $60,000. <laughs> and first place got like $600,000. <laughs> and people were like, what the fuck? They're, they're like, what the fuck? So you finished ninth out of 21,000 people putting up 565 and, and you get $60,000? Like, what? The, the people were outraged. And they're like, no, you don't understand. It's flatter when it's bigger. And people are like, no, this is awful. And so they, 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 they finally adjusted it. And they, they, in subsequent years, they manually would make the final table get more. Which, which and, and, and they're doing the same with the main, which is fine. But then you've got to make sure that the computer doesn't screw up the other pay jumps, which it did this year. So just just something stupid. I've never seen such a stalling on a page up. Never. Again, with the exception of like the the final table bubble, I've never seen like a non-final table and non-close to the final table bubble where it's not the first bubble. I've never seen like a page jump bubble be like this ever in any tournament ever. So they screwed this one up big time. And that got no discussion in poker media. The the main bubble got discussion of how screwed up it was, but the but the, because you know, twelve hundred eighty six people made it. Here there was only one hundred sixty two people left, so no one was really paying attention to this. Like some people saw, but there just there there wasn't enough visibility on this, and I would not have known if I had not been there myself. I would not even have looked at this, but uh, it was definitely a problem. Okay. Let's go on to the next topic. We're on our fourth topic here out of 20. That's, that's great progress we've made so far in, in uh, two hours plus. Great. I'm doing great. I'm going to be done with this at 10 in the morning probably. Jeez. i got to speed this up. And I've lost my agenda already somehow. And I've lost the agenda. It's, it's, not, it's, it's bad enough that I've finished four out of 20 topics. And like I feel like the show's long already, but but now I've lost the agenda. Okay. Did you hear that Livingston guy gave one uh, percent as a wedding gift, like back earlier in the year of his main event? No. And they got <laughs> and they got forty G. That's pretty good. That is pretty good. Who, who got sure it? The wife was like, "What? This, you know, the stiffness of the president." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is crap. I, I, I want. I want the. Uh, I want the, the the knives and forks set here. The, right, the silver plate like, knife and forks. You know, it could be something good. Okay, so so uh, I'm going to play you guys a video shortly about Jack Effel and Dario Sammartino and this uh, controversial hand, which I'll tell you about in a second. This is what occurred. It was close to the final table. I don't know how many were left, but it was close to making the final table at this point. So very, very 
big consequences to every hand that's occurring at that point in the main event. And Jack Effel is right there on hand in case something happens because they're so close to the final table. I don't think he was right there. It took him a while to get there. Okay, yeah, yeah. He wasn't there, but he he was accessible, shall I say. So so they, they so Dario San Martino had tens pre flop and uh someone put him all in. So he asked for a count. And the dealer, who by the way is a dealer I had a few times at the World Series, and what's funny is this this dealer was actually a competent dealer, is a, a woman who looked in her forties and she she was, she was, I remember she was kind of large. She was like very tall, kind of like big shouldered. She was, she was kind of like, like big and large. Not like huge. She wasn't like obese, but she's kind of like a larger woman. Um, but, but she was, she seemed like she was sharp and on the ball and dealt the cards fast and, uh, totally not the one I expected to be making the mistake I'm about to tell you. Uh, the one just thing- to correct it, Jeff, they didn't put him all in. The other guy went all in and he still had money. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. call it covered. Yeah, yeah. So this dealer, I didn't expect to be one making a high-profile mistake, but and they probably chose her to deal the, at this point in the event because she was a good dealer. And uh, my impression of her when she dealt to me at the World Series was uh, she was good, she was competent, she was sharp, but she was a little bit arrogant. She was kind of one of those dealers who was like a little like kind of like sarcastic and kind of full of themselves and kind of like a mocking of anyone who uh, who makes a mistake. Not terrible, but just like a little bit like arrogant and like a little bit rude. So I was a little surprised it was her who made this boneheaded mistake. But maybe she was nervous being on the stage of the like almost final table, the main event. Anyway, the all-in was from a guy who had $22 million in chips. And Dario asked for a count with his tens. He wanted to see how much more he had to put in. And the dealer said it's $17 million. So Dario said, okay, my call. They turned over their hands. Um, oh, no, sorry, sorry. Then, then it was corrected. Sorry, it's actually $22 million. I counted it wrong. Sorry. So Dario actually didn't protest at that point. He said, oh, okay, it's 22 and threw out another $5 million. So he did say call based on the $17 million. But then when they told him it was 22 he didn't object right away and actually and said, okay, and threw in the other $5 million. Then they turn over their hands. He sees he's up against Queens. All of a sudden, Dario was very unhappy. What? This isn't fair to me. You know, how can you? So I thought that was a little bit of an angle on his part that uh, that he was he was willing to put in the extra five million without a big deal. And then the second that uh, he sees he's he's drawing to two outs, then oh my God, look what's happened! How you know we should have answered it properly. I should have known it was twenty two, not seventeen. So I think he was angling a little bit. Like if he saw the other guy turn over nines, he's not saying this. It's even possible if he sees Ace King, he's not saying this. It's because he sees Queens. Then, then he, all of a sudden it's uh, you know oh, oh terrible you know I, I may not have called then I shouldn't have had to I shouldn't have to put in twenty two I should only have to put in seventeen so this is not a good spot for anybody because the guy goes all in he gets called he should he should expect that if he gets called he gets twenty two million if he doesn't it's not fair to him but at the same time Dario uh, he thought he was calling seventeen but again as I said since he when it was corrected first of all it's up to the player to know for sure you can ask the dealer for account but you really got to verify it especially at this point. And, and second, uh, he didn't say anything until after he saw he was behind, which I think is kind of crappy. But that, that's not the bigger story here. And by the way, he, he, he did uh, lose the hand. But uh, here is, here's the bigger story here. 
he was really angry about this, and, and so they waited a while to, to go get uh, Jack Effel, the tournament director, as, as Trader Risky said. So Jack Effel came down to rule on this. And listen to the way... I'll make sure that Trader Risky can hear this. I'm going to in fact, reset your, uh, your sound connection just to make sure you can hear this. Uh, this, is, this is what Jack Effel said once he got over there. 22-2. That's going to be the it's call. Not for sure. It's not fair. That's it. And that, that's Dario saying it's not fair. It's not fair. He's Italian. He's got the accent. So this is not fair for sure. Let's roll. You're calling 17. You're calling 22. Okay, let's stop that right here. You're calling 17. You're calling 22. Now that was a nasty comment to make because that's not true. First of all, that's, that's not true. It's not like it's not like he thought he's putting in. Uh, 17 and it turned out at 17.5. That, that's when you can make that statement. You're calling 17, you're calling 17.5. Like, no one's going to go, oh, man, if it was only just 17 and 17.5, I'm calling, but not 17.5. That extra 500,000 would have made the difference. That, there you'd look like a fool claiming that. 17 and 22 is, is a difference. 17 and 22, if you think about it, is, uh, what is it, like 30% or something? More? So that's that's something substantially more to where, yes, you could decide that 22 would be too much for you to call, but 17 you would. That could be. I've had situations like this before where I'm thinking if the person just had a little bit fewer chips, I would call, but I can't. So to, especially at this point where every decision is so huge, you can't say if you're calling 17, you're calling 22. It's a stupid thing to say. That's just simply not true. I don't know about what Dario would have decided with 22 versus 17. If he heard 22, what he would have decided in the first place. But, but you can't just say if you're calling 17, you're calling 22. And even if Jack thinks that, you shouldn't vocalize that. You shouldn't vocalize. That's a nasty thing to say to him after, some, after his, a dealer working for him makes this mistake. Uh, what, what you say is, I'm sorry about this. This is a very unfortunate situation. There's no easy way to you know, make this so it's it's good for everyone. We have to go by the standard rules. I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. It it is technically responsibility to to make sure the the dealer count is right. We're very sorry this happened, uh, but it but it has to stand according to the rules. That's what you say if you're Jack Campbell. You don't say if you're calling 17, you're calling 22. Listen to this again. 22, two. That's going to be the it's call. Not fair for sure. It is not fair. That's it. That's it. This is not fair for sure. Let's roll. You're calling 17, you're calling 22. All right. <laughs> <laughs> that. That's not true. You really say this? You really say this? <laughs> That's Dario. The whole table erupted at this point. The whole table was unhappy with that statement. Like the, the remaining people in the main event at this table, everybody was unhappy and started giving Jack a hard time. You say this? I call 17, I call 22. Yeah, Oh my god, guys. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. We don't like his needle again. He says, oh, if he's calling 17, he's calling 22. Now, these are other people. These are not Dario talking. People are saying, we don't, we don't like his needle. Not, not just Dario doesn't like it. We, mean the players, we don't like his needle. And I know that Jack's the top, but that was an inappropriate needle to a guy who's in a very. But everybody, no, 20 bigs and 27 bigs change everything. Completely different spot. Completely different. Yeah, he's right. You don't make that statement. Now, Jack made the right ruling. Here is the rule number 104 from the World Series of Poker called Accepted Action. Poker is a game of alert, continuous observation. It is the caller's responsibility to determine the correct amount of an opponent's bet, 
before calling, regardless of what is stated by the dealer or participants. If a caller requests a count but receives incorrect information from the dealer, then places that amount in the pot, the caller is assumed to accept the full correct action and is subject to the correct wager or all-in amount. So that's very clear. It's exactly what happened here. That's rule number 104. According to the rule, Jack and the floor man before him ruled it correctly. So I have no problem with the ruling. It's kind of crappy that it happened, but uh, it's crappy that the dealer wasn't more careful. Maybe she was nervous on the, on the big stage there. But they made the right ruling. It's, it's the attitude. And some were saying, oh, Jack didn't really mean that. He meant something. No, of course he meant that. Of course he meant that. And unfortunately, uh, th- that's kind of always been Jack's attitude. Jack has uh, kind of a condescending attitude. And there's always been those complaints about him. Keep in mind, this is a guy who used to block people on Twitter who said the slightest negative thing about something in the World Series, including me. He eventually unblocked everyone and apologized before eventually leaving Twitter. Like, Jack does not tweet anymore. He's gone. Actually, to show you how much he's gone, he actually changed his Twitter from at WSOPTD to just Jack Effel. Um... Actually, I guess he has that, too. I guess there's also a Jack Effel now, too. I guess he split them. No, I guess he's, that's weird. Well, somebody else, isn't somebody else running the other one? The, at WSOP is run by KevMath. That, that's funny. Um, this is really weird. I don't know what happened here. There was an act, Jack Effel, which I can't find anymore, and now at WSOP TD disappeared and came back to where it's only followed by 72 people right now and joined March 2019. Isn't that weird? That was once like a very big followed account. Now it's got 72 followers and joined March 2019 because he changed it to Jack Effel and then he made a separate account. This is so weird. But then Jack Effel I can't find anymore. I, I don't even know what to say about that. But, he, but I actually heard him last year at the main event saying he left Twitter. Like that he just stopped using it. And sure enough he had. Like he, had to, he hadn't touched it for like six months when I had heard him say that. The... the, the, the Tournament director of the World Series of Poker is not reachable on Twitter because he couldn't take it there. So, like, uh, he, he has a problem with dealing with people. And he should work on that. And this is an example of that. Yeah, because it wasn't just what he said. It was his embodied language. His, you know, he just was, Yeah, I don't know. And I wouldn't even turn off. I wouldn't and even he was have, 100% of the right, too. Yeah, like. I would, and I would not even have minded if he... If he Gave Dario a hard time for like only complaining about this after the tens were seen versus the queens. I, if he said that, I'd be fine with it. If he's like, hey, how come you didn't complain before? You should have said something. We would have had the same ruling, but why would you have said this only after you see the cards? Like that would be fine. But but to say if you're calling seventeen, you're calling twenty-two. So unapologetically, and as he said, the body language, it was really like a big fu to him, and I, I thought that was a crappy form and. The, the others at the table who were Dario's opponents thought it was crappy for him. It wasn't just Dario spoke up. The, the other people at the table are bashing Jack over this. So that was, that was pretty bad. And anyone saying Jack didn't mean that or is taken out of context, no, it wasn't. That's what he meant. That, that's what he meant. And, it, and it's so not true. You're calling 17, you're calling 22. Now, here's an alternate standpoint, an alternate opinion from uh, Jay Jammy, longtime member on the site and listeners to the show. He said, to me, it looks like Jack has had a long day, is tired and a bit cranky. He looks like every floor man at Commerce. If you catch them at the beginning of their shift, they're pretty cool, but after about six hours on the floor, you don't want to go hear them. They aren't assholes. They're just reacting to the stress of their job. But but I don't think Jack was out there like with all the floor men. I think he was just called over 
and it's his job to not say things like this. And it's it's being broadcast too. I mean, it's a very bad look, very bad look. And this is the main. This is you know, fourteen people left at the main event, whatever it was. It's not just another day of commerce. Yeah, right. It's not just it's not just some cash game of commerce exactly. Uh, but I, I agree with the rule. I agree that if you say call, there, there's no way out of it. They can't just screw the person who goes all in because the dealer makes a mistake. The person who goes all in, if they get called they, by a bigger stack, they should expect to double up if they win. That's the, You can't screw them because the dealer miscounts something. That's not the other player's fault. You have to realize that uh, someone's going to get screwed here, and it has to be the one who actively made the decision to call by not counting properly, even if they you know they let the dealer count. You just got to make sure, and I've made sure. By the way, I've asked the dealer for account. The dealer say something, and if if it looks a little wrong to me, I will look again. Are you sure about that? Sometimes I feel like kind of an asshole for stalling the action, but I, I want to make sure because I know if I say call and and, and it's the dealer counted wrong, I, I always assumed it would just be tough luck on me. So you, you have to make sure. And Daria made a little mistake by not making sure, and it's unfortunate. It wasn't on purpose. I know the dealer just made a mistake, but. Jack has to be apologetic about that. Say, I'm so sorry this happened. With This is a fluke that it would have happened like this. and It's unfortunate. There's nothing we can do at this point. That's what the rule says. He should, just be polite about it. Just be politely tell him that that's the way it stands, and that's it. And if Dario doesn't like it, then too bad. Then at least you've adhered to your own rules, and you've handled it respect, respectfully, and that's it. And then no one will be talking about it. Except maybe the mistake. I mean, yeah, they'd be talking about the mistake, but they... They wouldn't be criticizing Jack for making a correct ruling. Or at least no one smart would be. But yeah, definitely he meant it, and that was pretty bad. Final World Series topic. Before we get on to the, all the other stuff, we got a lot of other stuff. Final World Series topic is the fold heard around the world. Alex Livingston, who ended up finishing third, back when there were six left, he folded pocket queens. How does that happen? How does someone fold pocket queen six-handed? And it was not even folded to an all-in. It was folded to a three-bet. And people were like, wow, how can you do that? Shouldn't pocket queens be golden six-handed in the main event? How, how can well, you... the draft, wasn't it two tables of six at that point? I didn't think they were down to six when he did that, was it? No, no, it was actually six. It was actually six. Hmm. Yeah. So th- this is this is what happened. Um, Alex Livingston opened with a raise under the gun. Darius Sammartino, who had eight, and Alex Livingston had queens under the gun. Darius Sammartino, in the cutoff, had pocket eights. And Gary Gates, who was the second ship leader at the time, and had both of them covered, and Livingston had uh, Sammartino covered. Gates was in the big blind, and he made a, uh, a large three-bet with pocket tens. So here were the, here were the stacks involved. I, I have a screenshot of it. The, screen, the, the stacks involved coming into the hand of these, of these players. There's only six people left. Ensign, San Martino, Maz, Kai, Gates, and Livingston. That's it. Uh, of the three who were involved in this hand, San Martino had $29 million, Gates had $170 million, Livingston had $50 million. The 
initial raise by Livingston was uh, $2.8 million. So uh, Livingston raised, San Martino flatted with the eights in the cutoff, and then Gates three bet to uh, 13 point something million. I can't see the screenshot clearly enough. It's 13 point something million from the big blind. So Livingston has to call eh, close to 11 million. And he has 50 total. Maybe 47 total now. He put opened with two. Two point something. Well, so look at the spot he's in here. If Livingston calls, if Livingston has 50. If Livingston's short, let's say Livingston has 30, then you think he's got to just shove it in. Okay? Um, Livingston has 50 here. So, if he just calls this, let's assume San Martino even just folds, okay? Sam, remember, San Martino just, uh, with the second shorter stack on the table, flatted in the cutoff, which really looks like a pocket pair, which it was. It was eight. So, you you can kind of reasonably, reasonably believe that if you call this, that San Martino's going to fold. But the question is, what does Gates have? So, if you just flat this, this three bet to thirteen point something, and then San Martino's uh, two point whatever is already in plus the blinds and annies, you're going to have a pot that's already thirty million or so before the flop. And what he's going to have left at that point is th- about thirty-seven. So at that point, he's, he's basically pot committed, unless an ace flops, an ace or king flops, then maybe he can let it go. But then still, you have to wonder: Am I being run off by a, by a lower pair? Like 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 let's say let's say he just calls, and then an ace seven three is the flop, and then Gates continuation bets. Well, how does he know this is not being continuation bet when uh, when Gates has uh, jacks or tens? So there's that problem too. But there's the other problem that what what if the board comes low? What if the board's nine six two, and Gates goes all in? Well, you got to call, right? Very hard to fold at that point. So really, the only way you're going to fold here, if you just flat, is if an ace flops or if a king flops, and then you might even be folding the best hand. So really, given the stack sizes here, Livingston really only has two choices. He can either go all in, or he can fold. Because calling, all he's going to do is... Uh, um, He's going to either cost himself if he flops ahead or uh, possibly get run off if, 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 if he flops ahead or call off if he flops behind. So let's say if he's against King's Race and a low flop, he's calling anyway. Let's say he's against Ace King and it's a low flop. Well, the person may just check fold to him at that point. So if, if, if you really want to get it in, it, if, if you want to play this hand, given how much is already going to be in Pre-flop, it's going to be almost equivalent to how much you have left behind post-flop. You've got to just put it in at this point against what's probably one opponent. And even if Sam Martino... What was it, Trump? 800K between 5th and 6th? Uh, let me look that up again, yeah. I, I just had it There's up. a pretty significant number. Right, okay, right. So, I think, yeah, I yeah, kind yeah, of so, agreed with so, that. So 6th so, so, so is 1.85 million, 5th is 2.2 million, 4th is 3 million, 3rd is 4 million. 
So it's it's a lot of money difference here. And the thing is here, you've got so first he's got to decide: is it all interfold? Calling is a terrible play here. You you can't call here. You've you've got to either all interfold, and if it feels weird to, to possibly fold this. But you ha- it has to be all interfold because of the fact that you're not going to be able to find a fold if it's a low flop. So if that's the case, then, then you might as well just try to make the ace-king pay if it's not going to hit. You don't want the ace-king to get out cheap if it doesn't hit and then, uh, and then get the money if it does hit. Or, and then possibly get run off if they, they can't even beat you if there's an ace or king in the flop. So, so that's why you, it really is all interfold here. If, now, if he had a lot more chips than $50 million, then then he could just call because... Then uh, Gates would would uh, have to play the hand differently post flop, and then he does have enough chips to fold. Let's let's say he has 120 million. Then if Gates goes all in, yeah, on a low flop, then he probably can fold. But with 50 million, he doesn't have enough if he calls to fold any flop that's that's uh, jacks jack higher lower. If he has like thirty million, then he has to just go all in because he's he's too short, and you're you're thrilled to see queens at that point. And if you're up against kings races, so be it. Fifty million, you have the problem with fifty million. It's a very hard stack to have in this spot because he has too much to just feel like he has to put it in at this point, and and damn the pay jumps that are pretty big from six to six to going up from there. So to just put it all in with with queens isn't that easy when you have as much as fifty million. And you're currently uh, third in chips at the table. Keep in mind that uh, Maz, uh, Kai, and San Martino were all substantially less than him. Maz had 37, Kai had 24, San Martino had 29. So he's third in chips, a distant third. Ensign and Gates have him crushed in chips, but but he's a, but he is third in chips with six left. So does he really want to shove it in with Queens and either be racing or or losing if he gets called? And that's the other problem. The other problem was so, that, so you got to decide: do you shove or, or fold? If you shove, there's another problem. You're not automatically getting a snap call. If Gates has something like nines, tens, ace, queen, maybe even ace, king, he might lay it down. Let's, let's even say he calls ace, king. Let's say he calls ace, king, but but he may not call nines, tens, jacks. He may he may lay it down. The hands you're crushing will probably lay down if you fold. Which means if you get called, you're probably against ace-king, aces, or kings. None of which are, are a great situation for you. Now, you may say, well, yeah, I understand aces and kings, but why doesn't he want ace-king? He's ahead. Well, because it's with six-handed in the main event, Queens has a 52% chance of winning. And you really don't want to put in your chips when you're not short-stacked in that spot. Yeah, Andy's ahead of the three other players, right. so... He's in the upper threshold, and Gates was running so well at that point, too. So, yeah. I think it was right after that he just started. I don't know what the fuck he was doing. <laughs> so, so it, it's he, he's thinking to himself, I'm ahead of three of the other six people here. I, If I go all in, I'm probably only getting called by either a better hand or a hand that's racing with me. Either a hand that's crushing me or a hand racing with me. So at best, I'm, 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 if I get called, I'm going to be racing off for my tournament life with three people behind me with these gigantic pay jumps. And I can't just call because that's the wrong play here for the reason I just explained. So he said, okay, I'm going to fold. 
And it feels weird. It feels weird just because of a three, a single three bet that he's got to lay down the queen six-handed. It feels weird. I agree it feels weird. It makes him look like a huge nit. To somebody even made him look like a scared fish. But it all makes sense to me. Now, let's say he shoved with the queens. Number one, in this case, it would have been the right play given the cards everyone had. He had the best hand by far. And number two, um, there really are only two hands that have him crushed here, and it's only six-handed. And number three, if he does double here, then uh, then he's in much better shape to win the whole thing. So would I say a shove is bad here? No. If he shoved it all in, I wouldn't say Livingston's a fish. He did something stupid. He shouldn't have shoved. This was a very tough spot given $50 million. If he has $30 million, the shove is obvious. If he has $100 million, the shove is probably stupid. If he's got $50 million, it's tough. It's very tough. So he chose to fold, which I think I would have done in that spot, too. The very hard thing to do. And it's so funny, I'm like on Real Grinders reading people's critiques, and most people were against that Queen's fold there. And it's so funny, you look up these people, none of them have like any tournament results. If they do, they've won like like a daily for a few hundred bucks. Like These, these are players who have no kind of success in poker. Recreational players. and they, This is a guy, this Livingston... Not only did he finish third at this main event, he finished like 13th at another main event this decade. This guy had like a 13th and a third in the main event this decade. And and, and they're saying that they know better than he does. <laughs> well, right, because they can see the cards. Right, they, they can see the cards. Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. of course. Oh, you, it's an easy call. Yeah, of course you can see if Gates has 10s, the queen should be shoving. Like, of course you see that. Of course the, the fold looks stupid when you see all the cards. But, uh... When you can't see all the cards and really think about this critically, you go, yeah, the fold is very reasonable. And in fact, I think it's a slightly better play. I, th- I think a shove is reasonable there too, but uh, a-, a fold is is also reasonable. And in fact, I think it's the better play of the t- uh, given everything that we just talked about here. And well, especially because he's going up of one, you know, going against one of two people at the table that can bust him. Yeah. Exactly. If, if he was against one of the other short stacks, yeah, if we put it in because you, you, the worst he's going to do is uh, he, he'll still be alive. He'll, he won't be busted, and then uh, they, they they can't knock you out. Here, here, there's somebody that can knock him out, and and he doesn't want to race with this person at this point. He wants to wait, wait for a better spot with that, especially with three shorter stacks. They may put it in more desperately. You want to pick them off. Uh, you, you do not want to just race at this point with, with three shorter stacks than you six-handed in the main event. Anyone who says they wouldn't have done that or they, they would have been playing to win, they would have put it in, they would have had the balls. Okay. Yeah, when you're actually there then and you do that, then we can talk about it. If, if you've never played for more than a few hundred dollars, you can't, you can't say that. And uh, But this wasn't even like about just being scared of pay jumps. This was really thinking about your stack versus everybody else's stack. That's that's a big reason also why you don't put it in. It was just a really tough spot with the stack Livingston had. I have no problem with that play. And if you look at it critically, if you look at what his choices really were, if you look at the call just doesn't make any sense and it has to be shove or fold, if you look at really what the pay jumps are and it's not just trivial to get back here to the main event final table, then it all makes sense. And I don't blame him, and I think that was totally fine. Okay, that's the end of my main event coverage. Hopefully next year I can have another deep run. If not, 
At least I'm reminded again why I buy in every year. It's like I got a reminder. Oh yeah, that's that, that's why I put ten thousand into this every year. Okay, like I thought of that as a fly. I'm like, oh yeah, that's that. So that's why I've been doing this. Okay, I, I I thought there was a reason for this. Like not only was, of course, I wasn't regretting entering this year when I was getting deep, but I was like feeling stupid for even doubting myself for continuing to enter just because I had a bad run of day threes, in, in for most of this decade. But I also think with the tweaks I did help, and I think my chance of doing well next year is decent. I mean, do, do I think there's a good chance I'm going to beat this year's result? No. The, the chances are I won't, but uh, I'm going to try. And I, But I do think there's a better chance of me cashing next year than uh, in those other years where I didn't cash. Because uh, I kind of you know, came up with some new things which, which worked better this time. And that's all I'm going to say. Was it's a, a lot of people listen to this show. I don't want to give away things and have them be at my table. All right. So. Oh, and one, one other thing, Druff, when we were doing the hats, I did try to get you to put the URL on the back to get the hat around the, uh, around the, the, um, that's true. The I little round part. That's true. I did. If I didn't even mention this, I appeared Would on ESPN. Recall? I appeared on ESPN briefly at the TV table when Tom Canuli was there and when, uh, Josh Arie was there. And, uh, I, I wish one hand got on TV where I won with Queen High in a huge pot where, Arya ran off everybody except for me when I had a straight draw, and then he couldn't. He actually tweeted about this hand. He said that he couldn't fire the third bullet. He's officially old, and that's what happened. He just he he fired it at twice. I had a, str- a straight draw. I called twice, and he he checked the river. I checked. I, we were the only two left, and my queen jack high beat his queen nine high. So I won a big pot with queen high. That did. That was at the TV table, but it wasn't on TV. But, uh, yeah, they, they mainly showed the back of my head, and uh, there was no poker fraud alert written on the back, unfortunately. So uh, that is uh, unfortunate. But uh, I looked at some of the screenshots of me being on TV, and it was funny. I, I looked old in these screenshots because it was it was me, Tom Canuli, and one other guy there in his 20s. So, like, next to the, it's kind of like when an average weight person stands next to two skinny people. He looks huge. It's kind of like that, except age-wise. Right? I looked old sitting next to the two twenty-something-year-olds at the table. Like I, I see these screenshots. I'm like, ah, I look old. They go, oh, that's why I look old because these guys are in their twenties next to me. Okay, that's uh, yeah, but it wasn't that exciting. If you didn't see me on ESPN, it, it, there wasn't a lot to see. There was uh, no hands you saw me playing. Like he's, they'd go by and see, you'd see cards in front of me, but uh, like they didn't show me like playing out of hand and. Mostly you saw the back of me. There were brief glimpses of my face. But it wasn't a lot of TV time. And no, I didn't get anything for Oh, it. and drop one other thing. Sorry, I know we got to move on. But the guy from Chicago with the Cubs hat, he was the only one that didn't have any patch. That didn't have a patch of anything. Yeah. Do you think he got offered something and turned it down or the money's just not there? That's a good question. I, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. That's true. I didn't get offered anything for it as far as I got, but uh, I didn't either in 2010 when there was a lot more money until we passed the, the until we until like 120 or so, and then uh, the only thing I had been offered prior to that is to wear a Poker Stars patch for no money and only get paid if I get on TV, and I gave them the middle finger. This was back in, 10, in 2010, not this year. 
And then uh, I, I ended up with a much better deal when I got down to the final 120, and I was one of only two people not patched. So we had a lot more power at that point. The other person who wasn't patched was Jason Senti, who made the final table, finished ninth that year. And uh, we were both the smart ones to say, no, we're not going to wear anything for free. So we good things came to those who waited. I got $7,500 for basically doing nothing. I busted that same. I busted very shortly after getting patched. Okay, so moving on. That's a good question, the trader risk. I really do wonder about that. If it's just like nobody offered him anything, or if he's offered crap, and yeah, it's weird that he he wasn't patched to be at the final table. On the way home, I did not have cash on me. I, I thought about the various mugging stories, and I said, you know what? I, I don't want to drive with $59,000 in my car. I just, I don't want to do it. Especially if it's so public that I cashed 59000 like, you know, just in case. I, I don't need to carry $59,000 home. So I, I, I took it in a check, and I even tweeted about that, half-jokingly. I, I said, attention muggers, pick a different victim. I, took, I just took my fifty nine k as a check. But it wasn't a total joke. It was also really letting the muggers know I took it as a check. <laughs> so... Uh, so I, I didn't have that to worry about, but I, I, I'm driving home. I'm mostly relaxed. I'm still thinking about like, oh, you know, what if I made it further? But I'm thinking, no, 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 don't think that way. You got 59,000. You've stretched it out. You did well. Be happy. I'm mostly in a good mood driving. And I wasn't even driving that fast. Um, between Vegas and the state line, which is known as Prim, some people think it's called State Line Nevada. It's not. State Line Nevada is actually by Tahoe. This, in fact, it is Tahoe, State Line Nevada. But Prim Nevada is the state line south of Vegas. But between Prim and Vegas, there's a lot of Nevada, Nevada Highway Patrol, some of whom use laser. So you just got to watch out. You shouldn't speed too much there. It's only 40 miles. So I, I never speed too much. Uh, I... A lot of people do, but uh, so you're kind of in a funny spot. If you drive the speed limit, they're like zooming by you and it feels uncomfortable. So usually I drive like around high 70s, low 80s around there. And this particular day I was driving about 78 to 80. And uh, But there's not going to be a speeding story, don't worry. And I see up ahead flashing lights on the side of the road. And I think to myself, okay, well, someone got pulled over. Not a surprise. Some people get emboldened to still speed by when someone's pulled over, figuring that the cop's busy with the first person. But that's not the right way to think about it because for all you know, the cop could be done and just about to leave. Or there could be a second cop there you can't really see that well so who, can, who can jump out and get you. So basically, whenever you go by, don't just assume always busy with this guy. I might as well keep speeding. So I see this about a half mile away. You know, we're, It's 3:30 p- around 3.30 p.m., bright sun. Wide open desert, very easy to see. At least half a mile away, I see the flashing lights. So I slow down. I slow down to the speed limit, 70. Well, others have not slowed down yet. I don't know if they can't see the, sp- the flashing lights or they feel they're not close enough to worry about it. Whatever it is, people are just zooming by me. And I think, okay, well, this isn't good. Now, it's a three-lane highway at this point. I was in the center lane, and I was about kind of like average speed of the traffic, there were people going faster than me. There were some people going slower. But eh, I, I was kind of going with the speed of traffic, maybe a little slower, but uh, kind of close to average speed before I slowed down when I was like 78 to 80. 
when I slowed down to 70, I was way slower than everybody else. And they're all like zooming by me. So I go, okay, well, I don't want to be in the center lane anymore. Because the center lane, the, the traffic is moving at around 80. And I, I don't want to be the guy who's going 70. That's a big difference. And it's not safe. I thought about my dad witnessed a very gruesome accident about five years ago. I think it's about five years ago. He was on the 15. And a car that was going fast tried to get around a car ahead of him that was going slower and clipped that car. And the car spun out, the one that got clipped, slammed into the center divider, and the driver died. Not the one who was trying to speed by, but the one who was going slower died because a car clipped him from behind that was trying to get by him. I thought of that. And it is just not safe to be in a lane where everybody is traveling faster than you are. Because what happens, they, they come up on you and they try to get around you or you know sometimes if they don't see you in time, they can rear-end you. It's just, it's just not safe to be significantly slower than the the most of the traffic in your lane. So if you are slower, you need to get to the right lane. And that's a, a known fact about highway driving that I've known since I first got licensed back in 1988. So that was my thought. Okay, I'm going 70. People are still going fast. People haven't slowed down like I thought they might because we're getting closer to the cop there. I guess we're still far enough away to where people are not uh, not doing it yet. Or maybe they're, <laughs> they're just stupid. They're just going to zoom by. Whatever it is, they're not slowing down. I, I have slowed down. Where am I going? The right lane. So I moved to the right lane and held around 70. I passed by the scene of the stopped vehicle and the cop there, and I, I see a few things. First of all, the there are two cop cars there. Like, hmm, that's weird. Why are there two cop cars? I wonder if this is more major than I thought it was. And uh, there's nobody on the driver's side of any of the vehicles that are stopped, which will be important in a second. Everybody who there's, there's one cop who looks like he's out of his car, but he's way off on the side, nowhere near the lane where I'm driving. I take a look at my speed again, make sure it's still around 70. I was passed by, thought, okay, I wonder what that was, and then boom, one of the two cops there that was with that car jumps out, speeds up, gets right behind me, turns his lights on, and pulls me over. And I'm like, what the fuck did I do? I knew I was going around 70. I was not on my phone. I was not driving erratically. There's nothing wrong with my car. Why could they possibly be pulling me over? So I, I usually don't ask. Usually when I get pulled over, I know why. Like if I'm speeding and I get pulled over for speeding, I know I was speeding and I let them tell me. I don't ever say anything. This time I was really, really perplexed. Why was I being pulled over? So the guy asked for license registration. I said, yeah, I'm getting it. Uh, can you please uh, let me know why you pulled me over? He said, I'll tell you after I see your license registration. So I said, okay. Handed it to him. He said, I pulled you over because you violated the move over law, which has been a law in uh, Nevada for... I forgot what he said. Uh, something like 10 years. The move-over law. I'd never heard of that before. Trader Ruski, have you heard of the move-over law? 
I have not. Okay. Now, when I describe it, you can tell me again if you've heard of this. The move-over law, which does exist in both California and Nevada, but I had never heard of, is that you are not allowed to drive in the right lane if there are emergency vehicles of any type stopped on the right shoulder unless you slow down substantially below the speed limit. The officer told me I was clocked at 69, which is one mile below the speed limit. And the officer acknowledged the following. I was going 69, but which is below the speed limit. He acknowledged that you know, I was not committing any other violation. I was not on my phone. I was not driving erratically. There was nothing wrong with my car. That aside from being in that right lane, I was not breaking any traffic laws. And I verified that with him, he, and he agreed. But I was violating the move-over law. He explained the move-over law is in place because there were a number of deaths and serious injuries of emergency workers on the highway, mainly police, but sometimes also uh, ambulance drivers or basically any emergency vehicles that are on the side of the road where people are passing by in the right lane and uh, for whatever reason veer off or lose control of their vehicle and slam into the police or other emergency workers on the side of the road and kill them or or severely injure them. So the move-over law was created uh, in most states during the 2000s. Some states don't have it, but uh, the ones that do mainly put it in kind of like the late 2000s, around 2007. And uh, this law requires that you either slow significantly less than the speed limit or you get out of the right lane. uh, So you have to do one of those two things. Since I was in the right lane and did not slow significantly less than the speed limit, I was at the speed limit. I was one mile an hour less, which is basically the speed limit. That was a violation of the move-over law. Now, according to the letter of the law, he is correct. That law does exist in Nevada. I looked it up. And everything he said that I was doing was true. I was driving 69. I was in the right lane. I didn't make an attempt to move over. But everything I just said was true, too. I was not speeding. I was not on my phone. I was not distracted in any way. I was not driving erratically. I was not veering out of my lane. There's nothing wrong with my car. So, the first question is, should I have known about the move-over law? Even if it's a law in the books. When I learned to drive and got licensed in 1988, it was not a law in the books. Ten years later, in 1998, it was not a law in the books in either California or Nevada. In 2008, 20 years after I got licensed, it had just barely been a law in the books. So when new laws are put on the books regarding traffic, they can't keep it a secret because drivers can only follow the laws they know about. So the only way a law should be enforced to where – if they want to give warnings and and remind people of the law they may not know about, that's fine – but – To give moving violation tickets, they should only ticket people for laws that the public generally knows. Now, let me tell you about a new law, new at the time, not new anymore, that was very well publicized. That was the seatbelt law. In the early 90s, a lot of states passed seatbelt laws, including California, that wearing your seatbelt is mandatory and get ticketed for not doing so. I have gotten seatbelt tickets before, but I will tell you, every time I've gotten a seatbelt ticket, I was aware it was a law and just chose not to follow it. 
I always wear my seatbelt now, by the way. But uh, when I've gotten seatbelt tickets, I knowingly violated the law and, and never had the attitude of, what? I didn't know about this. Like, I, I knew. And everybody knew. And at the time they passed the law, it was very, very public. And everyone knew about it. And they even put up uh, billboards reminding people of it. It was, it was very, very clear. And they informed everybody very well about the seatbelt laws to where if you were not wearing your seatbelt, you knew you were violating the law. With this, I didn't know about this. Now now that I've further described it, Trader Ruski, had, had you heard that it was illegal to, to do what I had done, or did you not know that? You know, I didn't. I mean, I knew if some somebody was pulled over, or even if, like, a bicycle's riding, you're supposed to get over half a lane or something. Was it a three-lane highway at three, that point or two lanes? Three lanes. Oh. But the I'm not asking. So let me be clear here. I'm not asking. No, is it a good? I did not know you could get a ticket. Right. right. That's what I was asking. Sure. Exactly. So so it's a difference between knowing that it's polite to do so or a little safer to do so, and actually it being a hard law where they're pulling people over and giving them tickets just for that. It's a huge difference because you get a moving violation on your record. It has all kinds of consequences: insurance consequences, license consequences. Um, of course, uh, monetary consequences. It actually give people moving violation tickets over this. People have to know really well that it's actually the full law, not that it's a suggestion, not that it's a little safer, not that it's, it's a polite thing to do. And so here's a, a question. I posted this in the forum, and the forum, uh, people are really against me on this, even though a few other people came out on the forum and said they got the identical tickets in, in other places in the country and also didn't know about it. So it's not like it's just me. And the trader Risky, he didn't know it was a law either. A lot of people did not know it was a law. I asked several of my friends, and I said, do you do – you, are you familiar with this law? And they said, no. Now, why was I in the right lane? Well, let's think about it again. I wasn't in the right lane to be an asshole who, who was you know, happy with scaring the cops as I go by too close. That wasn't why I was there. I wasn't there because I was insensitive. I was there because I thought that was the safest place to be because I was slower at that point than the rest of traffic. And it is definitely dangerous to be significantly slower than the traffic in your lane, which the center lane was driving a lot faster than 70 when I moved over. So I figured, okay, I'm a slower car now. I'm going to get in the right lane where the slower cars belong. I'm going to watch the way I drive. I I, I never just veer out of my lane. That's not me. I'm going to be very careful as I go by. I'm not going to hit anybody. Like I, 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 I drove very safely. And I felt, and I still feel, that it was safer for me to pass by in the right lane as an alert driver than it was for me to stay in the center lane and have an accident possibly occur from people coming up behind me fast and trying to weave around me. I still feel that safer. Is there a small chance that maybe something could have happened right at the moment as I was passing them, like a tire blowout or I go over a huge pothole or or, uh, or, or something else happens to my car and it, it forces me over to the right and it slams into the stopped cars? Yeah. But there's always dangers when you're driving. There's always dangers stopped on the side of the road. Uh, things could have happened in the center lane, too. If, if my tire blew out, I could have slammed into the car uh, to the side of me. So that's, that's, you can't really use that logic. So who gets? So let's think about who gets hit. Or not who gets hit. Who hits the, the cops out on the side of the road? Who hits them? Now, before I go on, I should also state one more thing. The Nevada Highway Patrol trooper told me that Nevada Highway Patrol policy is that they always stand on the passenger side of the car when they're doing stops. 
So this guy wasn't even saying, hey, we're on the driver's side. You could easily hit us. He conceded to me that they're never on the driver's side, that they're always on the passenger side for their own safety. He told me this. This is also true. So people were saying, oh, you you could have easily hit the cops when they were uh, on the driver's side. No, I couldn't have. Nevada Highway Patrol is never on the driver's side by policy. So that you take that out of the equation. It, it can't be. They're never on the driver's side. So who hits these cars on the side of the road? Do you think the guy going by at 69 miles per hour in a 70 zone, who's fully alert, who is not on his phone, who's not texting, who's not doing other things in broad daylight, you think that person's the one who's going to hit the cops on the side? No, just about never. The ones who are hitting the cops on the side are the ones who are drunk, the ones who are tired, the ones who are texting. Those are the ones who hit the cops on the side of the road. Do you think those people, the drunks, the distracted, the tired, are going to be the ones who go, oh, wait a minute, it's the law to be not be in the right lane. I better slide over one. They're not going to think of that if they're in any of those states. If they're drunk, exhausted, or distracted, they would stay in the right lane because they wouldn't be thinking. So the ones who really are the danger, the ones who are causing those accidents, are ones who are not going to be deterred by this law. The only ones who are going to move over are the ones who are not going to be a danger anyway, and that's why this law is so stupid. Now, you may say, oh, come on, Truff, you're just making these things up. You're just, this is a, like, this is your opinion. No. There have been many like me who have questioned these laws after hearing about them that, while well-intentioned, are probably not effective in actually saving lives. So there have been many attempts to find out from law enforcement in many states, has this improved anything? Because these laws have existed in many states for over a decade, including California, including Nevada, so they should have a lot of data by now. So I said, can can you please present us the data of how many of these officers that were hit on the side of the road, how many were hit before this law and how many have been hit since this law? Uh, no, no, we're not releasing that. That data can't be found. They won't release it. Now, what do you think that is? You, th- you think if this law was a wild success that brought down officer deaths on the side of the road, do you think they'd be hiding that info? No, of course not. They're hiding the info because the law hasn't helped. And the law hasn't helped for the exact reason I told you. Because the ones who move over are the ones who aren't going to hit them anyway. And the ones who don't move over are the ones who hit them. The ones who are, ne- who are not going to move over whether there's a law there or not are the ones that are hitting them. So this law does not deter anyone who's going to be a danger from being in that right lane. It is similar to the red light cameras that popped up in some places starting in the 90s. You know, that's cameras that take a picture of you and write, it, write you an automatic ticket if you go through a red light. And originally when these went up, they were trumpeted as a safety device. Well, we're, we're going to catch those who run red lights, give them tickets, and that's going to bring down the number of red light runnings that go on because there's this many accidents per year from people running red lights and this many deaths per year and this many major injuries per year from this. And this is all going to go down now once we have these cameras. What's the problem with that? On the surface, it sounds great. In fact, you shouldn't even worry about those cameras if you don't go through red lights, right? Well, once you think about it, you realize how flawed the whole thing was. 
Because who really causes bad accidents by running red lights? Is it the guy who's trying to make it because the light is yellow and maybe just misses it by a second? No, because that guy doesn't hit anybody because once a light turns red, it still takes a few seconds before it goes green on the other side, and it takes a few more seconds for those cars to start moving. So if a car squeezes through the intersection just as the light turns red, he's not going to hit anybody. So when are the red light running accidents occurring? Well, when someone just blatantly goes through a red light that's been red for a long time. Someone who's drunk, someone who's on drugs, someone who's really tired, someone who's very distracted, someone who's running from the police. That's when you have those bad collisions of someone just running a red light. What you don't have are collisions from running the red light when it's just turning because there's nobody going the other way yet. So the red light cameras don't deter anyone who's drunk or on drugs or running from the police. Those people are going to go through the red light just the same as before. The ones it deters are the ones who aren't causing accidents anyway, the ones who speed up at the yellow and and just barely get through. But the red light cameras were causing accidents. Why? Because everyone would be afraid. They'd see a camera there and go, oh, my God, I got to be so careful now not to accidentally go through a light that's just turning red as it goes from yellow to red. So people see a yellow and they slam the brakes. And guess what happens? They get rear-ended. There was a huge jump in rear-end collisions at intersections where those cameras were installed, and yet there were just as many red light running accidents as there had been before. Oops, these red light cameras caused more accidents and did not prevent the ones they were supposed to prevent. They actually did bad things, not good things. And they did raise a lot of money for the city, though, and the county. That they did do. So they were a money tool. And they were speeding up the... And they were speeding up the yellows. So... That would cause even more confusion because there was a whole study done <laughs> where it was like two sec, you know, it was like, you know, eventually go to like two seconds less. So they'd catch more people. Mm-hmm. And then the driver's reaction time, because they see it turn red all of a sudden, that's what caused even more accidents. Right, right. So there was even more accidents. So some, some cities that had previously allowed them outlawed them. Some of the cities saw through this immediately and said, you know what, it'd be nice to collect this money, but screw it. We think this is a hazard. We don't think this is safe. We're not, we're not going to allow these red light cameras anywhere. Guess what county did that, in fact? Clark County, Nevada, where Las Vegas is. Red light cameras have not ever been allowed in Clark County because they saw it was bullshit and it was causing more accidents than they were preventing. So that's an example of something that seems safe on the surface, seems like a good idea on the surface, and in reality is actually doing harm. Now, this isn't quite as bad, but yes, there have been accidents because of this move-over law. In Ohio, a driver who was aware of the move-over law was on a highway and couldn't get over to the next lane because traffic was moving too fast and there was too much of it. And he was approaching the right lane, saw the emergency vehicles on the shoulder. and was like, oh, no, what do I do? What do I do? I can't pass them or otherwise I'm going to get a ticket. What do I do? What do I do? So he slammed on the brakes, came to a stop. A semi driving behind him was like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm going to rear end this guy. 
tried to move over to the next lane to avoid rear-ending the guy, and a multi-car pileup happened, all because of the move-over law in Ohio. This really happened. Look it up. So don't think this can't cause new accidents, because it did. It already has happened. And that's just one I found. I'm sure there's been a number of them. Um, but I, I really feel this law, while well-intentioned, is not preventing these unfortunate accidents on the side of the road when you have cops stop there where someone hits them. It's terrible this happens. I, I'm not denying that. I'm not denying it's a dangerous job to be a highway patrol officer. I respect them for that. I don't want to see police officers die. I'm not one of these people who hates the police. I don't at all. I, I'm very supportive of the police. But this law is not well-intentioned, it's well-intentioned but it's not well-executed. It's not, uh, it's not a good law. And when I say it's not a good law, any traffic law that's passed for safety should have some kind of safety benefit that's tangible. And if it fails in over a decade to do what it's supposed to do, safety-wise, then the law is a failure and should be taken off the books unless the county and the city and the state enjoy the revenue it's bringing in and then they leave it in for that reason, which is why it's there now. So let's get back to what happened to me. Remember, there were two cops that pulled over that vehicle that I passed. Why were there two? And why was that second cop so ready to jump out and get me? Were they just at the end? Did they uh, not need the second cop there anymore for something that may have been major? Well, I actually, for the first time in my life, I've never called up the superior officer of anyone who's pulled me over. And I've been pulled over a number of times in my life, in my 31 years of driving. I've never once called up the superior of someone who pulled me over, even when the cop's been rude to me in the past. I've still never reported them. This cop wasn't rude to me. It was just very standard as far as that. Once I got pulled over, I, I didn't like the reason. I didn't like the way the whole thing went down. But, but uh, the, the way he behaved during the traffic stop was fine. It was very standard. He wasn't rude. So I wasn't complaining about that cop, but I was complaining about the stop itself. And I thought that it was, it was crap. And uh, I, I wanted to see if they could undo it. So I actually called up to speak to the officer about the stop itself and the reason for the stop. And I was explaining why I was in the right lane. I wanted them to understand everything. Well, it turned out that the superior of the officer who pulled me over was the second cop there, the, the, the one who was doing that traffic stop that I passed. So obviously he wasn't going to be very sympathetic. But he did reveal to me that the guy he pulled over was uh, such a dangerous person, he was pulled over for using his cell phone. <laughs> now, do you think a cell phone violator needed two cops there? So I asked him that. I said, well... If this guy was just using his cell phone while driving, why did you need two officers to pull him over? And he said, well, we didn't. I just pulled him over myself. And then this officer that pulled you over, uh, that he saw me stop there, he decided to come over and check on me and make sure everything was okay. And then uh, when he was done, you just happened to go by and they pulled you over. I don't believe that for a second. I believe it was a trap. I believe this. And, and I read about this on the internet after the fact. Not about Nevada, but I read about other states where they actually set up traps like this, where there are two officers present at a traffic stop, sometimes like this, where the second one comes upon the first one and just stops and waits. And then they wait for the first person to go by in the right lane who doesn't significantly slow down. And then they grab him. So this was a trap. I'm, I'm sure this was a trap. I, I think what the guy told me is half true. I think he did pull over a guy who was a cell phone violator. I think the second officer came upon it after the first pullover, I think I think there was only one cop there at first. The second guy saw a pullover and said, oh, good. I'll stop here and wait for someone to go by in the right lane and grab him. And that's what he did. 
He was already, the second I went by, boom, jumped out and got me. So it was a trap. It was a trap for this. And no warning. I mean, if he gave me a warning, if he, if he said, look, this is the law here. I'm going to put you down in the system. If we pull you over this again, you're getting a ticket. I'd be fine with that. Now I know the law. Now I know not to do it. Now I know it's a, a moving violation, ticketable offense. Yeah, I'm not going to do this again, okay? But I didn't know, and I, I had a very good explanation, and he, and he believed everything I said. He believed, I, I said, did you see the cars are zooming by? Yeah, he said, yeah, he knows. He believed me that the cars are zooming by, that I felt unsafe, that I moved to the right lane, that I was in the right lane for that reason. He saw I was going 69. He acknowledged this was all true. But because I was in the right lane and I was violating the move-over law, that's why he pulled me over. And I think that's BS. I was not a danger in any way. And people say, well, of course you're a danger. You're in the right lane. Zooming by them. No, no. How come in my 31 years of driving I've had no accidents, zero accidents veering out of my lane, ever? All the miles I've driven. Never once have I had an accident where I just veer out of my lane and hit somebody. How come? Am I the luckiest guy alive to drive 31 years and never have veered out of my lane if this is so common? No, because the ones who are hating the cops on the side of the road are the ones who are drunk, distracted, tired, whatever. Not people like me who are fully alert, middle of the day, driving the speed limit, keeping their vehicle straight. And this law is ineffective. People say, well, it's a law. You've got to follow the law. Ignorance is the law is no excuse. Yes, it is. It, when they pass a new traffic law, everybody's ignorant of it until it is publicized. By definition, we are all ignorant of a new law unless we are told about the new law. And they did not publicize this well enough. There's a lot of people who don't know. Some people do. Some people don't. Even the signs that try to tell you about this that are sometimes up in California and Nevada are not clear. It says, move over for stopped emergency vehicles. Okay. What does that mean? Move over. Move over where? Does it mean get out of the whole right lane? Does it mean... uh, you, you can't do it. You're just not allowed to be in that lane or you're going to get a ticket. Does it mean you have to slow down 20 miles per hour less than the speed limit to, to not get the ticket? That's not what that sign says. It says move over for stopped emergency vehicles. That, that sounds like a suggestion. It sounds like it's saying, you know, hey, be, hey, be cool, be polite. Don't don't get in the way of these stopped emergency vehicles. That's what it looks like to me. It doesn't convey that this is a ticketable offense, that they're, they're setting up traps for this and stopping people, and that you, you absolutely can't be in that right lane unless you go so much below the speed limit. And it, it doesn't say all that. It doesn't imply all that. I didn't know. Trader Ruski didn't know. A lot of people don't know. They, they, a lot of people know that, in general, it's, it's good to stay away from them. But, I, again, I wasn't in that right lane to cause a hazard or be a jerk. I was in that right lane because I still felt that was the safest place to be. And that's the truth. And people are questioning me on the forum. Well, why are you in the right lane? We don't believe it. I go, why else would I be in the right lane? What, you think I just went over the right lane to, to be an asshole? I, I, I'm in the right lane because I'm going slower and cars are zooming by faster and I don't want to be in their way, which is the safe way to drive. That's what pisses me off about this ticket. I was trying to be safe. I was trying to do the right thing. Anyway... This ticket, uh, it involves a court that's known to reduce tickets pretty easily to a parking violation, which means it doesn't go on your record and and also sometimes reduce the fine. The problem is it's been hard to get a hold of this court. So I've been trying to call them and get this done. But that's probably the, the result here.
I will probably end up without a movie violation and have to pay some kind of reduced fine, but it's still crap. And to set traps for this is especially bad. And believe me, it's, it's being used for revenue. That's what it's for now. That's why they're doing it this way. Again, I'd have no problem if they pulled me over and warned me, hey, don't do this again, even if it's like a hard warning where they're keeping record of the fact that they warned me. Fine. No problem with that. If if someone was arguing with me, hey, you know, it's it's a better idea to slow down more if you're passing them on if you're on the right lane and you're passing them slow down a lot more than you did. Okay. I will. Not bad advice. But uh Big difference between that and ticketing someone with a moving violation. Pretty bad. Okay. Uh, by the way, if anyone wants to call in and debate me about this, you can. People on the forum love to – on the forum, a lot of people like to just disagree with anything I say. I can say the sky is blue, and I'll, I'll get nine pages of people arguing with me why it's not blue. Like that, that's on the forum. They love to just pick any position I have, and no matter – whether I'm right or wrong, they're going to try to debate me. But, but on the radio, nobody wants to do that they, Because on the forum, it's easier Because they, they can take time to think Before they type out their responses On the radio, you've got to, like, you got to have an answer right away Or you look like a fool But if anybody wants to call and debate me about this, you can 775-372-8355 775-FRAUD55 And believe me, I, I'm not I'm not saying that it doesn't matter That officers die this way or Of course it matters. It sucks that officers die this way. But I don't feel this law is decreasing that. And they're refusing to release any data that would show it is. So I think it's just a bad law. I think it's well-intentioned, but it's a bad law. Okay, let me give you an update on the Smashburger situation since I talked about this on a previous show. If you remember, you can go back and listen to whatever show it was on. I think it was on the July 2nd show. Or July 1st show, whatever it was. Uh, I had an incident at Smashburger where I, I went after an event I played late at night, probably around 2 a.m., where they took three tries to get my burger right. I waited over half an hour while this was happening, and the they were incredibly rude about it. The manager, a, a uh, young uh, white female... Kind of like a, one of those like, ghetto white chicks, what she was. She was fully white, though. She was like a ghetto white chick but she was just as white as I am uh, but uh, she was very nasty and I acting like it was my fault when it clearly wasn't and um, when they screwed up my burger a second time then and that for sure they knew was their fault because I, I heard her very specifically telling them how to make the burger and they still did it wrong uh, she basically snatched the burger out of my hand and ran off and disappeared and then when I tried to ask for a uh, uh, a shake, at least, while I'm waiting for them to make it again. I got a real attitude, and everybody's telling me I'm not getting a shake, and I'm not deserving a shake, and just tough luck on me if it if it takes several times to make the burger. In the meantime, there's a guy recording all this to try to make a viral video out of it. Not not to make fun of me. He was, like, going around the Smash Burger recording different unhappy customers, including me. <laughs> and there was a guy who was standing there who, who uh, hadn't gotten his food for over half an hour and was wondering what the hell's going on. The place is a freaking disaster. And I had remembered from last year, it was also a freaking disaster. I just didn't have any confrontations like this. But it, it was also like super disorganized and everyone, all the employees, they were angry and rude and incompetent. They'll play. I, and Smashburger usually has it together. Smashburger is kind of one of the higher quality burger chains. So I was surprised to see that it was such a disaster. And I, I had assumed it was a franchise out of control because a lot of times franchises uh, 
don't perform up to the standards that uh, the corporation would like it to. Well, I was wrong about that part. It turned out it was a corporate store. And I found this out from speaking to the Rio about this afterwards. And uh, um, my final interaction with that manager was her, was I, I asked her, I mean, she wouldn't give me a shake. After the whole thing that happened, she wouldn't give me a freaking shake. I wasn't asking for a free meal or a free meal next time. Give me a shake. That's all I want. Just, just a shake. It cost them nothing. So I said to her before I left, and they were telling me, take your food and go home. It's right now. What's the problem? That's what it took an extra half an hour. That's the problem. Forget fast food. Anyway, so uh, I, I said, so you're telling me, she says, well, your food's right. You have it now. So take it and leave. And I said, so you're telling me that if it takes three tries and over half an hour to cook my burger, just tough luck on me. And her words back were, yep, tough luck on you. So as you can imagine, that didn't sit very well with me. I, mean, I don't expect the best service at fast food restaurants. I don't expect the highest quality people or I don't expect impeccable service. I understand these people don't make very much money. I understand they don't get trained very much. I understand I'm getting what I'm paying for. I understand this is not fine dining. Even at higher end burger chains, uh, it's still a burger chain. I understand all that. I also don't like getting people fired just because they aren't as polite as I'd hope they'd be. But this was the manager, first of all. Not the general manager of the whole place, but the, the night manager. And boy, was she rude, and boy, was she not handling the situation, and boy, was she nasty about everything. And, and, and the way she acted about me asking for the shake, it was like I was asking for uh, 50% ownership in the place. <laughs> that's the way she was acting. And really nasty to me, and actually telling me it's tough luck, I mean, that's that's not the way anyone who manages anything should be acting towards customers. And knowing the Smash Burger does have some standards, I decided to tell a true and correct version of what happened to the general manager of the place, who, by the way, she didn't want to give me his info. She finally relented and gave gave me a first name, and that was it. When I asked her for the, the phone number to call up and, and speak to him, she says, uh, she's not giving to me. I can Google it. <laughs> just, just out of spite, she wouldn't give it to me. She knew the number. She wouldn't give it to me because she – and not his number, like the, name, the number for the, the location, the Smash Burger location. She wouldn't give me the number. She said, I can Google it if I want it. And refused to give it to me. Anyway, I called him and told the guy the whole story. And uh, he uh, he looked into it. And he called me back. And this is what he told me. Uh, I think I mentioned this in the last show, but there's another update. That's why I'm telling you all this again. He, uh, he, t- he told me he 100% agreed with me that they should have given me the shake, that in fact, if he were there, he would have comped the entire meal after this disaster, but that uh, me asking for a shake was was actually uh, kind of uh, the least that could have been done, and he was shocked that they fought this so hard, but that he checked on it, and yes, that everybody who was there, working there at the time, agreed that they fought me very hard in the shake, and nobody could explain it. Um, That basically my account of what happened, everybody verified is true. So... There was no doubt about it. It wasn't even like my word against theirs. He said yes. After asking around there, after interviewing various employees that were present for this, he said every single thing I told him was true, and it was acknowledged. And, and nobody could explain why the, why everyone was fighting the shake so hard, and, and even they couldn't explain it. Um, 
and that yes, the, the other employees or the the other employees. Yeah, right? the other employees. Yeah, the other employees. Nobody could explain it, and he said the um, that uh, uh, that that just nobody could explain this very well. But they acknowledged that the, the way I reported it happened was true. They acknowledged that the fact that a lot of other people were waiting an insane amount of time was true. That the whole night was a disaster. Like basically everybody acknowledged, yes, this was really happening. So, so uh, anyway. He told me that this location of Smashburger has been a tremendous problem at night for a long time. And that what they did was they fired the previous general manager. I don't know if they fired. He didn't tell me that. That they replaced the general manager with him. That he just came about two weeks prior. And the reason they put him there, this is a corporate location, by the way. This is not a franchise location, which surprised me. Usually corporate locations are much better than franchise locations. This is an exception. This is this is a terrible corporate location. He admitted to me this is one of their worst locations, but only at night. He said it, uh, during the day it's fine, but at night they've had a, a longstanding problem where it's one of their worst locations with the most customer complaints. And, they've, and that uh, the previous general manager wasn't getting it done and that he was put in place to clean this up finally. So he was thrilled to hear this from me. Because you know how it is these days with firing employees. You can't – if you fire someone without just cause, they can sue you, and there's, there's all kinds of crap that can happen. So they really want to have a pretty ironclad case against any employees they fire. So whenever someone makes a complaint, that's evidence that can be used against any employee they take action against. So – he asked me, can you write this up for me? And I knew what that meant. Because I, I've had this a few times before in my life where they ask me, can you write this up for me? And what, what that really means, if you translate, can you write this up for me? What that really means is we're about to fire someone or severely discipline someone. And we want this on record from you, a third party, that this all happened. So this way, if they sue us, we can present this in court. That, that's what they're trying to say. Now, usually I'm happy to do this because uh, – I'm complaining in the first place because some employee was a complete asshole to me and, and, and it, enough to where it made me come back during the, you know, the hours when the, business, the general manager is there and track them down and complain. Obviously, there's a reason I'm complaining. And no, I'm not just complaining to get free food. I wasn't, I wasn't angling for anything free here. I just wanted the general manager to know what was really happening there and, and what I'd been witnessing there since last year. So I said, yeah, sure. So I wrote the whole thing up. Didn't exaggerate. Didn't lie. Didn't uh, – I, I wrote a true and correct version of everything that happened. I even described the guy who uh, who was going around uh, videoing everything. Interestingly enough, and I also put this in my write-up, a guy I had played with at uh, one of the Omaha events at the World Series, a guy named uh, Casey Carroll, who I, I he has some tournament results, but I, I didn't know him before this. He's a tournament pro. Uh, Casey Carroll... It just so happened was one of his best friends was one of the people there at the Smashburger, not an employee, a customer. And one of his friends was one of the guys who was waiting in eternity for food and never getting it, and they wouldn't give him any answers. So what was funny is that Casey's friend had gone to him and said, hey, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe what happened at Smashburger. It was a freaking mess there. I never got my food. I waited an hour. It never came. I finally just left in frustration, and they ended up keeping my money. And uh, I couldn't get the manager to talk to me. It was a freaking disaster. And the manager was arguing with some other guy about getting his order wrong over and over. So, like, Casey had heard the whole story already. And not about me being a jerk, about how terrible that location is. And then Casey's on Twitter, and he reads from me about this. He's like, oh, my God, it's the same thing. So he actually responded to my tweet. And keep in mind, Casey didn't even follow me. He saw somebody else responding to me. 
And Casey responded like, yeah, that was my, bro- my buddy there, and he actually uh, linked his buddy's Twitter handle who this happened to. So I actually put that in the report, too, that uh, you, know, you can find this other guy if you doubt my story. You know, here's his Twitter handle. Here's the, here's the tweet about it. So he took all that, and then he emailed me back and said he'd like me to come down and talk to him. And that he has some, you know, some free certificates for me. But that, that was kind of the excuse to get me down there. But it turned out there was more of a reason why he wanted me to come than to get free certificates. Um, he wanted to talk to me in person about all this. And, and so what he told me was that uh, he reiterated that this has been a horrendous location at night for a long time. And that he's in charge of cleaning this up. And that uh, he thanked me for giving this to him. Because even though they are bringing in an assistant general manager to work nights to kind of take over the whole thing there, that um, this was basically what they needed to take action. That they've been very close to uh, firing someone, but they didn't quite have the smoking gun, and I just handed it to them. So uh, he thanked me for that and told me that... uh, a lot of things are going to be changing there in the next few weeks. Unfortunately, what he told me is it is going to take a few weeks, so by the time things are changing, the World Series will be over. So I didn't get any benefit out of it, and it may not even be back at the Rio next year, the World Series. So I I may never be back at the Rio anyway. But uh, um, needless to say, uh, I have a feeling, you know, he didn't directly tell me that this particular uh, manager, this this girl that I dealt with who told me tough luck and – and, and fought tooth and nail not to give me a shake until he told me to, uh, my food's right, take it and leave. I wasn't told explicitly she's going to be fired, but uh, uh, she's going to be fired. <laughs> Basically, she was a terrible employee. Can somebody put another check in the box? Sorry. Jeff <laughs> got another one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was deserved, though. I, I did a favor for, for all the World Series players that come in the future. Anyway, anyone staying at the Rio that goes to that location late at night, believe me, they're going to have a much better experience at that Smashburger. This guy was brought in by the freaking corporation, which is a big corporation. It's Jollibee. J-O-L-L-I-B-E-E. Look them up. They're a very big corporation that owns Smashburger. They own a lot of things, not just, not just Smashburger. Jollibee was so disgusted by this one location and all the constant complaints they get about that late night shift that they actually replaced the general manager of the location and told him, okay, we're putting you here now, clean this shit up. And then the guy's trying to clean it up and he's like, oh, if only I had the right customer complaints here that can really be the nail in the coffin for some of these bad employees. And look who showed up. They hit the jackpot. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what's funny? You know what's so funny here? I gave that freaking girl one. I gave her an out. I told her before I left. I said, I just just want to tell you. I'm going to come back. I'm going to tell the general manager the whole thing that happened here. But if you just give me this shake, I will walk away. I'll forget this. Nobody will get in trouble. I will tell nobody. And she says, nope. Like like she's paying for it herself. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. And you know... That's why all the other employees there were probably loving it. That's why they all dimed her out so quickly. Because <laughs> if she uses that common sense with you, she's using it with everybody. I'm yeah. all sorts of oh, no, no. I heard her yelling at people and stuff, too. Like, it, it was a very – not that the other employees were great. Like, they were very aggressive and nasty themselves. All, all but one. There's like, there's like, like, there were two there, actually, I like. There were two employees there that were decent uh, that seemed to, like, 
have a, a calm head on their shoulders. The rest of them were like aggressive and nasty too. But uh, but yeah, she was yelling at all of them too. So I, I bet they weren't that sorry to see her go. But uh, right, and sometimes if she was the manager, the, even the ones that were at almost as loud, they chill out. Right, know? right. I've seen that before too in workplace situations where you you cut off the head of the of the bad behavior and everybody else uh, falls into place. So it's just the environment being created. Right, right. Exactly. If you have to work at that level, you can go there. You don't want to have to, but she's doing it. Right, right. And and, and I I think that's what they want to do there. I think that's the the, step number one is they're bringing in that assistant general manager. So it's someone who's already more senior, who's better at this stuff, who's going to take more control. And then second, whatever person works under him, they, they want someone who's not her. And uh, and and I wrote in the email. I said that she shouldn't be managing anything or anyone, and it's true. She shouldn't be. And uh, and it was so. I, I gave. I don't. What I don't understand. I don't. This is what I don't understand of the whole story. I gave her the freaking out. Give me the shake. I won't come back. I, otherwise, I'm coming back tomorrow. I promise you. And 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 she challenged. She's nope. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve a shake. You you're not paying for it. You don't deserve it. You have your food. It's right now. Too bad. Tough luck. Goodbye. Like. I, I mean, I don't get it because she could have gotten out of this. Wait, Ralph, are you the new assistant general manager at uh, Smash Burger? <laughs> Is that what this whole announcement was about? Well, actually, actually uh, had, had another year passed where I didn't cash the main event, I would have been. <laughs> hey, you know, Larry Laffer should move out to Chicago. You can give somebody a recommendation now, Jeff. Get somebody good in there. I mean, he uses like for a job. No, you mean moving from Chicago? Well, right, but I'm saying to take that position on. If he's yeah. looking for somebody competent. Yeah. I, I don't think I want Larry Laffer there either. Probably the same problem with him. No, well, whoever, you know, maybe somebody's <laughs> listening is looking for something. You can recommend. you got a direct line now. That's true. And to say this person can make me happy. If they can make me happy, everybody will be happy. Yeah. I, I I just don't get, I've had this before too where I, I tell the person like I give them an I go look just just please just do like such and such like super simple thing that they can totally do and get in no trouble and in fact this was what's also weird is like the guy's telling me the general manager he's like I don't understand why she fought this so hard because she's she's authorized to do this she's supposed to do this by not doing this she's right. making the mistake it's like she's taking money out of her pocket and putting it in the register if she gives you the same. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but she's actually to- she's supposed to do. It's not even like she won't get in trouble. She's actually supposed to. She gets in trouble for not doing it. So so why it became like a bad. And I'll tell the only thing I can come up with is that she thinks she's queen of the place, and 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 she didn't like that. Uh, you know, she was pissed at me. Somehow she blamed me somewhat for it. Even though the second time they definitely can't blame me because I heard her specifically telling them. But she, you know, this asshole and his plain burger. You know why why can't he just take it the way we make it and fuck him and he's making my life miserable here so so fuck it. i'm not giving him anything for free i don't like him he's not getting anything and, and like and, and it's just i think she just wants to win the battle and she thinks she's queen of the place and there's no boss of her there at the moment and i think some of these people have a hard time registering that even when the customer says hey guess what i'm coming back tomorrow during the day i'm going to report you because the person who's being reporting the person that they're going to be reported to is not there at the moment for some reason they have a very hard time like thinking 12 hours in the future I wouldn't be that way, but like, like if if I were, I'd be kissing the ass of the customer. I'd be going. To, you know, if I know I'm authorized to give that shake, oh, here, take the shake. Thank you. Please don't say anything. Goodbye. <laughs> that's that's what I'd be saying. I wouldn't be fighting the person. That's the wrong person to fight. The guy you know is going to go to the general manager and, and make you look awful. But that's what she did. And I and I don't. Someone said, well, maybe she didn't like her job and she just wanted to get fired. No, I. 
I'm not saying she loved her job. To, so what if she did? What, why do you have to treat other people that way? Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it was, it was and, you know, fucking quit if you don't like your job. Right? She's trying to get fired since she get on insurance, unemployment. I mean, yeah, it's it was it was very strange. Yeah. But anyway, I, I handed them the smoking gun they were looking for, and, and good, you know. And people go, oh, "Why are you taking joy to getting someone fired?" I, if I get a bad employee fired who, who's making people's lives miserable, I've done a good thing. And if she'll be replaced by someone who deserves the job more and will do a better job and treat customers better. And, uh, you know, there's, there's people on unemployment who, 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 people who, who need the money, who need a job really badly that should have a job like that and someone instead of her. And then maybe she'll learn from this. Maybe she'll learn that, uh. Yeah, maybe she'll have a wake up call. Yeah, maybe, maybe she'll learn this, this isn't what you do. You don't, you don't fight someone this hard over giving them a shake when they've waited half an hour for you screwing up the burger over and over. You, you give it to them and, and you treat the customer with respect and then you, you keep your job. It's that simple. And I, and, and, you know, I, I here's something I never do. Like, I don't, if, if employees aren't smiling or super friendly with me, I never report them for that because I, I don't care about that. I shouldn't care about that. Um, people can have bad days. I understand all that. I'm talking about the ones that really battle with me over bullshit like this, and I, I, can't, I can't let it go. I can't let it go. Yeah, and I think, yeah, and I think too, they replaced the general manager. I'm assuming that wasn't her. Yeah, they so did, it wasn't. He yet. probably didn't train them. I mean, he probably didn't hire the right people. And yeah. Tell them what he wants. Yeah, the the, the place know. ran so out of control that finally, like a big corporate, had to go. Wait a minute, here we've got to do something here. That was before I got. In, that was before anything happened with me. They were already in the process of like fixing things. They're like, oh, we only had one, like really, really strong, credible report of mismanagement. And then, up, uh, oh, hey, I'd like to talk to you. I'm I'm Dan Druff of uh, Poker Fraud Alert. Ding, perfect. So, she's gone. Okay. Um, I want to talk about uh, another screw-up, not at fast food and not involving me at all this time. The on the Win Encore in uh, – actually, it's just the Encore, it's, but uh, it's associated with Win, of course. The Encore Boston Harbor, which just opened, very nice property from what I'm hearing. Uh, China Maniac, in fact, has uh, talked to me some in uh, text about it and texted me pictures of the place. And he spends a lot of time there in the poker room. and uh, Apparently, very nice property in the Boston area. That's that's basically where you go if you want to uh, go to a casino or play poker in Boston. Just open on Do June. Do they have decent sized limit games? Drop or is it on the limit? No, no, it, ha- it has limit games. Uh, and okay. and uh, it a lot of people are happy over there that this open, but they have already uh, screwed things up. And uh, something you expect from Caesars, but <laughs> I guess uh, Encore can do it too. They they're already being sued after being open for less than a month, and not by any kind of employees. This is actually being sued. It's a class action suit involving uh, customers. So here's here's what happened. Uh, it's alleged to happen. The Encore Boston Harbor, according to this lawsuit, is claimed to be offering uh, six to five payouts on blackjack, as is very common in Vegas. But apparently, it requires a three-to-two payment on all black checks that are hit in the state of Massachusetts. Apparently, that's against the law. And also, what's really weird is their slot ticket redemption machines. When you go to them, if your slot ticket has an amount of cents on it, so it's like, let's say it's $14.75, it will give you the $14.75. And it will not give you the 75 cents. Known as the uh, the office space and Superman 3 trick. 
where you just steal a, a cent, a pennies away from a lot of people and becomes a lot of money. And apparently that's happening at the, at the Wynn Encore, or at the I'm sorry, at the Encore Boston Harbor, according to this lawsuit that was filed. Now, from what I've been made to understand on the Vegas Casino Talk forum where I posted about this, the change doesn't completely disappear. What happens is uh, it spits out a different ticket, and then you have to know to take that ticket to the cage and get the remainder of your change, which, of course, most people don't do and just throw it away, and that's probably intentional. But uh, the lawsuit actually just says that the players are not instructed how to get their change. So I'm assuming what they just mean is it just kicks out the full dollar value, leaves the change, spits you know, spit something out, and then just uh, it doesn't say go to the cage. You just have to know to do it, and that's what this guy is unhappy about. The, 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 you know, the lawyer is claiming he's wrong here, which I, which I agree. This is it's a ridiculous system. There shouldn't be a, a ticket uh, re- redemption system which then makes you have to go all the way and stand in a long line to get change. That's really disincentivizing collecting that change, most people are going to throw it away. And much like Superman 3 in Office Space, this will add up to a lot of money over time. In this... Right, but draft, but it's still... But they're saying, like, they can put a 20 in and get... It's $13, they have to get $7 change? No, 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 no. Or is it literally pennies? No, no, no. I'm saying if you you bring in a ticket, when when you're redeeming your slot ticket, or from video poker or slots, whatever, and it has an amount on Mm -hmm. it that doesn't end with .00 if it's, you know, .74... $13.74, Thirteen dollars seventy four cents. It'll spit out thirteen dollars, and then and then it'll spit out a separate ticket for O seventy four that you have to bring to the cage. That's what people but are saying. You have to get. Oh, okay, so you're saying, but you're so you're saying you could use the hundred dollar one for the machine, the one that's the dollars. Any, it's, it's, any it's remainder, out. any remainder on your ticket that's under a dollar, cannot be. It just will not spit out coins. You have to actually go to the the, the cage to get the coins. And that's from the automatic machines. Yes, that's what the that's what the lawsuit's uh, claiming, and that's what people are saying is the case uh, on my forum. Unreal. So yeah, Unreal. I, it's, 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 I don't know why they do it like this. Like, there's plenty of machines that spit out change. Like, of course. <laughs> what are they doing? Is that standard? I, I you'd yes. Have to, like, ask for one without that. Yes. You'd have to say, I don't want one that gives you change. <laughs> make me a special one. Right. Make us a custom <laughs> machine that gives us gives people no no coins. We don't want any coins being given. We want to make it as possible. We want to have long lines in our cashier. What, what they want is people to throw that away, and then they just collect. I, I think it really is like a Superman three thing. I think some idiot thought this is yeah. a, a way to make extra money. I, like it really adds up over time. Right. It's true. They, they're, they're not kidding. You can imagine you got all you got all the high rollers in line waiting to go to the cashier. You got all these people with their little seventy nine cent uh, receipt waiting to get the change. Yeah, it's a, uh, it, and you the know, cashier. There's a line around the corner. At the... <laughs> if if Richard Pryor wasn't dead, I would suspect he advised them on these machines. <laughs> So, so anyway, they um, this this is insane. So, so here's here's what the lawsuit says. This is follow, filed by uh, um, an attorney. Actually, I'm not sure what the attorney's name is here, but this it, uh, is filed on behalf of uh, Richard Schuster and uh, on behalf of all others similarly situated. This is a class action lawsuit, a class action complaint and jury demand. Uh, it says, in casino gaming, it is said that the house always wins with the odds so drastically in its favor. It's, it's unfathomable that a casino would intentionally resort 
to cheating so as to increase its statistical edge over the player even more. The Encore Boston Harbor Casino has done just that. The Encore has disregarded Massachusetts law and ignored established rules of the game of blackjack to increase its statistical advantage and lower the lawful payouts to customers. Specifically, Encore has willfully and intentionally paid its customers odds of 6 to 5 when they're dealt to blackjack when Massachusetts law clearly and unambiguously states that a player who's dealt blackjack shall be paid at the odds of 3 to 2. And then they cited that this was uh, in the Rules of Blackjack dated February 11, 2019. Uh, and, it, and then it talks about how they were estimating that customers are losing, uh, if they're averaging a $50 per hand wager at Blackjack and are playing 80 hands per hour, that customers will lose an additional $35.60 per hour because of the 65 payout. And, uh, and it's, as they say, since the... Since there's uh, 20 tables offering this uh, crooked blackjack game at at any given time, and the casino is open 24 hours, uh, and if there's five players per table, the Encore is stealing $85,440 from its customers each day and well in excess of $30 million per year. Now, this is a bit exaggerated because the tables aren't all going to be full 24 hours a day. It's not going to be $50 per hand average for all five players at all 20 tables. So a lot of this is exaggerated, but this always happens in lawsuits. So the guy's just trying to make it sound worse than it is. And, of course, it isn't $30 million because the place has been open for less than a month. So if it's really happening eighty five k a day, which it's not, then uh, this was filed a few weeks into them being open, so it's nowhere near $30 million. But, but but still, I, I agree with the premise of this, provided that the guy's really right that it's illegal to have six to five there. Uh, you haven't been there yet, Jeff, right? No, no, no. It's all the way in, in Boston, so I, I it's only been open in, uh, since June twenty fourth. So so I haven't been there. Uh, now on on Vegas Casino Talk, uh, they said that uh, where was this? No, it's not been there. I read somewhere else that that that's what it is. Someone said that the it is on basically similar talk. So when it says six to five in Massachusetts is actually allowed, but only on one or two deck games. That if it's a six or eight deck shoe, that uh, that's where it's prohibited, and they were still offering that uh, at the win with, with six to five. So that's that's apparently where they were violating it. Where the uh, lawsuit doesn't say that accurately, but it's uh, that apparently is where the violation is occurring, according to someone who uh, has been there, who, who's on Vegas Casino Talk. So. Uh, Anyway, the, the – let me see. Oh, no, no, no. It does say in this. And you know what? Further in the lawsuit, it actually says this. I hadn't seen this before. It says the 6-5 to five blackjack variation of blackjack differs from the traditional blackjack game because it's played with either a single deck or two stack deck of cards. Uh, conversely, a traditional game is played with a few or six or eight decks of cards. Under the 6-5 to five blackjack variation, the players are dealt two cards face down and they're permitted to pick up and evaluate. That's important. Um yeah, I see that they that they're not allowed to uh to do the uh the six to five for uh the six or eight deck shoe is what he's saying here. So yeah. That's uh and then about the slot winnings, it says that uh the ticket redemption machines only pay out whole dollar amounts without change and without instruction how to redeem the ballast. Encore always rounds down, meaning a player will forfeit any amount of the ticket above the dollar amount. All unclaimed funds are retained by Encore. So he he doesn't directly say that they're stealing it, but what you know what the person on my site is reporting is probably correct. That they probably spit out a different ticket that you have to take up front, which almost nobody does. That that's really dirty if you think about it. Just because you can technically show up and and collect your uh, your, your thirteen cents at the cage doesn't mean anyone will. So that really is a Superman three trick. There's no question and. 
I'm sure it was done on purpose this way. Some some genius is like, oh man, you know, this is what we're going to do here. We're, we'll we won't stop them from getting their change, but it's going to be a pain in the ass where nobody's going to want to. So this way, if anybody complains, they'll go, look, you could have gotten your change. You just had to stand in line. And then the excuse they can use is, well, look, we don't have to have these machines in the first place. You could have had to stand in line for the whole thing. So really, it's not any longer. But the difference is once someone has already collected everything but the change, they're very unlikely to go back to just collect the change. And that's what uh, they're really disincentivizing uh, standing in line at that point, and, and people throw away the chains. It's really dirty. So uh, I'm really surprised that they are uh, they are doing both of these things. That they're so stupid to have six to five blackjack games when they should not be having them, according to Massachusetts law, which which they ju- they just wrote these laws. You know, they didn't have. Uh, casinos there before this, so they they just wrote these laws. How, how could they not be familiar with when they can and can't offer six to five? And then this this thing with that non-standard machine not not paying out change is insane. So they, I, I think at the encore they were trying to get uh, a little too clever to extract extra money, and I, I don't know how they thought they'd get away with this. But uh, I, I don't know where this lawsuit's going to go. But uh, this law firm which can be found at uh, GarrickLaw.com. That's G-A-R-I-C-K-L-A-W.com. This is the law offices of Joshua Garrick. And they're based in uh, Reading, Massachusetts. So that's who's uh, the lawyer involved here. And good. I, I, I actually, I always like when lawyers take it to these casinos for these type of things because casinos will act so shady in so many different ways if they can get away with it. And you, you really need lawyers that are willing to just like aggressively go after them. That's that's you really yeah, need because that. the judges and the courts don't understand half of it. Right, right. And so it's, it's like the set of you know. and, and it's very hard for individuals to sue them, especially for small amounts of money. So, and the casinos know this, so so good. Like I, I love when the lawyers just uh, go, ah, uh, 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 you can't do this, and then they, and then they bring these lawsuits, these class action suits. This, this is uh, this is what's needed in the industry to put a stop to this, especially when the the gaming commissions. Uh, don't understand as well or don't want to take the action they should and uh, sometimes it does require things like this so i, I it provided everything this guy's saying is true i haven't been there to see it for myself so i can't say with 100 percent certainty that this law uh what the lawyer here is claiming in his filing is correct but I, i'd have to think it is i have to think that the lawyer would have verified this but uh that's uh, yeah someone said disposition saying in chat you know, the, you know, at Seven Eleven, where they they have that little tray where you can you can leave a penny or take a penny. So we're, we're basically doing the same thing, only we're taking it from a much bigger tray and doing it a couple of million times. Yeah, exactly. That's that's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's that's what they're doing not, here. They're not giving it. But I, I totally, I could totally picture them at the brainstorming session for this. They're like, okay, let's look at this. We don't have to have machines that uh, cash people's tickets. That's a, that's a luxury. That's something we're we're putting there, but we don't have to have. So as long as they can cash our tickets, cash their tickets, then we're in the clear. And we can say that, hey, you could have just brought the whole ticket to us in the first place and gotten everything. You didn't have to use that machine. And if you use the machine, you could bring the change up here and get the remainder. So we're not cheating anybody. And ha, ah, but yet most people are going to throw it away and we're going to make tons of extra money per year. Wow, we're so smart. Like I can totally picture this whole thing. Hmm. Totally, totally picture it. They hired people to stand in line, so people just say fuck. <laughs> <Yeah. to> 
Oh my gosh, that's, that's so stupid that they're doing you know, this. You know, they should have just done it electronically and spat out even money every time. Why did they come up with these denominations that include change? Well, the slot machines, you'll always get these weird change things, but... but yeah, I, I guess. But, but just just do the way you always have. Have it spit out change. What's so hard about that? It's not like that's never been done yeah. before. I mean, or I'll bet they're setting the machine. I mean, I guess, couldn't you make the machine so it always comes out even to the dollar? No, because they have these supposed penny machines where you really oh, run... Oh, they have penny machines and all but, that. But I even they're not real penny machines, you're really running them like 75 credits at once. But, yeah, there's no way to stop the change, yeah, yeah. but... But like they have machines that spit chains. That's the always that's the way it always has been. So why why stop that to to, to try to make extra money? It was, it was sleazy, and now now they're getting sued for it. So good. Uh, fun, funny. Remember how, the big buckets of dollars and quarters. Yes, yes. That's, those are the days. Could, those, you, could you imagine? Could you imagine? <laughs> like it? Like in this time period, we're lugging around. <laughs> Dollars, you know. Yeah, maybe they should go back to that. They should, they should go back to the lugging around uh, buckets of quarters. There's actually kind of the fun part. Of, that was the more fun part about playing machines back then, though, is was when it would spit out all the change and you'd scoop it all up and put it mm-hmm. in the bucket. I mean, your hands would be black when the whole thing was over, but. I know, it was brutal. It was, it was <laughs> the jackpot would come. Yeah, I remember that. I'd be jealous. Too. Like, I'd be on a machine and my machine sucks, and I hear ding, 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 like I, I'd look That's over, funny. I'd look over, and the guy is like, uh, like sixty-five years old and like obese, and looks like he's he's probably going to die tomorrow. And I go, wow, I wish I was him. Right? He's got the change. <laughs> he's got the change falling down, and I've I've got nothing. Okay. He's so, like finally, then he keels over, yeah. and it's over. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Why can't I be that guy with all the change falling? Why do I have to be me, forty uh, years younger and healthy? It's not fair. Okay, so. Hmm. Okay, so so uh, next story about weird things going on at casinos. Comedian Doug Stanhope has created a social media attack against the Rio because he claims that he has been barred from all Caesars properties just because he posted a one-star review of the Rio on TripAdvisor. Oh my goodness. Is this possible that the Rio is checking TripAdvisor and banning anyone who they can identify that posts a one-star review of the property? It ban you from all Caesars properties and the World Series? That, I mean, that's pretty bad. Should you be terrified now to give a one-star review on Yelp or TripAdvisor? Because Doug Stanhope, who's actually a, a, a somewhat known comedian... If this happened to him... I love him. He's great. He it, didn't play poker, though, did he? Uh, no, but, but if, if this happened to him... Then uh, what's the what's the chance of, of you getting away with it? Well, of course, there's always more to the story. So th- here is Doug Stanhope's tweet. Oh, with him, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, with him. There. So here's and by the way, Doug Stanhope, who's who's an acknowledged and admitted uh, drunk, but uh, he, he uh, this is his tweet on July 20th, just two days ago. He actually tweeted out uh, the letter that Caesar's Entertainment sent him. On June 27th of this year, and uh, he, he posted the full letter, including his home address, which I guess he's public about anyway, in, in Bisbee, Arizona, uh, 212 Van Dyke Street. I guess he's given the address before for people to send him stuff as, as part of no, his No, he has. He gave yeah. it on Howard one time. Yeah, too, yeah. Like so, so, so that's why he didn't redact that. But, but anyway, um, he, here's the letter. 
He posted it in full. And I'm and I, I do believe this is the actual letter he received. This is not made up or modified in any way. Uh, Dear Douglas Stanhope, this letter is to inform you that the manager of the entity commonly known as Caesars Entertainment, together with Caesars Entertainment Corporation and all their affiliates and subsidiaries, collectively referred to here and after as Caesars, has determined that you have recently engaged in conduct that Caesars views as inappropriate. As a result, your presence is no longer desired on the premises of any Caesars properties, and you are no longer welcome at any Caesars property. Oh. To be clear, your exclusion from Caesars applies to all properties under uh, operated under the following brand names. Bally's, except Bally's Tunica, which I guess they don't own or something. Bluegrass Down, Caesars, The Cromwell, Flamingo, Harris, Harvey's, Horseshoe, Hotspot o- Oasis, Paris, Las Vegas, Planet Hollywood, Rio, All Suite Hotel, The Link, Thistledown, Racino, and Tunica Roadhouse, and all other properties that are currently on or in the future owned, operated, or managed by Caesars Entertainment Corporation. <coughs> Please be advised that if you are found in any of the aforementioned properties, management will not hesitate to take any and all steps necessary to effectuate your removal from the property as well as pursuing all other legal rights and remedies it has under law. Further, should your presence in any of Caesar's property go undetected in the future, any money you win through gaming, including jackpots, may be forfeited, except in Nevada or any other state where this is prohibited by law. That's interesting that they can't take it away in Nevada. Did not know that. In addition... Your membership in Total Rewards shall terminate pursuant to the Total Rewards rules and regulations. As a result, you're no longer eligible to receive rewards credits at any of our properties through participation in any Total Rewards partner program. In addition, you can no longer redeem any of your accrued rewards credits or any other Total Rewards benefits, including uh, offers related to gaming, dining, lodging, or other services. If you attempt to use any total rewards benefits or attempt to use another person's total rewards account, we reserve the right to take any action and pursue any legal remedies available to us. This letter is not intended to be a waiver of any rights or remedies of seizures, all of which are expressly reserved. Uh, thank you for your attention to this matter. Sincerely, Caesars Management. Hmm. So they're, they're rough. Can't he get can't he get uh, cash for existing points? No. Didn't you have it in with them? You can't, oh, really? Uh, I thought you said. Oh no, no, sorry, sorry. You know what? He can. They're just. You're right. He can, but they're not. Uh, they don't want him to know that. But yeah, you're right. They can. He can. Yeah. Right, but I think that's why you should get with Doug Stanhope and tell him. <laughs> he probably doesn't have many, but uh, it sounds like from I listened to a podcast of his to get to shortly, and it sounds like he's like a blackjack player where you don't earn points very fast, or a craps player. Like he doesn't. He doesn't play machines where you really earn RCs. It's, if you don't play our, if you don't earn machines, you're going to earn shit for RCs. Right. Yeah, but he still could be something he could go after just to fuck with them. And then I could see Caesars hiring him to, to do his comedy thing, with just the right hand not talking to the left. <laughs> it's like the one made the major fuck up in history. <laughs> this got a lot of attention. It currently has, as I. At the time I speak here, about two days after he tweeted it, less than two days after he, or two and a half days after he tweeted it, seven thousand one hundred eighty-four likes and two thousand six hundred nineteen replies. I replied to it and uh, offered for him to come on this show, but uh, it was ignored because there were two thousand six hundred replies. So of course, uh, he's not really. Uh, Paying much attention to each individual reply, which is not a response. It's not a surprise. It, I took a shot in the dark, but anyway, um, he he then claimed on his Twitter because this you know so far he just tweeted the uh, the letter here, but then he uh, 
he said, it's come to my attention that the cause of this, of Caesar's Entertainment's ire, um, or sorry, this, this was, sorry, this was, uh, this was today. I'll get to that later. This is a new tweet he just did. The original tweet said, earlier this year I had an awful stay at the Rio Las Vegas, which I reviewed on TripAdvisor and Yelp. Now I'm banned from every Caesars property in Vegas, and, and he posted a link to, uh, he attempted to post a link to his TripAdvisor review, but didn't do it right with the... But anyway, uh, someone found it and, and posted the proper link to it. So I will read it to you. I will read you the, the Yelp review he posted. And he also posted the same review on TripAdvisor. The rumor is, and this is posted, by the way, on February 16th. The rumor is that this hotel is about to be torn down. Staying here would make an ardent atheist pray that this is true. You can even see it in the eyes of the employees. As friendly as they are, you can tell that nobody wants to be there. The Rio is like being in 1986. By the way, uh, Trader Risky, there's some background noise with you here. You may want to mute it. Oh, my bad. Oh, yeah. My bad. I'm sorry. I thought I was muted. Okay. The Rio is like being in 1986. By that, I mean that like you were still driving your 1986 Ford Tempo 33 years later, held together with, a gaff- uh, with gaffer's tape and surgical mesh, riding on rusted rims. Vegas isn't what it used to be. Anyone who's come here over the last two or three decades can attest. The Rio isn't even what it was when they last updated their Expedia page. You have more than too many options when it comes to finding a hotel in Vegas. What finally sold me on the Rio, aside from having regular decent stays here in the past, was this from Expedia. Dining options include a seafood buffet, a Japanese restaurant, a sushi bar, a wine cellar and tasting room, a New England-style seafood restaurant, an American grill, a South American cafe, an Indian restaurant, and room service. Now, let me stop here. This isn't the Rio's fault that Expedia didn't update the page. Expedia is a separate company. They should be updating it. Yes, this is outdated information, like the seafood restaurant they're talking about is Buzio's, which hasn't been there in a few years. But uh, this is Expedia's fault. Not He should be blaming them, not the Rio, for this. But, but going on. They should be proactive, though, but keep going. Uh, there is no seafood buffet. It has long since been discontinued. As has the South American Cafe, you can find all this out piecemeal by asking everyone and anyone who's worked here long enough to remember. There used to be a Japanese restaurant. The folks at the American Grill told me it didn't exist. In fact, it had closed eons ago. Yet I kept passing signs across the casino floor saying sushi at Club 172. Well, he didn't understand that Club 172 is something new. It's different. Um, when I would call the front desk, they were unaware of this place. After eating there, I kept asking any employee in any department where sushi could be found. Turns out this is a new sushi place, and they rent the spot no differently than a nail salon in a, salon in a strip mall. The property itself doesn't know or care who may be in or out of business. They just gaze into an unknown future, waiting for the wrecking ball to swing. There is a poster in the elevator for a celebrity host on a limited run at Chippendales. It was from last year. I wouldn't doubt that they didn't put it up after he was long gone. The casino's floor is littered with barkers outside every shop or passageway, hustling everything from haircuts to timeshare, like beggars who ask for investments rather than pocket change. The ATM fee is nine ninety nine to take out a twenty, onerous even by Las Vegas standards. Actually, it's not. It's, it's terrible all over Vegas. Uh, thankfully and rightfully, my hometown bank treated this charge as an illegal transaction and declined it. On my first six days here, I called down with a litany of these complaints from the 1986 phone in the room, but I could barely hear the front desk because the phone was so old. That simply added one more complaint. He's actually right about that. My, my room I just stayed in, uh, my last day at the Rio, the phone was terrible. I, I'd call the front desk, and I'd hear, is this awful buzz in the background? And I'm like, yeah, I'd like to send a wake-up call for, for 11 o'clock. What's that? 
I think I said a wake up call for eleven o'clock. Like I can't, I can't hear it over the terrible buzz. So he's he's right that the the phones are the phones are really old and need to be replaced. On the second night at midnight, my manager showed up drunk at my door like Oscar Madison from The Odd Couple after having a tiff with his gal pal. I didn't wake to his repeated calls and banging on my door. Thanks Xanax. So he simply slept like a homeless person outside my suite in the hallway for almost six hours. Like so many piles of garbage or room service pl- uh, trays during my stay here, he wasn't noticed or removed. In defense of the Rio, the, the suite I stayed in was, was a full 1,600 square feet that averaged less than $200 a night with a full view of the strip. Despite the colors of beige on brown on cream, the vibrant, the, the vibrant spectrum that brings to mind Rio de Janeiro – and the highway salvage living room furniture that is currently splitting feathers from every tear and crack, it's still a pretty decent price. So as long as you avoid gambling, go to a station casino for that. I won't say how much I lost gambling here, but I'd estimate that my reward players club card paid me about one penny for every 20 bucks. I've gambled less at other casinos and been offered free rooms, my own private concierge, and amenities too, ma- too numerous to count. Here I got half off a buffet. The hallway reeks of cigarettes and, and now legalized recreational weed. This is a positive. Penn and Teller, as well as the comedy seller with Mark Cohen and guests, are also a bonus. Pet friendly, another plus. Still, I give it one star because who reads a two star review? It's just business. So that that was his review, which is kind of entertaining. A lot of it's kind of true. A few things he got a little bit incorrect, but it is true the Rio's run down. It is true it's got a lot of problems. It is true, as he noted, that it's it's pretty cheap. Except during like the World Series and very high profile events, uh, it is true that a lot of places that used to be there have closed. That the dining options aren't very numerous there. So a lot of this is true. The, the criticisms he's levying here, but he claims that this is what got him banned, and I thought this just doesn't make any sense to me. It just doesn't make any sense. They they have like 900, I'm not even kidding, like 900 one-star reviews on Yelp. 900. So how could this one be the one they focus on? And, and of all things, to ban someone who has a following, he's got hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter, they're going to ban him over the reviews so he can bring attention to that and make them look terrible? Like a, That's a weird enemy to pick for posting a bad review. If anything, you'd think they'd reach out to him and try to make things right, so then he'd, he'd write a good review. So I thought, this is really weird. Here's something else weird about it. The review was written on February 19th, and the ban letter was on June 27th. <clears throat> and I said, so they're really going by, they're going to look at reviews from four and a half months prior, and digging through them to find people to ban? It just didn't make any sense to me. So, I wondered about that. I wondered about all those things. Also, remember the letter said that he engaged in inappropriate conduct. Now, that could mean a lot of things. That could even mean the review was inappropriate conduct. But it kind of seemed to be implying that there was actually conduct at the impl- at the property they didn't like. So I thought, well, maybe he got nasty with employees there. Maybe he, when in his process of complaining, he was drunk and belligerent, and they, they decided they didn't want to take it after thinking about it for some time. So I was really wondering. I would think it's just drunk and disorderly. Yeah, and the, or was he just drunk yeah. and disorderly? I thought, wondered that too. Did he Was he just drunk and disorderly there, and they decided they didn't want him there anymore? Now, I still wondered why the four-and-a-half-month 
delay in this, but I, I got my answer. I got my answer without uh, further uh, making you guys wait to find the answer. I will say that he got a lot of support. People were crushing the TripAdvisor and Yelp pages for the Rio and complaining about his ban and just one star, one star, one star, one star about banning Doug Stanhope and how, how they're assholes to ban people for writing bad reviews. And they really took it up the ass here for this. And this, I have to tell you, this is one case where I think Caesars was actually right. Sorry for all you Caesars haters out there. I know a lot of you like to hear when Caesars is victimizing someone and I'm standing up for them. But in this case, as I suspected from the start, Caesars was in the right. And that uh, Trader Roosty's guess was was mostly correct, that it it was drunken disorderly behavior. How do I know this? Well, Doug Stanhope did a podcast three days before he wrote that review. About And that podcast was about a number of things, but it was also mostly about his stay at the Rio and his antics there. Now, he, he had with him his manager, a Scottish guy, and that was the guy who slept in the hallway, which we'll get to shortly. But listen to some of the things that happened. First, first of all, I'll, I'll play a little humorous uh, segment about... Him trying to use that phone. This COVID- let, me, let me jump to that segment here. I, I, I went and listened to the whole hour of this and, and noted timestamps here so I can play this to you guys. I did did some good research here for a show that doesn't make me any money. So here, let me make sure. Did, did you hear that little clip I played for a second there? Uh, Trade Risky, or is that sound gone? I think I heard it, but I'm fading rough. I didn't okay. realize it was so late. It is late, yeah. Early day. yeah I've <laughs> only got like 15 <laughs> topics more. Okay, well, well th- thank you for joining me anyway. And All I'll, right, but I'll, I'll stay as long as I can. Okay, okay. Thanks, thanks. And okay. I'll, I'm going to be listening. Okay. Right, so here's here's the part about him talking about uh, calling down to the front desk and the bad phone. Wait. Well, you, well, I can't remember. Did we start this podcast over? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. I called down to complain about something, and then... The phones are from, like, 1983. You know when you have to dangle the phone? The cord is so wrapped up. Hey, does anyone here remember a corded phone? One second here. If if you notice, it sounds kind of like he's on a speakerphone. Uh, For whatever reason, they they didn't bring very good quality equipment here to do this podcast from there. They did this podcast from the Rio. There's actually a picture of them. Doing this from the Rio. You can look this up on YouTube, at Doug Stanhope Podcast 298. Just type that in. You'll find it on uh, YouTube. It's 53 minutes. And for some reason, the sound quality just wasn't good. It sounds like they're on a speakerphone or something. So that's it's not on my end of why the sound quality is bad, or your end. It's they just The sound quality is not that good, but you'll be able to understand them. Yeah, the cord's so wrapped up, you have to hang it down and let it spin itself out. So... And, uh, yeah, then I ended up complaining because I couldn't hear the front desk on this old piece of shit, 40-year-old fucking phone that I forgot what I was calling to complain about. Everything on Expedia is wrong. Hey, we have a New England-style seafood restaurant. Oh, my God, maybe they have fried clams. You can't find fried clams, like whole-belly clams, outside of New England. Maybe they have that. Oh, they have a seafood buffet. Love that. Get me some crab legs. They have a, a 
everything that's on Expedia doesn't fucking exist, except they don't promote 1987 fucking rat fucking kooky cordless. They have a fucking ad for Chippendales. They have two ads in the elevators, posters. One of them is just Chippendales guys, but one of them has like a fucking half giant erection in a G-string. It's like, this is like gay porn in the elevator. The other one has an ad for Chippendales, and it's a Taylor... Tyson. Tyson's... Somebody. Spencer or something. Celebrity host, limited engagement, September 27th to November 5th, which is not limited. That's fucking six weeks, five but, weeks. But it's also like four and months now ago. it's fucking in the middle of February. You still have this shit up. Like, I couldn't... Like, I would have had to keep accurate notes for all the fucked up shit in this hotel. Apart from the one thing we discovered that we weren't expecting is that, according to someone we met who served us here, Guy Fieri's a decent guy. We're not going to go to the Guy Fieri discussion. Let me jump to another part of this where he talks about his... uh, Drunken behavior. This this is the main part to take away from all this that I'm about to play you, and you'll understand. What, what you episode saying? number is it, Trump? This is 298. Doug Stanhope podcast 298. 298. If, okay. if you if you enter that in YouTube, you can hear this whole thing. So the 28 minute mark. I, I just played the 12 minute mark. Now I'm on the 28 minute mark. I'm about to play you the his account of his own uh, drunken disorderly behavior. Then that's where we go and get sushi, isn't it? This is where it gets blurry. Okay. This is when it turns into literally the movie The Hangover, where I might have married a hooker and lost a tooth because I remembered, I didn't even remember going to sushi till the next day. You go, oh, we did go to sushi. They go, did I get thrown out? No, I think you said you had to leave. I remember walking through the casino at some point where I was... 15 year old drunk like just trying to keep my balance teeter tottering back and forth at one point I went outside because it's very cold here in Vegas it was in the 30s probably and I went outside hoping the cold would wake me up enough that I could walk upright all the way to my hotel room and when I got to the hotel room I couldn't find my key. So let me stop here for a second. So, of course, this is in February, and it was a very cold winter in Vegas. It was one of the coldest winters uh, in memory for Las Vegas and for Southern California this uh, year in 2019. So he actually, he's talking about, and he, he recorded this podcast in February, in, uh, February 16th, that he purposely went outside in the cold air in a vain attempt to try to wake himself out of his drunken stupor to where he could just have enough wherewithal to walk back to his room. That's how drunk he was. He said he was 15-year-old drunk, referring to he was so drunk it was like a 15-year-old trying alcohol for the first time and not being used to it. That's, that's how smashed he was by his own admission. And in my head, I knew it was on me somewhere, but I didn't have the wherewithal to go through all of my pockets. To try to find it. So I just steeled myself to walk all the way back. If you've never been to Vegas, they purposely make 
at the longest walk from the front desk to your hotel. So you go by every table and you get enticed to lose all your money, which I'd already done days before. And I got my key, but it had to be before that that we went to sushi. Oh, for sure. So, having vague memories of maybe getting kicked out of sushi or leaving sushi, according to Brian, because I thought Brian would fill in the details. He's like, oh, we went to sushi. I I went back the next night, and the lady at the sushi bar, I said, hey, was I here last night, and did I make a dick out of myself? And then she filled me in with the details. Yes. She said... You kept talking about comedy and the comedy seller, and then I mentioned Gilbert Gottfried, and you said, oh, and you don't know who I am? And then I mentioned Bill Burr, and you said, I have, his, I have, I have Bill Burr's number in my phone. Do you want to call him? And as you can assess, uh, being a drunk yourself, this... I was just crumbling in my chair as she recounted all these douchebag things. She <laughs> said, ah, call Bill Burr. I have his phone. I do remember that. Once you told me that, I remember you thrusting your phone at her, going, look, it's Bill Burr's number. I could just call him. And then she told me that you were fine. You just kept telling her that you were with the FBI. <laughs> Which I don't recall. <laughs> I don't recall that either. But, but, but I did over tip. Oh, I'm sure. I think I left you with the tab the first time. She said I just walked out to smoke a cigarette and never came back. Never came back. And uh, so you picked up the tab. And then I do, uh, that second night, I apologized. I said, here, I, I'm going to over tip because. So let's stop here for a second. Uh, that, that's an important part here. That he actually, he was so drunk, he just walked out owing money. And the only reason he didn't end up stiffing that sushi bar was that his manager was there with him, who I guess was somewhat drunk too, because he was claiming he was from the FBI, but he was less drunk and, and at least aware enough to pay the tab after Doug had walked out and just disappeared. So it, it wasn't like Doug walked out and was like, oh yeah, my manager will get it. He just, Doug was so out of it from so much drinking that he just, walked out on the bill and didn't even realize that's what he was doing. He just stumbled out and disappeared. Never came back. Not like, oh, my manager will take care of it. No, he just, he just left. He didn't think about the bill. He just ate a bunch of sushi and left. Now, this again, this, this is uh, apparently owned by a third-party place, but it's still part of the Rio. So now they, they were on this podcast in mid-February talking about uh, what had just happened. In fact, they were doing this from the Rio towards the end of their stay. And uh, apparently somebody at the Rio got wind of this in June. I don't know how or why, but they found out about this podcast and listened to it and decided, hey, we don't want this drunk here. But there's one more thing I want you to hear. And, and, and of course, you know, the, this is the stuff he's talking about that he remembers or that was told to him in some way. Like he found out from the waitress that had served him the night before. All the stuff about him walking out and, and, and shoving his phone in his face, bragging that he knew Bill Burr. Like, this is the stuff he found out from others about how he behaved, but there must have been a lot of stuff in between here when he was so blacked out drunk that he did that he doesn't remember. So 
they probably listened to this podcast and said, what the hell? We don't want this guy back. If he's so smashy, he, can, he can't remember doing these things. We don't want him back here. He's, he's uh, a, a, a ticking time bomb here as far as uh, misbehavior while blacked out drunk. And, and, you know, him bashing the hotel probably didn't help either. So he's bashing the hotel really hard on the podcast and uh, bragging about how uh, blackout drunk he was and how crazy he was behaving. Now, let let me jump to another segment of his manager, who was no angel either. What had happened is his manager went to go visit his girlfriend and had a fight with her. And then uh, after his girlfriend booted him, out then uh, as I think the manager has a girlfriend in, who lives in Vegas so she threw him out of her place because of a big fight they had when she was really when he was really drunk so then the manager wanted to uh, crash with Doug but much like Doug was earlier in the story the the manager was uh, was so smashed he was having a hard time uh, even finding his way up to Doug's room or uh, even getting a hold of Doug to open the door. Rang the doorbell for at least an hour. Then I'm I I I think oh I tried to convince the 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 front desk twice to let me in the room. I've no even if I was on the reservation, I had no ID, you know, and. And I've got a backpack on, so I look like somebody yeah, who's... They were fu- calling on the house phone. They tried to call you on the house... seven fucking house phone. They tried to call you. Wouldn't, you. No one's picking up. So so apparently, uh, probably Doug was passed out in, in the drunken... St- probably from uh, drinking so much. He was totally out like a light. And in the meantime, the Scottish manager here, who works with Doug wanted to come crash with Doug after his girlfriend booted him out. So they're ringing the doorbell over and over, he says, for an hour. Probably exaggerated, but just stands there ringing the doorbell of the suite over and over and over again, and Doug is so out he doesn't even hear it. So then then the manager stumbles down to the front desk and keeps saying to let him in, and they keep trying to explain to him he's not on the reservation. Then they keep trying to call Doug, and Doug's not picking up, and then the manager just won't give up. And just keeps asking over and over, come on, let me in, come on, let me in. I I can imagine how difficult he was to deal with, this drunk guy. Let me in, let me in. I'm staying with Doug. He keeps telling him, look, sir, you have no ID. You're not on the reservation. We can't just let you in. He's just not taking no for an answer. Obviously, he's creating a spectacle, too. And so eventually, I just came, I I sort of, at some point, uh, I realized it's kind of like, uh, you know, in... in, uh, the end of The Shining when Jack Nicholson just sort of lies down in the snow to die uh, I sort of realised that uh, I, I, you know there's only so much I can do and I'm at the end of this corridor Thank, that's the good thing is you're at the end of the corridor and the corridors are curved so if you come out the elevator you wouldn't see there was someone lying on top of a camera bag asleep outside your door this is an old Dwight York joke Okay, so that's that's really all you need to hear. This manager who he was staying with um, couldn't get in the room, and so he ends up sleeping like a vagrant outside of Doug's room for six hours, which which Doug even wrote about in the review. So he's he's got to take responsibility somewhat for this guy too. You bring a friend with you, and the friend acts like a jerk, and your friend you know, lies outside your door like a vagrant when he can't get in. And drunkenly harasses the front desk to let him in. 
this this reflects upon you too. So someone <clears throat> someone at the Rio had had this uh, brought to their attention, and obviously didn't like the whole thing. They didn't like the bashing of the property. They didn't like the drunken behavior. They didn't like the uh, walking out on the sushi tab. They didn't like the uh, the manager sleeping in the hallway uh, and harassing the front desk to let him in. And they, they, they thought, look, these are two drunks who are disruptive. They probably caused other trouble on the property that they don't even realize or remember. And they'd probably screw it. We don't need these guys here. So I understand why they said we don't want you back. It makes sense. It makes sense. So it wasn't about the bad review. Now, in the last uh, 12 hours, Doug finally realized this. I think when he, and I thought that that he probably didn't understand that it wasn't about the review when he posted this. I thought that he probably maybe didn't even remember how badly he behaved there. But he actually did post uh, an update about 12 hours ago, which I hadn't seen until I was uh, looking at his Twitter during the show here. He wrote, it's come to my attention that the cause of Caesar Entertainment's ire might not be my TripAdvisor and Yelp reviews, but this podcast I did about my stay at the Rio. And then he linked the podcast. So at least he's being honest about it now. And, and people have said about Doug Stanhope that he's like honest to a fault, that he, he's not someone who lies or tries to mislead anyone or try to make himself look better or his life look better. The, a lot of his act is, is, is what a screw up he is and, and, and embarrassing and, and Unpleasant things that happened in his life. So I didn't think he was intentionally coming out and lying about how he thought it was the review when it was really his own behavior. I thought he was just too drunk to remember it. And that apparently is. I guess people brought it to his attention and were like, hey, you know, I don't think it was the review, Doug. I think it was this podcast where you talked about behaving this way and your manager talked about behaving this way. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, um, look, that's what happens. Uh, I, and I, I understand it. If you are, are drunk and disorderly at a hotel, you make it unpleasant for other guests, you make it unpleasant for the employees there, and it's really not fair to other people. And if the hotel or casino doesn't want you back, it's understandable. I don't think it's a, an offense that should mean you're banned for life, you can appeal it. Uh, they can let you back in, provided that you promise it won't happen again and give you a second chance. I, I believe in that sort of situation a second chance is warranted. And in fact, I've advised people before. I've had people text me before who listen to this show that have been banned from Caesars properties for drunk and disorderly behavior or other bad behavior when on drugs or whatever. And they've said, what do I say? And I, I've advised them. What to say? You know, the, I've been told, "Hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm sober now. I don't, I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I, I behave very well now. Um, you know, how do I get this across to them that I won't be a problem anymore?" And I said, "Well, be honest. Just, just tell them. Tell them how long you've been clean, how you regret your behavior, how you acknowledge your behavior from before. This will never happen again. Do you really like another chance? That, uh, um, that you promise never to drink or do any drugs on the property ever again." Or, or before you come to the property and just you know, just lay it all out there that you're never going to do this again. You're always going to show up sober. You fully understand what you did wrong. You're never going to do it again. Just lay it all out there, and then they'll probably give you a second chance. And I have had people come back to me and say, hey, yeah, it worked. Uh, I can come back. And then I say, okay, well, don't screw up this time, or it's going to be permanent. So he, he's probably going to be able to come back 
I'm guessing, as long as he doesn't trash him too hard. But uh, you can't blame the Rio or Caesars for this. Now, a lot of the criticisms against the Rio were true. Some of them I thought were a little bit unfair, but some of them were true. Even the 1987 phone he talks about, that's definitely true. I, I battled with that same phone during my last day. But this is really all about him being so drunk he didn't know which way was up. And then talking about it on his podcast and someone heard it and was like, okay, this, this isn't what we want here. So someone heard it and banned him after the fact. His fault. So at least he's uh, owning up to it. And it's really kind of a non-story in that the Rio didn't do anything wrong here. Caesars didn't do anything wrong here. And I, I've always said this. I'm always honest about my feelings of whether Caesars is in the wrong or not. A lot of people would be happier if all I did was bash Caesars and always took everyone's side against Caesars, but I don't. I look at this as honestly and fairly and in an unbiased fashion as I can and then come to what I believe is the correct conclusion, at least from the information I know. And then I put it out here. And if it makes Caesars look bad, then tough luck on them. If it makes the... An individual look bad, and Caesars look good, then tough luck on the person who uh, who it's about. I, I just want the an honest, unbiased interpretation to be out there, and that's what I'm trying to give to you. And it's not always the big casino that's in the wrong. A lot of times it is. This time it isn't. This time Caesars is in the right. Even if you like Doug Stanhope and think he's funny, you can still think that. You can still love him and his comedy and just say, hey, you know, he, he messed up here. And look, this is a guy who admits he's, he's a big-time drunk. Not just on this podcast. This is a big part of his act about what a drunk he is. And it's, it's not stuff he makes up. It's like it's, he's telling you, like, true-life stories about what a drunk he is. So that's – it can't surprise you that he's getting banned from a place like this. And you can't, ban, you can't blame the place that bans him even if you like him. Well, here's a story about two people that you're not going to like very much, especially one of them, especially one of them. Two guys who did something unthinkable and stole from a person you absolutely, positively should never steal from. Even if you're a scumbag career scammer, this is someone you should never steal from. Two separate guys in two separate incidents stole from a terminal cancer patient who has weeks to live. This is awful. And and I'll tell you, I, I've had contact with one of the perpetrators and the other perpetrator I once knew. And I, I have two very different opinions now of the two perpetrators. And I'll get to all of that. So Kevin Roster who's known on Twitter as Kevin Rax, is the terminal cancer patient who made headlines this year by going to play the World Series main event as one of his final wishes. This is someone with sarcoma. I have a relative who died of sarcoma. It's a terrible form of cancer where there's basically no way out of it. It's a death sentence. There's not much known about sarcoma. Even the cause of sarcoma is not very well known. There's some suspicion that it's about, uh, sometimes it's about blunt force trauma, 
where if you have blunt force trauma to an area of your body that seems fairly harmless, that uh, it can sometimes develop in sar- sarcoma. I don't just mean if you you bump something. I, I mean like if you if you get like a, a pretty bad fall and you get something kind of injured for a while and then it gets better and you're like okay I'm fine and sometimes uh, it's found that sarcoma d- develops in that location and then spreads around your body and kills you. That's what happened to my relative that died that way and I watched this person deteriorate and it was very sad and I visited them in the hospital in their final days. Um, it wasn't a parent. My parents are both alive still, thankfully. But uh, it, it was a, a relative, that uh, a close relative. And it was very sad. It happened uh, more than 20 years ago. But um, he is dying of sarcoma. He's young. He's like around 30. We've talked about him recently. He uh, He had a nice run in the main event, despite the fact that he is very, very sick. He managed to show up in the main event and run his 60k stack up to 220 something on day two and uh then the dinner break was so sick he actually passed out because of uh his oxygen level went to uh dangerously low levels that could have even killed him and the his nurse begged him not to go back down and play that he was in no condition to play but he he forced himself back down there and of course uh couldn't play very well at that point as as nobody would be able to and uh Lost, lost his chips, and that was it. And he was still a hero to many, including to me, for being able to do this at all. And he, he thought he let people down by uh, not being able to cash after running up a big stack. But you're like, no, you're playing with terminal cancer in your final days, uh, when, and your oxygen level got so bad you passed out. Yeah, it's understandable why you couldn't play your best poker. So uh, people were... <clears throat> very impressed that he did as much as he could and that he, he, he got as many chips as he had at one point. So he went back and he decided he still wanted to play some poker because, <clears throat> sorry for the throat clearing, it's just getting tougher to do the show with a cold and uh, all the hours I've been doing it, but he, he still wanted to win things. And obviously any money he wins at this point, I, I don't think, means very much. I, I don't even know if he has kids or not. I don't think he does, but it's he, he just wants to play poker and, and, and win tournaments. It's, just, it's more for the fun of playing and, and the fun of winning titles, the fun of accomplishing something poker-wise. He just kind of, rather than just sitting around and, and saying, hey, I'm going to die, I'm just going to sit here and be depressed, he's, he's like, hey, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do something that's, that's, that, that I find fun, play poker, and I'm going to keep playing as long as I can until my dying day. So he's been playing online, which is obviously much easier for him than playing live. And he uh, he wanted to load up his account on America's Card Room, so he put out a uh, a feeler. I don't know where, but somewhere on social media, he wanted to do a trade of uh, Cash App for America's Card Room chips. So he came to uh, an agreement with two separate people who had nothing to do with one another to send them money on Cash App, and he would send first, and then they would send him the America's Card Room money. Bad decision! Yeah. Very bad decision. He didn't know either of these guys. One guy was on Twitter as uh, Kyrillo Saigora, which is actually his real name. Kyrillo Saigora. And the other one was on Twitter as Poker Kingdom Junior, J.R. Poker Kingdom J.R. Didn't know these guys, just... uh, 
found them somehow, and they were willing to do the trade, and he was willing to send first. And uh, as you can imagine, I mean, this isn't funny. I shouldn't laugh at it. He 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 got scammed by both of them. Both of them took his money on Cash App and uh, did not send him the ACR money, which is very bad. I don't believe either of them, or I can't say for the second one, I know this Kyrilla Saigora did not know that he was a cancer patient. But uh, regardless, both knew they were scamming him. Both both thought he was uh, an easy mark that they could just rip off. Just take the money and, and run and never send him his ACR chips that they probably didn't even have in the first place. So he tweeted this on July 12th. Thanks for the help, guys. Unfortunately, got robbed by Kyrilla Saigura for 500 and Poker Kingdom Jr. for 150 so it was a pretty expensive lesson to load my account. Fuck Cash App for not verifying the back of my ID, too. I don't know what he means by that. Rob a dying man. Hope you all die in a grief, grease fire. Ace, hashtag ACR scam. Hashtag poker scammers. Then he wrote, uh, Poker Kingdom Jr. is named Michael Thompson on Cash App. Well, it turned out uh, Michael Thompson was a fake name, and I, I know who both of these guys are now. So people, I, I helped publicize this. I was so outraged by this story, and I don't know this Kevin Roster, who's on Twitter, is at Kevin Racks Poker, R-A-C-K-S, Kevin Racks Poker. I don't know him personally. I've talked to him a little bit on uh, Twitter and direct messages and I told him I had a relative who died of the same thing that he's currently suffering from and that uh, you know I really feel bad for him and I was inspired by a story and that you know, I invited him on the show but said I understand if he can't come on because it's difficult to do that and so um, you know I have a good relationship with him he's not a close friend in any way but uh, I am a fan of the guy and, and what he's doing with the final days of his life rather than just uh sitting in his room, just doing nothing in his final days. He's trying to go out doing things he loves, which is poker. And I just was so disgusted by this story that two guys would rob a guy with cancer. Or scam a guy, because they didn't rob him. They, They scammed a guy with terminal cancer. And I had to imagine that even if they didn't know when they were scamming him that he was dying of terminal cancer, number one, they're piece of shit scammers in the first place. And number two, that he probably told them once they scammed him, hey, do you realize my situation? And they still didn't give a shit. So I was like, hey, these guys are real scum. So I, I posted about this on Poker Fraud Alert. There's a uh, thread called Two Scumbags Allegedly Scam Kevin Roster, a.k.a. Kevin Racks, who's dying of terminal cancer. And I also posted this in other places, on Twitter, on on Facebook, in the Real Grinders group. And uh, I, I wanted as many eyeballs to see this as possible. Well, someone Googled these names and came up with something very quickly. This Kyrillo Saigora, he has a very unusual name. Kyrillo's spelled K-Y-R-Y-L-O-T-S-Y-G-U-R-A. Kyrillo Saigora. Very unusual name. And it was his real name. There is a real Kyrillo Saigora who's like 20 years old who was a tennis player at Baylor University. You can find articles about him playing tennis for Baylor. And I'm thinking, wow, a, an, a, a, an athlete at a college is doing this shit? Scamming a, a terminal cancer patient? That's the last thing I expected to find. Not that all 
college athletes are salt of the earth, but I think yeah, th- this guy's kind of risking ruining his whole career if he's got a if he's got a tennis career ahead of him for to, to get his name out there as a scammer of a terminally ill uh, cancer patient. I mean, how much lower can you get? So I couldn't believe this. Now this other guy, supposedly Michael Thompson, I couldn't find much on him, and it seemed like this Poker Kingdom Junior was was. Uh, a Twitter handle that uh, was kind of a throwaway. Even though it had a number of followers, it, it looked like just he had a lot of different Twitters. I wasn't sure what this guy's name was, but I, I found out who he was too, which I'll get to shortly. But uh, I, I publicized all of this, and uh, others were publicizing this as well once this was found. Because it, I didn't even find out the Kyrillus Sigura thing. Someone else Googled that on, on the Real Grinders and uh, found it. And... Uh, I didn't realize, the reason I didn't Google, I didn't realize Kyrilla Saigura was a name. I thought it was some like weird thing. And by then, the Twitter account was gone, so I wasn't even sure if, 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 if uh, Kevin Roster had spelled it right. Uh, so I clicked on it, there's no account there anymore. What had happened is Kyrillo deleted his Twitter, and uh, and also this uh, Poker Kingdom Jr. had uh, protected his Twitter. So they, they knew that they had screwed up. They both, one deleted, one protected his Twitter. Uh, and, and these were two separate scams. Uh, they're not working together, these two. They don't know each other. So, um, after this went public, someone apparently called up Baylor University and reported this. And apparently Baylor was interested that this had happened. I also messaged Kyrillo Sigura on Facebook. And I said, do you have any comment here? I know what you did. I, I'm, I'm surprised you're, you're deleting your Twitter. It's too late for this. You can't hide from this. I suggest you send the guy back his money and own up to this, and, and maybe you can get out of this with minimal damage. Also, by, since I saw Kyrilla Sigura was only 20, I had a little more sympathy for him. I found out the other guy, who I'll get to shortly, is close to my age. The other guy is 45. So that, and, and the other guy was like a career scammer. At least in the, the last few years, he's run a lot of different similar scams, the other guy. So that guy's a, an irredeemable piece of shit. But a 20-year-old, I kind of pictured, especially this 20-year-old college athlete, I, I pictured this idiot kid who had a gambling problem and stupidly resorted to scamming in order to stay in action and then happen to pick a cancer patient without realizing it and then probably blew the money and, and, and couldn't pay him back. That's what I pictured. And I, I had a little bit of uh, empathy for this Kyrillo guy if it was what I was picturing because I know a lot of people do stupid things when they're young. And while this was bad... I I thought that perhaps he didn't know what he did until it was too late. And then he had no way to get the money back to him. And then uh, obviously he still needs to suffer the consequences of his actions. But I, I thought, okay, this may not be a horrible person. Whereas the second guy definitely is. So I, I was trying to advise this Kyrillo, look, you find a way to... I, I, was like, I was trying to talk to him to see what his deal really was. And, and I talked to him and... 
I'll tell you, I really got the sincere vibe for him that he felt bad, and he was acknowledging it to me. He says, hey, I fucked up. At first, he tried to make a few excuses, saying that he was going to send Bitcoin, but then I'm like, look, are you trying to say that you were you're being unfairly accused and you're a victim here? He's like, no, no, I'm not a victim here. No, I fucked up. And, you know, he... So he at first, he tried to make excuses about Bitcoin and the crap, and it just wasn't received. But then he quickly backed off that story and told me the truth that, yeah, he fucked up. And that, uh, but he kept swearing to me that he didn't realize the guy had cancer when he did this, and that uh, he had taken a loan from someone and he had to pay back the loan. He didn't tell me who it was that he owed the money to, but uh, I, I think I somewhat believe it that he owed money to someone who was pressuring him. So he said, hey, let me just scam some random guy on the internet. And then he happened to scam a terminal cancer patient. And by, the, but by then he had paid off that loan and then he had no money and he's 20 years old. Where the hell is he going to get $500? I was trying to tell him, go to your parents, go to someone to borrow this 500 to pay him back. And he's like, you, you know, yeah, I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to try to you know, give him the money. And I said, well, you really need to before this gets bad. So I said, look, if, if the, the faster you pay him back, the faster you make this right and own up to it, the, the better you'll look for this whole thing. Don't try to hide. It's too late to hide from this. You scammed a terminal cancer patient. Face this and make it right. I kept telling him this. On, on, so he's, I will, I will. So um, apparently it was too late for him. Uh, I, I don't know if it was because of this or he was already on his way out anyway. But whatever it was, uh, people who called Baylor, and it wasn't me. I never called Baylor. I never did anything to Cairo. I didn't call Baylor or instruct anyone to call Baylor. But uh, someone called Baylor, and uh, I think more than one person called Baylor, and they, they were told that he's not returning there. And then independently, Cairo messaged me, well, it look, looks like you got what you wanted. I'm not coming back to school. Everything's ruined. I'm like, well, that, I, that's not what I wanted. I was, I, I'm like, I, I was trying to tell you to, to take care of this so this doesn't happen. And, and get yourself right. And like I, I was hoping this kid would, would get get the guy back his money, post an apology, say, hey, look, I've got a gambling problem. I'm 20 years old. Sorry. You know, I got here. Here's the money back. I'm so sorry. I had no idea you have cancer. Here it is. I'm going to get help. I'm, I'm turning my life around. Don't worry. Like, a, I was hoping this is like a, a young kid who did something really stupid that didn't realize the full extent of what he was doing and was going to redeem himself and everything would, would – uh, He'd learn a lesson from this and be better. Like uh, that's what I was hoping for. I actually had some empathy for that guy, but uh, it looks like uh, now he may already not been coming back anyway. This may have just been, you know, either he was on the verge of not coming back or he was already not coming back to school anyway. And this is being used for sympathy. I I don't know. I don't know here, but uh, he's not coming back apparently to Baylor. And you can't feel sorry for him. He did scam someone of $500 knowingly. It just happened to be a cancer patient. But, you know, if if you're a scammer and then suffer consequences to your reputation and you get kicked out of the athletic program at your school, you only have yourself to blame. You can't blame the people who called and reported you or people on the Internet posting about it. If you scam and get in trouble for scamming, then the consequences are your fault. And you're not one to be, you know, you don't feel sorry for him. And I I don't feel sorry for him. He scammed and got caught and... uh, he happened to scam the wrong person that, that was really, really bad to scam because it's, it's a dying man he scammed. And that's it, the thing. When, when you scam someone, you can't just assume you're scamming someone who can totally afford the hit and it's going to be nothing to them. In the best case scenario, scamming is always bad. In the best case scenario, you're, you're scamming a billionaire who it's not going to matter. But you don't know who you're scamming. You could scam someone out of, the, out of their last dollar they can't pay rent and they end up homeless. You could scam a dying cancer patient. 
could scam someone out of their kid's college money. Like you, you don't know this money you're stealing. You don't know how much this person can afford to lose it. In addition to it being wrong, if you're scamming someone, you could be ripping someone off uh, of money that that's really going to harm their life, even if it's in like five hundred bucks. So, so even the excuse of "Hey, I didn't know who I was scamming. I wouldn't have done it if I knew it was this." Like that's not even a good excuse. But at the same time, it is much worse to scam a cancer patient if you know you're scamming a cancer patient than if you think you're just scamming some random and it turns out they're a cancer patient. But both are bad. Anyway, so Kyrillo, he already uh, has suffered consequences. However, let's talk about the other guy who's much less uh, sympathetic. Because I, I, I had a little sympathy for Kyrillo. I remember being that age. I, I did some stupid things myself. I didn't scam anybody, but I, I, I did some stupid things when I was that age. I did some things that I would never do today. If you could put my brain now into my 20-year-old body, there would be things I would have done differently in those days. So I, I can remember those days. And uh, I could have some sympathy for him, but, but the other guy, it's a different story. The other guy, his real name is Brian Wojtek. That's V-O-Y-T-E-K. And apparently his M.O. is to hop around a million different Twitter accounts and pretend to have America's card room money to sell and then somehow convince people to send the money first on the other end, to send cash on the other end via PayPal, via Cash App, whatever, and then just never send the ACR that he probably never had in the first place. There have been a lot of reports over the years about Brian Wojtek, especially the last three years, that you can find by Googling the name Brian Wojtek scam. That's V-O-Y-T-E-K. There's a thread on 2 Plus 2 about him where a number of people complain about him. I posted a public service announcement about one of Brian Wojtek's Twitter handles, one of the ones he uh, returned to from the past, uh, 420 Deep Stack or Deep Stacks, I think it was, that uh, he actually pre-blocked me on that account. <laughs> he actually, he, Brian Wojtek was so aware of the fact that I was on to him and that I was outraged by this whole thing that when he went to this 420 Deep Stacks account to scam new people, he actually pre-blocked Todd Wittellis and Poker Fraud Alert so I wouldn't see him doing it. <laughs> like, I had never even seen that account before. He pre-blocked, like, when someone brought my attention to that account, I was already blocked. <laughs> So he was hoping that would prevent me from seeing it. But but anyway, I said all, all, what I ended up doing is putting out a, a public service announcement asking people to retweet, which has worked very well. Like a lot of people have retweeted it, that this guy is, uh, is scamming and not to trade ACR with him. And I've gotten a ton of different uh, people t- retweeting this. But as soon as he saw I tweeted this out and people were retweeting this, he, he dropped that Twitter account and deleted it. So that was the end of that. But at least I put his name out there that he's a scammer. Because there's there's still not enough of that. It's out there, but it wasn't enough out there. Now it's really out there. Now it's been like retweeted by a ton of people. And what I wrote was a public service announcement. Do not trade ACR or any other money with, at 420 Deep Stack, as this is career scammer Ryan Wojtek, who ripped off terminal cancer patient Kevin Rack's poker and others over the past three years, retweet for awareness. And a lot of people responded, also saying that they were victims in the past. 
Um, someone that showed that. Uh, let's see, I'm scrolling through this here. Now, someone put out uh, a screenshot of him attempting to scam him under that account that same day. Someone uh, put out that they were ripped off uh, by him in the past and put a link to their uh, 2 plus 2 thread about it. So, this guy's ripped off a number of people. Someone wrote, uh, yep, complete douche, he scammed me. He got me for $500, this piece of shit, another guy wrote. So what he likes doing is he scams people and then deactivates his Twitter account when people complain about him and switches to a different Twitter account. He has a number of like active Twitter accounts he jumps between. His name is Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Wojtek, V-O-Y-T-E-K. So I googled Brian Wojtek and I found only a small picture of him that was on Pocket Fives from a long time ago. And I saw the picture, and I'm like, you know what? This guy looks familiar, but I don't remember how I know him. But the face looked familiar to me. I saw that he was born in 1974, so this is not a kid. He should know better. And this is a guy who's been doing this for at least a few years. Just the same scam over and over, just supposedly trading ACR money and then just never sending it after receiving the cash. But then I realized who it was. In 2009, the summer of 2009, I was watching an internet video show that was being done by an L.A. area former radio host that I liked growing up. This guy was off the radio at this point. He was uh, doing his own show on the internet. It was a show that didn't last very long, didn't do that well, but it was a, he was doing a, a video show done from his house that was like every weeknight from like 7 to 10. So uh, it had nothing to do with poker or gambling. Just a show I liked, a host I liked, and uh, there was a chat room associated with it, and I chatted in the chat room every night. Well, one guy showed up there who called himself Floppy Bob, and Floppy Bob claimed to be a professional poker player from Southern California. So given that this was not a poker or gambling show... I thought it was pretty cool that another professional poker player was there in the chat room watching this uh, as I was. So, of course, I asked him, who are you? And, uh, yeah, he told me, I don't think he even told me his name, but he just, uh, he said, oh, well, you know, I'm not a well-known player. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just like a grinder, whatever it was. But it was clear this guy wasn't like a big name in poker or someone who had like huge success. And I thought the description of professional poker player that he gave himself was probably very loose that uh, it was probably like a low limit poker player who kind of wished he was a professional poker player but whatever you know we talked a little bit about poker and he even added me on skype and we talked there sometimes we never became close friends in fact i had always assumed his name was bob he he had what he called a show called the floppy bob show but i never heard or saw the show i'm not even sure if it was video or audio and uh, i i can't even find records that it even existed, or he may have done one or two episodes. But you can still find a promo for the Floppy Bob show on YouTube, and you can see Brian Wojtek. This is from 10 years ago, so picture him 10 years older now. But you can find Brian Wojtek uh, by entering on YouTube Floppy Bob show. And here is a little promo for it that he did 
in uh, 2009. Hello, YouTube world. This is Bobby Bob. I'm doing this as a protest for a future YouTube video. Yes, <laughs> already terrible sound effect. You know, you know the the sound quality is so bad for the test he's doing. It, it sounds like he's using that 1987 phone from the Rio. <laughs> Anyway, going on here. And uh, today on NowLive.com, I have the Floppy Bob show will be debuting. Uh, probably by the time this is posted, uh, the show might be up. This is going to be on today at 3 p.m. Pacific time on NowLive.com. You can check it out there. Okay, so whatever. This is from 10 years ago, actually February 2009, 10 and a half years ago. He claimed it was on uh, NowLive.com, whatever that is. Uh, 3 p.m. Pacific time. But I'm sure it's long gone. He he probably did a few of these Floppy Bob shows. This thing has, uh, it had 34 views. When I found it, now it has 38 views because I brought a few people's attention to it. So, uh, this shows you what kind of ratings he must have gotten if 10 years later it had 34 views. Can you imagine a video has been up for 10 years, has 34 views? I, I would think everything has more views than that by now, just people stumbling onto it in 10 years. But no. So there, there must have been nobody who watched or listened to the Floppy Bob show. And I'm not sure what the point of that show was. He was probably trying to be some uh, internet uh, poker celebrity, and it didn't work out. The last I heard from Floppy Bob, and I, I had no problem with Floppy Bob back when we talked. He seemed nice enough. He seemed like the guy didn't have. It seemed like he didn't have much money, and he wasn't that successful in poker. But whatever. Uh, a few months after I had last talked to him, like in later 2009, he messaged me and asked if I was willing to stake him for some tournaments. And I said, no, I don't, I don't really do that. I don't stake people. And he said, okay, you know, no problem. And that was the last I heard from him. And I, I hadn't thought of Floppy Bob in a very long time. I had no reason to think of Floppy Bob. Well, it turns out that Floppy Bob is Brian Wojtek. And I didn't think of that because uh, even though I recognized him in the picture, I didn't think of that because uh, people think my name is Dan if they don't know me very well because of Dan Druff. A lot of times people call me Dan. I have that every year at the World Series. Like, your name is Dan, right? Like, well, you're close. It's actually Todd, but I go by Dan Druff. So the same thing. I thought the guy's name was Bob, and I never knew his name was Brian. But yeah, his real name is Brian Wojtek. And I guess his poker career went so well that now for the last few years all he does is scam. I don't know if he actually plays poker with the money he scams or if he just uses poker as a pretense to scam. Whatever it is, that's, that's what he does now. He just scams. And he apparently has several different names on Cash App he does it with, including this fake Michael Thompson name. And I think the reason he likes Cash App is because Cash App, you can transfer money to like ATM cards that you can just go to an ATM machine and withdraw cash. So you probably don't need real names to get cash app accounts. I, I haven't tried to make fake cash app accounts. I have a real one, but I don't even remember what verification I had to go through, but apparently he's found a way that probably isn't very sophisticated to make fake cash app accounts and then just immediately withdraws the money he scams to these ATM cards and gets away. And since these are small amounts of money and it's trading for gambling chips, I'm sure the police don't care and he gets away with it. That's why he's been doing this for years. So... Uh, He's gotten away mostly undetected. There's a small thread on 2 plus 2 about him dating back to like 2016, but uh, he, he's he been getting away with this for a while now, and there really hasn't been much discussion of him until this thing happened with Kevin Roster, the terminal cancer patient. And that just outraged me so much 
that uh, I started publicizing this. But it's interesting that he knows I'm onto him. He he probably even knows I'm the same guy he talked to ten years ago. But it, it's funny he knows I'm onto him to where he pre-blocks me from his Twitter accounts that he's currently scamming from. So I, I don't know that much more about him. He used to live in Paris, California. That's not Paris. It's Paris. P-E-R-R-I-S, California. That's where he lived at the time that I, I knew him. I don't know if he's still there, still in the area. I haven't done much research on him yet. But uh, that's the guy. That's that's Brian Wojtek. And unlike Kyrillo, who's a kid who probably did scam to pay back a loan and now is flat broke and can't pay uh, Kevin Roster back the 500 bucks he scammed, Floppy Bob here, Brian, Brian Wojtek, owes him 150 bucks, And isn't paying and I don't think it's because he doesn't have the 150 I think he just doesn't give a shit because someone who scams this many people so often someone who's like a career scammer like this they they usually have no heart they usually just don't care who they're ripping off they don't care if it's a cancer patient they they don't care who it is they don't care the damage the person suffers from their scam if they can scam this many people and not care they usually have very little of a conscience Especially the ones who are older. Because a lot of times, as I said, kids do stupid things. But once you get older and you develop more of a conscience and you see a lot more in the world and you experience a lot more and you start developing more empathy for those who uh, who are suffering. And it becomes a lot tougher for you to do things that you may have done when you were younger and commit crimes you may have committed before when you were younger or may have been willing to commit before. And that's why most crime that's committed, violent and otherwise, is, is done by younger people. Uh, so to be this age and and just scamming multiple people like this over and over with no remorse, uh, I, I don't think the guy gives a shit that he scammed a terminal cancer patient. And I think if he did give a shit, he would have paid back by now. And the funny thing was on this 420 deep stack account, he was ranting about how someone wants him to send first and how he, you know, how can he trust someone to send first? It's amazing. It's it's amazing seeing scammers going on and on about it. how could you not trust me? I I'm not going to let you rip me off, you know, what the hell? I'm not that stupid and like, yeah, of course, of course you don't trust the other side because you have nothing to send first of all, and second, you know how people scam because you're one of them. You are a scammer. Often the people who complain the loudest about accusing them, because that's what he was complaining about, that the person saying, hey, I can't trust you, you, you know, I don't know you, the, uh, you'll please send first. And he's like, what? How could you accuse me of that? Anyone acts so indignant when you say, hey, I don't know you, I can't fully trust you. Anyone who acts that indignant about it, it's usually because they are a scammer and they, they want to make you feel bad for possibly thinking this of them. Like, if someone didn't know me, and I said, hey, send first to me, and they're like, hey, man, I don't know you very well, I can't do it, I'd actually understand. I wouldn't say, hey, how dare you say this about me, I have an impeccable reputation for honesty in 20 years in poker. I wouldn't say that. I'd, I'd point to it. I'd say, look, look look at my history, look at the show I do, look at everything I've been doing for all these decades, you think I'd rip you off for a few hundred dollars, there's no chance. Like, I, I would bring that up, but I wouldn't go off on them or say they're unreasonable to think because they don't know me that... Uh, that they have to trust me. Like I, I'd understand. So it's usually the ones who act indignant about it are the ones who are the, they're mad that you caught them. They're mad that you figured them out. So anyway, if anybody 
who you don't know wants to do these ACR trades with you, it could be him. Just don't do it. As you see, even there's even ones who are doing the same scam who don't even know him. This Kyrillo guy didn't know Floppy Bob, a.k.a. Brian Wojtek. He didn't know him. These were two separate scams done by two separate people who didn't know of the existence of the other. And Kyrillo's like, you know, I don't know this other guy. I swear I had nothing to do with it. I'm like, you know what? I believe you on that. And from everything I can see, it seems like two totally separate transactions, and there's no evidence you two know each other. I, I believe you. I thought that before I even talked to Kyrillo. I'm like, this looks like two totally separate scams. But it's funny, you, you see these two scammers, and like you, and Kyrillo had the bigger scam. He scammed the 500. Uh, Floppy Bob only stole the, uh, the the 150. But when you look into the two scammers who did the same thing to the same cancer patient, it's funny how you can come away with two different impressions. One is a piece of shit middle-aged career scammer, and one is a stupid kid who made a dumb mistake. Still needs to pay for that mistake. But one is a much more reprehensible character from everything I can see. Okay. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Be real careful about those trades. Oh, something else I want to throw in here. It's kind of important. I received contact on Twitter in direct messages from the owner of America's Card Room. Never talked to him before, Phil Nagy. I've talked about him on the show. I've never talked to him. Never tried to talk to him. But he, he wanted to talk to me about this scam, and I told him about it. And he said he wants to come up with a way that allows people to trade money on there safely. And so I gave him some suggestions about basically being a double-sided escrow. And he said, well, I'm not really ready to implement it yet, but next week I'm going to ask for suggestions, and I'd like you to be one of them that gives some of these suggestions. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. No money in it for me. But anything that makes it safer to trade money to get money on and off ACR, sure. You know, that helps the poker community. I'm not going to facilitate it. That wouldn't be legal. I'm not going to be, like, part of a money trading operation. I could go to jail for that. But if if the owner of ACR wants to hear from me of suggestions for what he should do, to prevent scams from taking place. Yeah, I'm going to help out with that. Uh, and uh, so we had some dialogue back and forth. But what's good about this, not not just that uh, I'm going to assist in the process. I'm not going to make a full-time job out of this. He's not even paying me anything. But uh, yeah, I'll give my suggestions. But uh, also, now I have a dialogue with him. And if uh, there's anything I need to talk about him regarding ACR and other things that happened there, which we've talked about a number of things over the years, now I have that line open to him, and and now we've talked, and uh, this is someone now I can ask for a comment. And he is known to be reachable. He's not an owner who hides. You know, he, he appeared on the Chicago Joey show recently, and he, he's someone who, who will talk. So that's one good thing that came out of this, is that I have a, a dialogue that's open now with the owner of America's Card Room. That he, and he started the dialogue. It wasn't me going to him. He came to me. That's always good. All righty, let's move on here. Let's see what topic number we're up to here. I always have so many windows open by the time like the show goes on. Like it's, it's been going for a while, so I like have a million windows. And uh, like the agenda's somewhere. Where is it? 
Here we are. Okay, what do we have, like 10 topics left? I'm not even kidding. It looks like, looks like uh, nine topics left. Is that what it is? Yeah, no, there's actually nine topics left. It's 2.35 in the morning and there's nine topics left. Oh, my God. How can I do this? It's 2.35 in the morning and there's nine topics left. Sometimes the show doesn't have nine topics. I've been doing the show for, for more than five hours. There's nine topics left. How am I going to do this? This is insane. I, I was watching the agenda build up, and I'm like, please, cold, get better so I can do the show, and I won't have a giant backlog of things to talk about. And these are all things I want to talk about. I don't want to skip any of these things. Okay, I better get to it. For people who like long shows, can you imagine how much you're going to have? I guess if you're, if you're listening in the, in the archives, you know how long it is already. You'll see. You're going to go, what the hell? How could the show be this long? It is. Okay. And I have a cold, too. I'm going to be so sorry in the morning, I bet. All right. Uh, let, let's jump to the next topic here. Let's talk about VPNing into sites like PokerStars where you're not allowed to play in the U.S., now, this has been going on now for eight years. This is nothing new. Why are we talking about it today in 2019? Well, Daniel Negreanu brought the topic up on Twitter and asked people to discuss it. And he actually started a poll. Do you consider players using a VPN to play online poker from the U.S., to play on sites that forbid play from the U.S., to be cheating? And the last I looked, 76% of a lot of voters, like 16,000 voters, voted no. They don't think it's cheating. Yeah, still 76%. That's about the same thing. It's about uh, 15,919 voters, 76% saying no. He did put the clarification, this is assuming they're playing on their own account just from the U.S. instead of a country where it's allowed. So he's not talking about multi-accounting here. He's talking about playing on their own account, but uh, pretending to be in a country where it's okay to play there and actually being in the U.S. and they're using a VPN to do it. Is this cheating, yes or no? 76% said no. I agree with Daniel. It is not cheating. But there are a number of people who think otherwise, including uh, longtime tournament player Shane Schlager, who I'll get to shortly. And I, I respect Shane for the most part. You know, there's some things we don't agree on, and he's he's a proud uh, drug user and uh, like a hard drug user, and he's a, a lot of things about Shane that uh, I that he does that I don't agree with, or definitely wouldn't do myself. But uh, I, I think he's a decent guy, and and usually has an intelligent take on things. And I, I think that's what he thinks of me as well. But uh, I don't believe it's cheating. Why don't I believe it's cheating? I'll tell you why. Cheating in poker is something that gives you an unfair advantage in play. Here's some examples of cheating. Super using, which means seeing the whole card to the opponents online. I was a victim of that, as you guys probably know. Card marking, that would be live poker. That goes without saying. Collusion, either live or online, obviously cheating. Soft play, yeah, soft play is cheating. If uh, two people playing each other are friends or on the same bankroll, and when they're in a hand together and it gets down to heads up, they, they soft play each other, that, that is cheating. I won't bother to go into why, but uh, it is. And if you ask 
anyone knowledgeable in poker, they will acknowledge soft lay is cheating. Bottom deck dealing. This is any form of dealing where you're uh, where the dealer is uh, specifically giving cards to a certain player. There are uh, dealers who can do that. Sometimes in home games, people the dealer actually plays as they're dealing. So sometimes the dealer is a player and can bottom deck deal. Uh, sometimes the dealer is someone in cahoots with players, but whatever. It doesn't happen as much at, at uh, casinos because you can't really control the dealer you get. But uh, that's a form of cheating. Multi-accounting on sites where it's not allowed. You know, on, sites, on sites where it's allowed to have multiple accounts, that's fine, and everybody knows that's allowed, and you're aware of that. But on sites where multi-accounting isn't allowed, multi-accounting is cheating because you are pretending to be somebody else or at least pretending to not be you when you play people who are familiar to you. So let's say me and John Smith have played a ton of hands together and we know a whole lot about each other's play styles. If John Smith then plays me under an account that I don't know as him on the same site where he also plays as himself, it's fine to play and not say who you are specifically, but if John Smith, who plays me on a site all the time, goes on a second account that he controls and plays me. He knows all about my play style, but I don't know anything about his because I don't think he's John Smith. That's obviously cheating. That obviously affects the play. That gives him an edge, and he's breaking the terms of service of the site because there's no multi-accounting allowed on that site, as most sites don't allow it. So uh, multi-accounting is cheating. Rat-holing. Rat-holing means uh, sneaking money off of your stack so it's no longer in play. That's a form of cheating that really matters in no-limit games. Like In limit games, if you've got a ton of money on the table and you take some off, technically it's not allowed, but it's not likely to matter because in limit games, a pot just can't get that big, a single pot. But in no-limit, it's a big deal to rat hole, and, and some people will do that. And then there's the uh, similar thing of hiding bigger denomination chips in play until it's advantageous to show them. This is what uh, Alec Torelli was criticized for in a televised poker hand where he hid his big chips behind until it was advantageous to say, hey, I have these chips. Some people call it an angle shot. I call it cheating because that does affect play and it can screw people big time. So those are all forms of cheating. Some are far worse than others. Super using is one of the worst ones, for example, and that's far worse than uh, multi-accounting or soft play, but everything I listed there are various forms of cheating. I'm not one who believes cheating is cheating. There's no degrees of cheating. Of course there's degrees of cheating. The guy who's a super user is much, much worse and much bigger of a scumbag than the guy who's a soft player with his buddy. Both of them are cheating, but one's a much bigger cheater and one has a much bigger edge in their cheating. But it's all cheating. Those are all forms of cheating. But VPNing is not cheating. Why not? Well, you get no advantage over the opponents you're playing by doing so. You're simply getting to play poker on a site where you're otherwise not supposed to be playing because of where you're currently standing in the world. And I mean physically standing. I don't mean you're standing in the world. I mean where you are physically standing in the world. The country you're standing in dictates whether you're allowed to play or not. If you still don't think I'm right, think about this. Let's take someone who's right on the U.S. and Canadian border, but they're on the U.S. side. So let's say they're 10 feet 
over on the U.S. side. Well, they would not be allowed to play on PokerStars. doesn't matter that they're 10 feet from Canada. They are not allowed by PokerStars Terms of Service to play PokerStars if they are in the U.S., even if they're 10 feet away from Canada. However, if this person took 10 steps over and stepped on the Canadian side and was stepping on Canadian soil at that point, then they would be legally allowed to play on PokerStars. And if they took steps back over the border, they would not be allowed to play on PokerStars. Now, we're going to ignore whether PokerStars could detect that because there's no magical thing that detects that you've stepped over the border by a matter of a few feet. But let's put that aside. Let's say PokerStars could really tell whether you're uh, exactly across the border by a feet. Because we're, we're talking philosophically here, whether it's right or wrong, not whether they can detect it. So the guy who is standing a few feet over on the U.S. side can't play on Poker Stars, and the guy who's a few feet over on the Canadian side can play on Poker Stars. And even if it's easy for him to step back and forth, on one side he can, on one side he can't. But how does that affect the players on Poker Stars? It doesn't. He doesn't get any advantage over them. If he's playing on the U.S. side and then steps over the Canadian side, this doesn't change anything, or vice versa. He's still sitting with the same opponents. It's just a matter of what country he's physically standing in. But it doesn't give him any advantage over anybody of where he physically is. It doesn't matter to those people. It doesn't affect the play at all. The only thing that matters is technically whether he's allowed to be there, which is really between him, the government, and the site. Now, I will say it's kind of unfair to VPN into a site to both the site itself and and other players in that same country. Not other players on the site, but other players in that same country. Why? Because you're getting to do something in your location that others in your location don't get to do if they're following the rules. So let's say there's a good game on PokerStars, and I want to play it, and a bunch of my other friends want to play it who are in the U.S., but we can't because we're not in the U.S. and we don't want to do the whole VPN thing. But you are willing to VPN and take the chance associated with VPNing. Then you do get to play there. And that's unfair to me and the other players who wish they could play. And would play if the rules allowed us to do it. So so it is a little bit unfair to people in your same country who would want to do what you're doing. And they're following the rules and you're able to do it but you're breaking the rules. It's a little unfair to them. It's a little unfair to the site that could get in regulatory trouble if you get away with it for long enough and and then the governments find out and give them a hard time. But in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter very much. If I hear someone's VPNing, I don't care. As long as they're not multi-accounting or doing anything else shitty. If if all they're doing is faking what country they're in so they can play on a site like PokerStars, whatever. At the same time, I'm not going to feel bad for them if they get caught and their money confiscated. Like when Gordon Vio had that happen, I wasn't on his side. And he falsified documents to try to pretend he was in Canada when it when he played, when he clearly wasn't. I mean, he just made a fool of himself there. And I wasn't on his side. And, and my attitude is, if you're going to take the chance to do that and you get caught, tough luck on you. You're taking a risk. You're getting an advantage that you get to do it over other people in your country who can't do it. So at the same time, you're taking the risk. And if you get caught and they take your money, tough luck on you. That's That's the way I see it. They know what they're getting into when they VPN. And I've, I don't do it for that reason. I, I, I don't want my money confiscated. I don't, I don't want to have to play under that uh, 
cloud of fear that they might catch me and, and take my money. It's not worth it. It'd be too frustrating. But morally, I don't think VPNing is bad. As I said, I think it's a little bit unfair to other people in your country who wish they could play, but it's a, I don't think it's that bad. It's definitely not cheating. I don't even think it's that unethical. It's just people trying to get around silly regulations in their country, and they're taking a chance. But again, you are taking a chance, and you can't fault the site for, for clamping down on you if they catch you. You think, oh, man, come on, this is so unfair. These laws suck, man. Come on, how can you take my money? I rightfully won this money. Well, no, you shouldn't have been there. So I, I, I have no sympathy for those caught VPNing and getting their money confiscated, but at the same time, I don't think that uh, it's a bad thing to do or an evil thing to do. It's definitely not cheating. And that's how Negranu feels. And some people were surprised he was ex- expressing that opinion because people are saying, well, hey, he may want to get a job representing some other site now that he doesn't work for PokerStars anymore. And the other sites may not like this, that he's actually advocating the usage of, of VPNs. Now, he was actually defending Gordon Vio to some degree. And there I felt he was wrong because Vio didn't just play. Once he got caught, then he started falsifying documents and doing a lot of other crap to try to get the money he had won, which... That starts to get more unethical. It's, it's, he didn't just go, okay, you caught me. Now, yes, a lot of money was at stake, so I see why he did it. But still, when you start resulting, when you start resorting to, to forged legal documents and false records that you're sending to attorneys to, to, to claim that uh, you were falsely accused of being out in the U.S. when you won uh, – at that point, you're really not someone who is a sympathetic character. So Negranu shouldn't be citing him as an example. But I get Negranu's point, and, and it really is not cheating. And I'm surprised even 24% felt it was cheating. Um, Norman Chad. Norman Chad, who both uh, said something complimentary about me. Oh, you know, I don't even think I mentioned this. I couldn't have mentioned it. This happened on day three. Okay, I'm going to quickly go back uh, to talk about my World Series very quickly. Norman Chad actually likes me, and I didn't know that. I always thought Norman Chad thought I was a douchebag because of uh, my appearance on the 2005 uh, World Series of Poker where I, like, spun a seat cover when I, I won a hand, and I was you know, I was kind of obnoxious on that broadcast. I, I was trying to be entertaining and kind of the life of the table, but I, 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 I didn't come off well. I, I didn't do it in, in a... Um, a way that I think came off the way I was. I, I wasn't intending to come off the way I did, but I did. I, sh- I shouldn't have done this stuff. It wasn't horrible stuff I did, but it was kind of obnoxious. And I, I don't fault Norman Chad for uh, bashing me on TV when I did it because it was his job to do so. They they had to create drama. They had to make it interesting for the viewer. And I was basically uh, giving them a reason to criticize. So fine. I like I didn't hold it against him. And uh, I and so anyway, what what happened was Norman Chad somehow knew the guy who was sitting next to me, this recreational player, that guy who had a lot of money, who, who sat to my right. And Norman Chad knew him somehow and saw him and came over to say hello. This wasn't a known poker player. I don't even know how Norman knew him, but um, he said uh, something about how I had just taken chips from him. 
And Norman Chad says, oh, yeah, he's, he's this guy. He took it. He seems like a nice guy. That's fine. I don't mind him taking your chips. So he said like like that in jest. And then uh, I said something like, oh, I'm, I'm glad you think I'm a nice guy, Norman, after you bashed me on TV or something like that. And uh, so I said, so he goes, oh, Todd, I didn't see that was you. And I said, no, no, but that's OK. Like, I, I don't. I don't even mind that you bashed me on TV then because, uh, you know, I was being obnoxious on purpose and uh, that's your job to do so. I have no hard feelings about that. And he says, uh, the Norman gave a speech to the table. This is on day three of the main event. He gave a speech to the table that uh, I do a lot of good things for poker. He said, this guy referring to me does a lot of great things for poker. And he calls out a lot of people and organizations that need to be called out that don't behave very well in poker. And it's it's too bad we have so much of that stuff in the industry, but but it's great that we have people like him calling it out. He said something like that. He gave like a, a speech to the table that everybody should uh, be grateful that I do this. And I said, well, well that's, I had no idea that Norman Chad knew about all this. And it's so much that he actually like told the table that uh, this stuff about me. So I said, oh, that's cool. And then apparently I wish I had this uh, – I, I may be able to find it if I go dig an old broadcast, but sometime during the main event, not while I was on there, but at some point when I wasn't on there anymore, I think I had already busted, but he was looking at people who got deep and he saw me there and he mentioned Poker Fraud Alert and he mentioned me and uh, and he again mentioned uh, the same stuff he had said at the table about me. Complimentary stuff. So that, I appreciate that, Norman. Thank you. All this time, all this time, I never thought Norman uh, Chad thought much of me. Who knew? It's kind of like that uh, Robbie Davies, the, the former CEO of Poker News, who I thought for years hated me. And then it turned out he was like a regular listener of this show and liked me. And then he passed away. But uh, you never know. Sometimes people you think like you actually hate you, and people who actually you think don't like you do like you. You never know. So anyway, uh Norman Chad said to Negranu, you seem to have a loose definition of cheating. No one said you're cheating the other players, but you're bringing, you're acting dishonestly to gain an advantage, playing in a game which you are not allowed. That is di- dictionary-defined cheating, but not exactly the scam of the century. I, I don't even agree. I think it's not cheating at all. You're just playing from a location you're not supposed to. But you're not cheating anybody. You're not only not cheating any other players, you're not even cheating the site. You're just uh, breaking government regulations of where you're supposed to be playing poker. And if you're going to be judging that, you have to judge people who play underground poker games and stuff like that, which I don't do. Uh, so then Negreanu says, back to Norman Chad, that's not quite accurate. You're allowed to play. They ask that you cross... They ask that you cross an imaginary line and sit on a different couch, which is true. That's, that's you know what DeGrande is saying is a good point, that it's, it's really just an imaginary line. So then Shane Schlager says back, this imaginary line correlates to rules, laws, and procedures that create a fair game. Like I said, I, I must have been a huge sucker for honoring stars, terms of service, and going to Mexico, but I'm not going to spend too much of my afternoon indulging your justifications for dot, 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 cheating. See, you, you see why Shane is taking this position, because Shane got up, Moved from Santa Monica, California, where he had spent a long time and seemed to enjoy being, and, and went to Mexico, which has its drawbacks, let's, let's be honest. So he moved to Mexico so he could play on stars, and he resents people that didn't go anywhere 
and just used VPNs to get through. And, and so I can understand those players being bitter about it, that they uprooted their life to continue playing on these sites while others just skip by it. But it's still not cheating. That goes back to me saying it's kind of unfair to other players who wish they could, but it's not cheating. You could say it's unethical. You could say it's, it's, it's breaking rules. But it's not cheating. It's a difference. Daniel said back, had you chose to use a VPN, I wouldn't have thought any less of you. If you were a dad who needs to feed his kids and needs to be there for them in Chicago or wherever, I wouldn't have any issues with that whatsoever. Shane says, I would have thought less of myself. My contacts at PokerStars would have probably been rather troubled by it. At the same time, Stars tried to foster a sense of community in foreign countries, sponsoring fancy dinners for local grinders, etc. VPNing would have been dishonorable. Who cares? It doesn't matter what Stars does in foreign countries to warm up to players there. That has nothing to do with this. Stars wasn't like a small site of a few people who played together and all knew each other. It's still a big site, even though U.S. players can't play there. It's the biggest site in the world. So this isn't a cute little site that's uh, having little dinners for, for all its players together. This, so they sponsor a few dinners with, with people in certain areas that they're trying to warm up to. That, that doesn't mean it's a cute, small, cuddly site where everybody knows each other. So uh, then someone says... To Shane, completely agree with you. It's like basically being able to play, play live tournaments all over the world without the costs, such as time, money, and energy of traveling. You have an unfair advantage, which is illegal based on the host's rules over some of your competition. No, you don't. You don't have an advantage. You don't. You you have a an easier life situation that you can stay in the city in the U.S. that you want to stay in and still play on these poker sites. But you don't have an advantage in the game. You being on your couch in Chicago doesn't give you any poker advantage over the guy who moved to Mexico to play on poker stars. It's all the same thing poker-wise. Not life-wise, but poker-wise. It's not cheating. And I totally get the people who say, look, I had to uproot my life. Why don't they? It's not fair. And you know what? If these people even snitched on VPNers, I wouldn't even hold that much against them. I wouldn't do it myself. I'm not a big snitch type. But if someone did it who thought, hey, this pisses me off. I'm resenting I had to uproot my life and they don't. Fuck them. I would kind of understand that. But it's not cheating. It's different. Now, there's some people who take it too far the other way. A guy named Nathan Nathan Smith responded, they're just smarter, referring to the VPN users, and should use that advantage. That's like saying a guy using an RV at the World Series of Poker is cheating to have a better resting space than the rest of the field. A VPN is not cheating tons of players that get to roll out of bed to play at all in my book. Now, you can't compare those two. If you buy an RV and buy the space for it that they rent out at the Rio for a lot of money so you're closer to the action like Negranu does, um, you're paying for that privilege. The people with the VPNs are not paying very much for the VPN, and they're actually able to, for much cheaper, continue playing on stars than those who had to move, and much less life, life disruption. Still not cheating, but I can understand the resentment from those that did it the fair way. It would be the same type of resentment that a legal immigrant would have towards an illegal immigrant, someone who waits years and years to get into the U.S. legally and doesn't cross the border illegally and and, spends a lot of time and money and effort to get in, I could see resenting the guy next door who just jumped the border and say, hey, look, this isn't fair. I, I paid my dues to get in here. This guy should too. I understand that. 
But it's not cheating in this case with the uh, in poker. It's not poker cheating. It's just not. All righty. Uh, moving on here. 2.59 in the morning. Wow. We're not even close to done. Eight topics left. Slowly, we're more than halfway there. Time-wise, we're way more than halfway there. So there's no way I'm taking another, like, five and a half hours to do the rest of this, believe me. A guy who won $500 in a Royal Flesh promotion. You needed a two-card Royal Flesh at uh, MGM Springfield, which is in Massachusetts. This is at a poker room there. This guy got some very bad news that upon uh, winning this Royal Flush promotion, instead of getting the $500 that was supposed to be promised to him, he ended up receiving... Zero point zero. Yeah. So this is what happened. And and what especially surprises me here, the two things surprise me. The whole story surprises me. I believe it all, but I, I am very surprised by it. But what especially surprises me here is the attitude that some have had over this. And oddly, uh, really weird, the tweet about this has been deleted. Hmm. I should have copied it. Very, very weird. This just happened today, I think. Well, anyway, I'll tell you the story. I, I can't read the tweet to you. I, I, I got a copy. I, I just didn't think this guy was going to take the tweet down. I should copy these things somewhere, though, in case this happens. I hate when I hate when I embed tweets onto Poker Fraud Alerts and then the guy deletes the tweets. And then I, I can't refer to it well anymore. All right, anyway, I remember it enough. Andrew Lauer, L-A-U-E-R. I hadn't heard of him. I don't know really what his poker stats are. I don't really care. But he was playing at MGM Springfield in Massachusetts and hit a two-card Royal Flush, which, according to their promotion at the time, would entitle him to a $500 bonus. And that's all you had to do. I'm not sure if there were certain hours to it, but whatever. Uh, He was there. He hit it at a time the bonus was definitely on. He hit the two-card royal as he was supposed to, and he won $500, except he didn't. Or he won it, but he didn't receive the 500 Why? Because they told him that in order to get the $500, he needed ID. And then when they asked him for his ID, he did not have the ID on him. He said, but hold on, I can get the ID. I left my ID in the car. Let me go out to the car. I'll come back in five minutes. I'll show you my ID. You can pay me the $500. And they told him, no. Listen to that again. They told him, no. He cannot have the $500 he just won in that promotion because his ID is not on his person. That even if he can walk to the car, get the ID, bring the ID in, in five minutes, and... Even if they believe that is his ID, because he didn't have it on him at that moment, he cannot have the $500. Not now, and not if he produces the ID in five minutes. It's just gone. That is absolutely awful, if true, which I believe. I only say if true, because he's self-reporting it happened. 
So, I mean, I guess there's a chance he could have made it up, but I don't think he did, especially because people responded saying they've heard of this type of thing happening before over there. So I believe him. That is absolutely awful. Now, if he didn't have the ID and they said, okay, well, we're not paying you to present the ID, completely fine. No problem with that at all to require ID to claim the bonus for whatever reason. I don't care what the reason. They want to make the policy you've got to show ID to get the bonus? Fine, you've got to show ID to get the bonus. I have no problem with that. The problem was that they wouldn't hold the bonus for him to produce the ID, even if you could get it on their own property. It's sitting on their own property in his car. They wouldn't let him go get that. And they confiscated his bonus, which is to their advantage because they get to keep the money and not give it to him. It's not like it goes to the next guy. The next guy would win the money either way. It's not like the the 500 they're not giving to him goes to somebody else. It doesn't. They just They just keep it. This wasn't even a player-funded promo, to my knowledge. I believe this was a uh, uh, coming out of their pockets. But either way, he was owed that $500. He rightfully won it. And they used a really lame technicality to say, well, we require ID since you don't have it right at this moment. Even if you can produce it in five minutes and not leave our property, we are not giving you the 500 And it absolutely is positively terrible. MGM Springfield is located in... A little bit north of Hartford, Connecticut, even though it's in Massachusetts, not that close to Boston. It's actually you know closer to the Hartford area. He claims that a casino manager, I think a poker room manager or something, offered to give him comp points in lieu of this $500, which he reluctantly accepted, went to go eat an expensive meal, thinking he had those comp points. And as an extra kick in the ass, when he went to go use those comp points, they told him at the restaurant that uh, the number of comp points in his account was 0.0. So that's not good either. Jeez. I'm going to look on his Twitter right now. I see this is a new development that he deleted it. And he had told me he's going to come on my show. He'd probably come on my show. And... Then I didn't hear from him. So he just, he said he wasn't sure that you know, he, he may want to go back there at some point and he doesn't want to alienate them. I said, you know, I understand, but... Um, okay, well, we, we have an update here. A stupid update. <sighs> okay. I'm just finding this now. Sorry for producing the show during the show. So he responded, I, I was given some food comps. This, this is uh, about yesterday he posted this. I guess I didn't uh, look at this. It was, it was posted about 21 hours ago, 6 a.m. Uh, Pacific time, July 22nd. It's now about 3 a.m. July 23rd. He said, I was given some food comps. I may have misunderstood the situation. I apologize to Adam. That's, I think that's the poker room manager. If I had all made him look bad regarding the comps. I think I'm kind of understanding what happened. I think maybe the food comps that he claimed he didn't receive, maybe there's a delay in getting them. Maybe, I, I think maybe he deleted the tweet because they did give him the food comps and it didn't show up right away or something, and then they were mad that he said that they cheated him. Uh, he did, however, uh, right before tweeting that, he did tweet that he got blocked by the poker room 
and the manager there named Adam Nash. He said, I got blocked by MGM Springfield Poker, and Adam, after I went there Saturday to talk to Adam about the situation, blocked meaning from Twitter, turned out he was not there to talk, so I sat down and played a tournament, stone bubbled, and I was respectful of what happened last week. Guess that warrants a block? But the weird thing is he deleted his original tweet about the whole thing. So my guess right now is that everything did happen as he said. Because he said, I, I, I misunderstood the situation and apologized to Adam if I made him look bad regarding the comps. I think Adam probably gave him the comps, but maybe they didn't post immediately or whatever. Or maybe Adam said that he's not going to get the comps you know, on his account for another few days, something like that. So maybe he talked to Adam and Adam's like, hey, what the fuck? I thought, I thought we've solved this. I thought we settled this. That you accepted the comps in, in lieu of the $500. And then you come on Twitter and make me look like an asshole. And I told you it's not going to be there for a few days. And, and this Andrew Lauer was probably like, oh, I didn't hear about the three days I, because I misunderstood it. I went to go eat and they weren't there and I was kind of pissed. But uh, you know, I understand now. And Adam's like, hey, look, I took care of you. I thought we were done with this. And, uh, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. So I'll go delete the original tweet. I, I, I can totally – I'm just guessing at all this, of course. But uh, that's what I'm guessing happened. But look, uh, you still got screwed, Andrew. You still got screwed. The fact that they didn't let you go to the car – and get your ID on their own property is screwed up. It's screwed up. They cheated you. They cheated you out of a promo that you won. You can't take legal action, most likely. It's possible the Gaming Commission can help, but possibly not. Possibly they can get away with this, with some bullshit fine print about needing ID on you when you hit it. But it's still bullshit. It's still very customer unfriendly what they did. They, they pretty much cheated you, even if it's legal and they can get away with it. They pretty much cheated you, unless you're lying about the story, which I don't think you were. That's really, really screwed up. And even if they gave you food comps, let, let's say this Adam guy, and I'm, again, I'm just making this up. He never said how much food comps he got. Let's say this Adam guy said, okay, look, we can't give you the 500. It's just not going to happen. But look, I'll, I'll give you uh, 400 in food comps. And, and it won't be on your account for another few days. And somehow he didn't hear the few days thing, and he went to go eat, and the food comps weren't there, and he was pissed again. But but then Adam says, hey, look, I, I gave you the 400 in food comps. What's your problem? Well, that's still not fixing it. Food comps, even equal in food, even 500 in food comps, that's not as good as 500 cash. He's supposed to get 500 cash. He didn't get 500 cash. He got screwed. Now, some people have asked the following. They've asked, who goes to a casino without ID on them? Okay, good question. You should always have your ID on you at the casino. Totally true. Agree. Does that mean they should rip him off from promo money? No. That just means he did something kind of stupid and put himself in a position for things like this to happen, but that doesn't mean they should screw him. Um, people have said, rules are rules. On Real Grinders, I got a lot of dumb responses to this. I, I posted this story to Real Grinders. I got a lot of idiots responding to me. Some idiot said, well, rules are rules. Them's the rules. You gotta, you gotta follow the rules. It's in their terms and conditions. I, I hate that dumb shit when they say it's in their terms and conditions or rules are rules. You've gotta follow the rules. No. Rules are set by a business and then they can always modify or make exceptions to their own rules because they're the ones that made them. So management exists at a business in order to 
intelligently evaluate situations and figure out when you should bend or make exceptions to rules. So they make a rule about the ID for whatever reason they want to make sure that uh, anyone who wins bonus money is who they think they are. Maybe to make sure they're not banned from the casino, maybe to make sure that uh, they're 21, maybe to make sure that, uh, uh, who knows, they're not wanted criminals, I don't know. Whatever it is, they decide they want you to have ID to collect the money. Fine. As I said, I'm fine with that. But that should mean if you hit one of these bonuses and you don't have the ID, that they put your info down somewhere and say, okay, when you have ID, come back and you can get it then. No problem with that. And if you can't produce ID at all, then tough luck on you. I agree with that part. But if you can produce ID, then you should be able to get the money, especially if you can do it quickly. I understand you shouldn't be able to come back necessarily in two years and collect this $500 when you produce ID then. So if, if let's say you just have no ID, period, and, and, and uh, then you win something like this. Well, okay. I still think they should hold it for the person as long as they make an effort to get ID at that point. But... I can understand that more, but when someone has ID and if they've lost it or if it's in their car, they forgot to bring it in, it's at home, give them a little time to go retrieve it. This guy needed five minutes to retrieve it and they wouldn't give it to him. So they stole money from the guy on a technicality. That's what they did. Rules don't mean anything when it's their own rules. Anyone can adjust their own rules. No one is forced to adhere to their own rules. They're forced to adhere to the law. You can't expect a casino to bend or break the law, but their own rules, of course they can. This reminds me a little bit about a Domino's Pizza, a franchise Domino's Pizza that I used to go to regularly in the 90s. It was fairly close to where I lived. They actually had a type of pizza I liked. Domino's is kind of crappy, but uh, at the time they had this garlic crust pizza, which is actually pretty good. They don't have it anymore. This is in in like the mid-90s. So I was going there a lot, and the manager knew me very well. I never complained. I never asked them to make me free pizzas because things got screwed up. I never did anything there but order my pizza, show up, pick up the pizza, and go home. Never once called in to complain about anything, never asked for anything free or for something to be redone. I was an ideal customer to them for, I don't know, two years or so. Well, one day, my apartment building's washing machines were broken. They did not work, and I needed to do laundry. And I remembered that there was a laundromat right next to that Domino's. So, and again, it's pretty close to where I lived. So I brought my clothes over to the laundromat, and I had more clothes than I thought I did to wash. So uh, they didn't fit into as many, like it, it took more machines than I thought it would. So I didn't have enough change on me. You had to use quarters back in those days for these machines. So you had to bring a huge thing of quarters there. And uh, um, I didn't have enough quarters with me. And they did have a change machine, but that change machine was only for ones and fives. And I didn't have ones and fives. I only had a ten. There's no one at the laundromat to break my ten into two fives. But fortunately, right next door is the Domino's Pizza. It's like, perfect. They know me there. They know I'm a good customer for two years. I'll have them break my 10 into two fives. 
So I walk in, I see that manager, I go, perfect, he knows me real well. In fact, he knew me so well, he'd know my voice when I call in, and he'd say, oh, you want that garlic pizza, right? Go, yep. He goes, this is Todd, right? Yep, okay, we'll have it for you in 10 minutes. Okay, yeah. that, that, that's how our calls would go after a while, because he knew me so well. So that's how well the guy knew me. Never had an issue, always very friendly when I came in. So I go into the Domino's, and I say, hey, can you break my 10 to 2 fives? No, we can't. I thought he was kidding me. I go, <laughs> no, no, seriously, I, I really need this for the laundromat. No, no, seriously, we can't, he says to me. Go, Why not? Do you, do you not have enough? He says, no, no, we, we do. But we can't. The rules are we don't make change unless you're making a purchase. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I go, well, you, you, I say, you know how often I come in here and buy pizzas? Oh, no, I know, and I appreciate that very much. I know you come in a whole lot and you buy a lot of pizzas here, and I, 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 I really appreciate that. We hope you continue having your business, but rules are rules, and we do not break change for anybody and i go look i understand that the laundromat's been a headache for you and that people keep coming into your your dominoes to have them break bigger bills for for them and that you finally made a policy that you're not going to do it anymore because it's a hassle he says yeah exactly i said okay but i'm not just some idiot coming in off the street i'm someone who gives you so much business these people who come in and ask you to break bills, they're probably never going to spend a penny in your dominoes. I, I spend so much money here. I've come in so many times. I'm, I'm, not, I'm just asking you to do this one time for me. And, and you even admitted there's enough change in the, in the cash register. It's not that. He says, if I do it for you, I'll have to do this for everybody else. I said, no, you don't. <laughs> you can do whatever you want for me. You don't, you don't have to do it for everybody else. And, and who is the everybody else? There's nobody else in here. It's, it's, it's me and you and the other employees. Who, who can even see this? He says, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm not going to do it. I need to adhere to rules. I couldn't believe it. This idiot was such a stickler for rules that a very, very good customer, he wouldn't break a freaking 10 down to two fives. So I said, let me put it a different way. If you appreciate my business that I've been coming in for two years so often, so little that you can't break this 10 into two fives when I really need it, and no one else is here to see, and no one else is going to ask you for it because you did it for me, if you can't do this for me now, I'm never coming in again. You lose my business forever. He says, well, we'd like your business, but if that's what you choose to do, then you don't have to come back here. I couldn't believe it. So I walked out. I uh, I forgot how, but I tracked down the owner's name. And I, I think maybe I called up Domino's Corporate to give me the information of the owner, whatever. Anyway, um, I spoke to the owner of the Domino's. And I just said, I want to let you know why I'm never coming back here, why you're losing a repeat customer. And these franchises operate on a small margin so it really hurts to lose a customer like you you don't want to drive away repeat customers especially repeat customers that aren't a problem which i wasn't you don't want to drive them away if you're a, a franchise owner but surprisingly this idiot owner while he agreed with me that they should have made the change for me and said that he'll talk to him and make sure the next time this happens he gives me the change um or actually no he didn't you know, he didn't he said he agrees with me but he's not going to talk to him that's what he said he says he does such a good job managing this store, I don't like trying to micromanage him because I don't want to lose him. That's what he said. He said, so we'd really like to keep your business, but um, 
I, I'm, I'm not going to do anything about this, nor am I even going to tell him to make change for you in the future because uh, I, I, I do not want to micromanage him because he's such a good manager and he does such a good job and uh, I don't want to make him quit. And then the guy said, uh, but if you want, I, I can send you two $5 certificates uh, uh, to, you know, to, to basically use for, for $10 worth of pizza here. And I'm like, if you're telling me that that still it's okay for this asshole to – I didn't use the word asshole. If, you, if, you're, if you're telling me it's, it, it's still okay and this guy can still not make change for me and you have no problem with that, then that's a complete disrespect for me as a customer. And uh, while I probably won't be needing to ask for change again because I have a laundry machine in my, in my building and I probably won't need to come back here to that laundromat, uh, this is a clear case that you don't appreciate my business. And the guy said, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. And so I never came back. That was it. I quit the Domino's. I didn't quit all Domino's. It was just this one owned by this guy and that manager. But that's an example of, of, of rules are rules and being an idiot to say that. You can always bend or make exceptions of your own rules at a business. Businesses do this all the time. Businesses make exceptions for customers all the time based upon their status. And and I have felt comfortable to ask for exceptions for businesses where I've spent a lot of money. I'm not going to go into more stories, but the, there's businesses where I, you know, like my first time there and I'm not spending much and I, I expect to be treated like anybody else and I never ask for exceptions or any kind of favor because I, I know I don't deserve it, nor will they give it to me most likely. And, and there's other businesses where I give them a lot of uh, business. I, I spend a lot of money. I'm a regular customer. And if some small thing comes up that they can do for me, even if it involves bending some rules, I expect them to do it if it's within reason. But here's a freaking breaking a tenant to two fives. Come on. But but getting back to what they were saying about this guy on Real Grinders, it's ridiculous. But there are a lot of people defending this. And there are idiots, you know, victim blaming, saying, well, it's his fault because he didn't bring the ID in. Well, I admit he should have brought the ID in, but... Once he didn't, for whatever reason, he shouldn't lose the 500. And people go, well, you know, they have to make sure he's not banned. They can't pay him. I said, no, it's fine if they want to check his ID before handing him the money. But not to refuse to give the money at all. But the rules say, I go, you're an idiot. It doesn't matter what the rules say. It's their rules. Those people piss me off. I, I hate sticklers for rules. I hate people who support sticklers for rules. The problem with being a stickler for rules is because what it usually means is you lack common sense to understand how to apply the rules. Rules are there for a reason, and you need someone always there at any business to understand how to apply them, when to apply them, and when not to apply them. And that's that's what makes good business, to be able to figure out when to stick to the rules because they shouldn't be bent or broken in that particular case. And when to say, hey, we should bend the rule or make an exception in this case for this common sense reason. You need someone with enough common sense to know when to apply rules and when not to. And in this case, I don't think we were dealing with idiots. I think we were dealing with a shady casino that just felt like keeping the extra $500. They just felt like we found a way to get out of paying it. We like having the promotion to draw people in, but we don't like having to pay it out. So we can save ourselves 500 bucks over this technicality. So screw him. Screw all the business he's given us. Big middle finger to him. He doesn't get the 500 we can legally not pay him, so screw him. That's what I think was their attitude. 
And to give him food comps in lieu of that is crap. Even if uh, even if he did misunderstand that the food comps weren't going to post for 48 hours or whatever, uh, I'm not worried about that. But, but even giving him food comps instead of this is crap. And I, I don't know why this guy is now deleting his tweets over it. But uh, I, I think I do know why, because he, he told me privately, and I, I'm sorry if I'm revealing anything that... Uh, I shouldn't be, but he, he told me privately you know, he, he he'd like he's kind of still wants to come back there. There aren't that many choices around Springfield, and I understand that. You know, like it'd be like uh, if I had a dispute with Commerce, and you know, I could say fuck Commerce and never going to come back there. But the truth is, I'm going to want to come back to Commerce. If they did something really bad to me, I wouldn't come back. But if they did something kind of annoying to me, uh, I may come back anyway. Because there's there's not a whole lot of choice if I want to play limit hold'em at decent stakes. Actually, there is now. They have the bike now too, and uh, I guess there's a few gardens. There's a few others that run kind of like middle upper limit hold'em, but still, uh, sometimes if there's not a lot of choice, you've got to eat your pride a little bit. So I, I got kind of understand, and it's up to this guy what he wants to hold them to. It's his money. I'm not going to say he has to do this. It's his choice. He has to live with whatever decision he makes, but uh, it's not a major thing. It's just a really, really shady and annoying thing that they did. And I, I think to, what's amazing to me is that players are not, like, shaming them hard over this. Instead, they're shaming this guy. You didn't have your ID. You're breaking the rules. Freaking idiots. Disposition says rule sticklers like that definitely can lack common sense critical thinking. Uh-oh, he else has lost audio. <laughs> I hope it's just on his end. Did I really lose audio? Let me see. I swear, if I lost connection, I'm going to be so pissed. No, no, we're still on. We're still on. Hopefully, if we lost audio, it's just for a second. We're still on. They scare me whenever they say in the chat room we lost audio. They scare me. I I believe he really lost audio. It's just, uh, I think it was on his end. Maybe we lost it for a second and came back. Actually, I can check if it broke. It does It does give me notification if it broke. No, it didn't even break. No, see, it was on your end disposition. But, yeah, thanks for telling me, though. I appreci- I'm not trying to shame you for this. I'm actually glad you're, you said that so I could look. Because sometimes I'm, like, just talking to myself and don't even know. Anyway, watch out for MGM Springfield. Make sure you have your ID on you at all times. And truthfully, it's smart to have your ID at all times. I've never been in a casino without ID. Never. Well, that's not true. In 1987... I was in a casino without ID because I was 15 and didn't have ID. And I wasn't supposed to be there. And I, I played video poker at the Las Vegas Hilton at a machine all the way against the wall, kind of in the corner where you could only see my back. And I was tall enough to where I could look like an adult if you don't see my face. If you saw my face, it was obvious I was not 21. I did not look old for my age. I looked like a 15-year-old when I was 15. But from the back, I... Looked like an adult. And it worked for a while until a security guard finally caught me. Nothing happened to me. He gave me a lecture. But that's the only time I was in a casino playing without ID. But not since I was old enough to have ID was I ever in a casino without ID. In general, you should always have ID on you. It's never a good idea to go without ID. I've told people that before. I'm sometimes like out with someone... And they'll mention, like, not bringing their ID with them. I go, why? That's a mistake. You should always have it. Like, in case something happens to you, people know to identify you. Like, you always want ID on you. 
It's a mistake not to have it. I feel uncomfortable if I don't have ID on me, to be honest. But but still, that's not an excuse for casinos to treat people. And there's a matter of good customer service practices. And if, if you have a bonus and someone wins it and they're they're eligible for it and they win it, and someone said, well, they're not eligible. He didn't have ID. Come on. I, I mean eligible in that uh, he's not banned and that he followed all the rules of the promotion. Uh, just because his ID got left in the car, that doesn't mean he's not eligible. It means they're trying to use a technicality to steal from him. Come on. It's BS. Someone said, well, they're not really stealing from him because he never actually had the money. They're just not paying him. I go, come on. Jeez. All righty. Let's move on. I was kind of passionate about that one. I just hate arguing with idiots who, who like, victim shame when casinos rip people off. I hate that. I hate when people victim shame victims of scammers, victims of casinos. Just focus on who really did the wrong deed there, not not on what the victim could have done differently to not be a victim. Come on. So stupid. All righty. WSOP.com is back in the news for not very good reasons. They are accused, and the video evidence does seem to support the claim that they accidentally did not ship the proper number of chips to the winner of a main pot in a tournament where there is a main pot and a side pot in a particular hand. So the wrong chips went to the wrong people, or the wrong amount of chips went to the right people, wrong amount of chips, which... If true, it's pretty bad. The only thing there's some doubt is that we were looking at a video of a hand replay, not of the actual play. So it's possible the hand replayer is broken, and it actually did ship the chips correctly. But it's also very possible the site malfunctioned. What happened here in this uh, replay, which I'm playing right now, the guy had ace-9 in the big blind, someone with a very short stack pushed, the person had like, uh, I think only a little bit more than the big blind. So someone pushed with a very short stack in late position. The small blind then tried to isolate the big blind out. The big blind, who was the one who took this video, it was his uh, his own video, his play, the big blind at ace nine offsuit and decided the small blind was full of crap and decided to go all in with the ace nine to scare the big blind back out. And it worked. We don't know what the small blind had because the small blind tossed his chips. So it ended up to the, the big blind against the all in. And because the all in had so little above the big blind, whatever the small blind raised, almost all of that, no matter who the pot was going to go to, at that point, almost all of that was going to uh, uh, to the big blind. Why? Well, let's think about this. Uh, I believe the big blind was like 4,000. I think the short stack had like 4,300. And the small blind made it like 16,000. So the only thing, even if the all-in wins the hand, the most the all-in can win is his original 4,300, 4,300 out of the small blind, and 4,300 out of the big blind, plus the, the plus the annies. That's all he can win. The remainder of that 16,000 that the small blind put in has to go to the big blind, 
because the big blind, uh, because the small blind folded to the big blinds all in. So that remaining uh, 12,000, uh, or almost 12, 11,700 was supposed to be a, uh, a side pot that uh, was supposed to go to the big blind, even if the big blind did not win the hand against the all-in. So the, the board ran out, and the all-in actually did win with king three, flopped to three, the ace nine didn't hit anything, so the all-in won. So the all-in should have gotten the 4,300 from the big blind, 4,300 out of the small blind, and its own money back, and the antes, but the big blind should have gotten almost 12,000 from the small blind. Because that was a side pot. And the small blind folded, so obviously he loses the small blind big blind battle. Well, what this replay shows is that despite all this, somehow the big blind ended up with fewer chips than he started with, which, which is really bad. So it was playing this again, and sorry for the little noise in the background here. In fact, I'll just mute it because it's not, there's no sound that matters in this. So he started with 175,000, and uh, so the uh, the and what's funny is it says dollars, and I hate when it says dollars for tournament chips. It's not really dollars, but let's, let's put that aside, okay? All in for forty three forty six. It's two K four K the blinds, and coming into the hand, the big blind had one seventy five two fifty two. When the hand was over, at least according to this hand replayer, the big blind has finished with 170.906. Now, I see what happened here. In the, it, there's an 11654 that's still sitting in the middle that doesn't show itself shipping to the big blind. And I guess it's possible that the hand replayer just doesn't finish that off even though it really went to him. But this guy seems like he uh, knows what he's doing, who's complaining here. So it's hard for me to believe that he would have complained not understanding that he actually got that 11,000 whatever after the hand history was over. It seems like he just really didn't get it. So it does look like that this is a glitch in the software. I don't know how it happened, but somehow the software screwed up and uh, it didn't realize that if the small blind folds against the big blinds all in, that that, those chips go to the big blind no matter what. And uh, as you can imagine on Twitter, this was blowing up and... uh, Max Pescatori commented on this and said that the video is cut off and we don't get to see what he starts with the next hand, which is really more important. So it is possible that this guy just didn't bother to look at the next hand and still and really 
legitimately believes he didn't get that 11,000 whatever when he uh, he really did. But it's also very possible this is a bug. And a bigger problem is that he's getting, he's been getting no response from anyone at WSOP.com, even though he's been tweeting at them, even though he's been going very public with this. He's getting no response from them, which is, which is not surprising because WSOP.com poker room manager Bill Reaney is the most non-responsive poker room manager I've ever seen. And I, I had that experience with him personally. I bashed him for this publicly when I had an issue in 2013 where he wasn't responding to me. So much that Seth Polanski called me up and had a long conversation with me about my bashes on Bill Reaney. And Seth was kind of defending him, and I was saying to Seth, look, you know, he's not being responsive with, with players here, and this is bad. And Seth, you know, he kind of didn't want to concede that because this is a coworker, and I understood that, but, you know, I could tell he understood. And I'm like, look, I'm not just bashing to bash or be an asshole. I, I really... I, I, I have a big issue, which I won't go into at the time, but I've got an issue here that can't get resolved that isn't a very complicated issue, but not a, not only uh, isn't he being responsive, apparently he now he's purposely ignoring me. And, and I'm hearing this is happening to so many other players too, not just me. Bill Reaney now, despite being the poker room manager of WSOP.com, if you attempt to look at his tweets at uh, Twitter.com slash Bill Reaney, they are protected. You can't even see his tweets. <laughs> Can you imagine the WSOP.com poker room manager has protected his tweets? That's worse than Jack Effel leaving Twitter. At least Jack Effel is gone from Twitter. Here, Bill Reaney's there. He's just protecting his tweets. You can't see his tweets. And they just don't respond. He he is so non-responsive, and I don't understand why they don't have a problem with that at, at, at the World Series of Poker. Now, yes, I know WSOP.com is not a major part of the brand. I know they, they're really making all their money from the main World Series and the circuit events and the Europe events. I know the, the .com is not a big part of their income stream. It may even be losing money, but still... How tough is it to hire a manager who's responsive to things like this? Not even something like, hey, we're looking into this. We're figuring this out. Sorry. Nothing. And players are getting very mad about this. Rini has also been known to block people, from what I hear. And not people who are being abusive, but I mean just people who are unhappy with something on WCB.com. Really bad. That's actually become the bigger story, in my opinion, is that there's no response on this. Rather than the fact that this happened. Glitches happen. It sucks that they happen. But uh, when they do happen, they need to be addressed immediately, at least privately to the guy. If they don't want to say publicly, they could at least say, okay, we'll be in contact with this player. We can't discuss this publicly at this time. At least say that. Nothing. According to the guy, he's not getting any response. And that's infuriating him and others who are observing this situation. And, And I don't blame everybody for being angry about this especially the victim of this. Actually, uh, you know, I just got something here over the wire. Uh, Bill Reaney just uh, sent me his response. It's funny, that's his usual response. That That's actually what he's told other people, too. 
We'll see how this plays out. I guess it's possible this guy is misreading the hand player the way it works. Maybe it did start him with the right amount of chips the next hand, but at least say that. I mean, like, why can't Reeney look at it and say, hey, you know, you were, you got the right thing. Look at the next hand. That's, that's a valid response. That's not violating any kind of privacy. At least respond to the guy in some way. Jeez. And I, I believe him and he's got no response because that was my experience too. Six years ago, that's what other people claim is their experience more presently. All right. We're going to move on. We've got uh, six topics left. Six. To- We've done 14 out of 20 topics. The show is now over six hours long. I hope to be done soon. I will admit that. But what I will do in the meantime is uh, I'm going to take a little break, a much-needed break, as I've done this long with a cold without taking any kind of break. And I can't have that. I'm going to play you the Eric Bensamokin ad, take a little break, get a drink, uh, rinse my mouth with my biotin oral rinse, and I will be back on this impossibly long radio show. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us.
All right, missed it by a few seconds, but whatever. Be happy I'm still on. Be happy I'm still here. All righty, we're going to move on to the next topic. Maurice Hawkins is our next topic. And let's see here. See, I forgot to note when the World Series topic was. Yeah, I have to go log all this at the end of the show. That's the, that's the other crappy thing here. Is that uh, when this is done, I've got to come up with 20 timestamps. Let me show you what work I have to do during this whole thing. What I do is when I get to a topic, I note when I started the topic on the clock. And then I go through the actual show afterwards and find the exact timestamp pretty much to the second. So you can jump to the topics you want to hear if you don't want to hear the whole show. And with 20 topics, I have to go come up with 20 timestamps. But I actually forgot to note a few of them, like the one about WSB.com. I had to go find it again. What a pain in the ass. Okay. Maurice Hawkins. Let's talk about him. Last year... I did a topic about Maurice Hawkins that was similar to this one. And that was he was accused of uh, ripping off another poker player. This was this thread was created actually in uh, 2017. How time flies. It was actually created not by me, but by user A Hoosier A, who by the way now lives in Vegas. I, I met him this year. Nice guy. I'll probably see him sometime uh, next time I go to Vegas. But uh, he created this thread on July 1st, 2017, that a guy named Hal Lewis claimed that uh, he was a backer of Maurice Hawkins in the 2016 World Series of Poker and is owed $22,000. This was two years ago. And uh, there was some kind of dispute, and uh, eventually it was resolved. It was resolved, quote, amicably, and said to be a, quote, misunderstanding in a subsequent article on cardplayer.com. <laughs> now, the reason for the laughter is this. It wasn't a misunderstanding. When someone comes out publicly and says they were screwed by a uh, person they backed, they do that usually at the point when they feel they can't communicate with the person anymore or the person will not uh, give them satisfaction. If there is a misunderstanding that is easily cleared up before such a thing would happen, you end up saying it's a misunderstanding when you've come to some kind of agreement, you've come to some kind of terms, you've settled it, and you go, oh crap, what about the public shit show we created? What do we do about this? And that's the way they do it. Like, uh, I'm not saying this is exactly what happened, but Maurice may have said, hey, look, you, you trashed my rep over this, so I, I kind of don't want to even pay you. I don't want to cooperate with you because you've trashed my rep now. And the guy's like, look, 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 you know, 
just pay me the freaking money and uh, I'll come out and say it was just a misunderstanding and we resolved it amicably. Okay, fine. Here's your money. Okay, fine. I'll say it was a misunderstanding. And the guy's just happy to have his money and walks off. I'm not saying that's the way it went down. I'm saying that that's the way it could have gone down. And usually when there's a, quote, misunderstanding to explain something that seemed to be anything but a misunderstanding, when something gets worked out and is said to have been a misunderstanding, that usually means that some settlement came and that a condition of the settlement was that you have to classify the whole thing as a misunderstanding rather than a wrongdoing on the, pers- on the part of the person who was accused. And there's a lot of things people will say that isn't true to get their money back. So a scumbag rips you off. You call the scumbag out. The scumbag eventually says, look, if you, if you, take, if you take back everything you said in public, then, uh, then I'll pay your money. The person says back, well, I'm not going to take it back or look like a liar. It's like, well, how about saying it's a misunderstanding so it, it won't look bad for either of us? Okay, fine. I'll say it's a misunderstanding once you pay me my money. Okay, here's your money. Okay, I'll say it's a misunderstanding. Uh, you see how it works. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. But whatever. I hadn't heard of any kind of previous scandal involving Maurice Hawkins. I heard of a few small things that people didn't get along with him at the table, whatever, but, you know, whatever. There was a situation last year where someone actually called him the N-word at the World Series of Poker. But uh, there, Maurice, I wouldn't say he was fully the victim because he was taunting the guy, but... Obviously, the guy then shouldn't be using a racial slur. That's never appropriate to use in public, especially at the World Series of Poker. That guy got disqualified. But I always kind of felt about Maurice Hawkins that there was just something about him that seemed like he was kind of like a scandal waiting to happen. It was just a feeling I got. Even before this thing that happened two years ago with this Hal Lewis guy, I just felt like there was something about him that just seemed kind of... I don't know, just a guy who you wouldn't be surprised at all to find out that he was uh, ripping people off in some way or wasn't exactly what he appeared to be. Just the vibe I got from him. By the way, nothing to do with his race. Uh, Maurice Hawkins is black, but it has nothing to do with his race. There's uh, plenty of black guys in poker. Not that many black guys in poker, let's be honest, Like as far as like known players, but... Um, you know, of, of the black guys in poker, there, there's a number of them that I would trust as much or even more than uh, most of the white players. So it's not about that. It's just something about his personality that kind of always made me think, you know, I could totally find, I could totally see one day that this guy's going to be in a scandal. That's always kind of the way I felt about him, but without any real evidence to back it up. It's kind of a feeling. I've had this feeling about others, too. He's not the only one. There's, there's been people I meet in poker, and they haven't done anything yet, so I don't want to call them out. I, I don't want to call someone and say, you know what, he kind of seems like he'll be a scammer one day. That's unfair to say. You know, someone could say that about me. And I say, okay, what evidence do you have? Oh, nothing, but uh, I just feel like you're going to be one one day. Like, you can't say that about someone publicly. You can think it, though. You can think it. That was kind of what I thought about him, but I didn't want to say it. Just something about his demeanor just screamed to me like he's going to be involved in scandals. And this is before he was involved in scandals. So this is the first scandal two years ago, and I never really believed that amicable story, but hey, at least it got resolved in some way. But now we have this second one. 
And the second one looks like it's not going to be resolved, quote, amicably. A guy named Randy Garcia, who's on Twitter as Randy Viva 2, Randy V-I-V-A 2. I hadn't heard of him before, but this is what he said. PSA, meaning public service announcement, no one ever staked Maurice Hawkins. He has owed me $103,000 for two years now. I have proof of him confirming this. Keep saying to me, be patient, after he has cashed for over $1 million, yet still refuses to pay. Have filed a lawsuit against him. Please retweet this to help spread the word. And people have, by the way. He says, let me be clear. For two years, I've kept it private and out of respect for him and hoping he would have some integrity and be a man of his word. However, he clearly has no respect for me, so I feel obligated to let others know so they don't make the same mistake I did by trusting him. So this guy held it in for two years and finally let it out. Maurice Hawkins did respond to him saying, number one, I didn't scam your silly ass. You loaned me money. Number two, I paid you on a monthly basis until one month I couldn't pay you and the bills. Number three, you threatened me and disrespect me as a man, telling me, give you 30K or else. Number four, now after social media shaming, you want me to be amicable. Go fuck yourself. Mm. And weirdly, Maurice, like, copy and pasted this over and over and over again to every single person who responded in that thread at that point. Really weird. Like just over and over and over the same thing. He also included for some reason something that uh, was sent to Maurice Hawkins uh, I think by a lawyer. I don't know why he included this. But it's th- th- Maurice posted this. Dear Mr. Hawkins, That was quite a turn of events this morning. First, again, you offered a proposed settlement and then withdrew that offer because of my client's social media efforts. Mr. Garcia said he'd be willing to try and rehabilitate your reputation by sending a further blast that an agreement has been reached to address the judgment. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Mr. Garcia said that he has been contacted by several poker-related publications about his prior blast and the underlying judgment, but will forbear from speaking with those publications in order to give the party some time to reach a repayment deal. Regards, Joel Bloomberg. We don't know for sure who Joel Bloomberg is, at least from this post. But uh, I have a feeling we know who uh, Joe Bloomberg is. Just you know, a few reasons you can tell that that's probably his attorney. Joel Bloomberg, who's writing on behalf of this uh, Randy Garcia. Why would we think Joel Bloomberg is the lawyer here? Why, why not just a friend? Why not just someone who's assisting in the matter? Why would it be a lawyer, Joel Bloomberg? Okay. If you know, if I wasn't Jewish playing things like that, I, w- I would get so many accusations about being anti-Semitic. Anyway, uh, Joel Bloomberg, probably his attorney wrote that and for some reason he for some reason Maurice included this it makes him look worse that's I don't understand why he's the one posting I would under, I would think more that Randy Garcia would post this but I think Maurice is trying to show that 
Randy is willing to rehabilitate his reputation if he gets paid. But what's wrong with that? Like that, that's that's reasonable. That's saying, hey, look, you know, yes, I shamed you on social media after two years, but look, we we can kind of reverse this if you pay me now. And Maurice is like, hey, look, you're trying to you know, look what you're trying to do to me. I'm like, no, no, you, if you owe him money. So he says, you loaned me money. I don't believe that. Then he says, uh, you're disrespecting me as a man, telling me give me 30K or else. It's not just disrespecting you as a man. It's like you, you owe the guy money, and, and it appears you're not paying him as much as you could. So he's mad and saying, give it to you, or he's going to let everyone know. And he says, after the social media shaming. Well, it's not really shaming. It's just it's telling the truth about dishonest behavior. And at some point, people have to put out the truth about you. It's not disrespecting you as a man. You disrespected him as a man, it looks like, by ripping him off. Taking a look at Maurice Hawkins' Hendon mob to see how well he's done in tournaments. And yes, of course, he's backed in some way. But uh, still, he's done quite well in 2019. I don't like looking at a guy's overall caches. I mean, he has 3.7 million, which is good, but that doesn't mean much when you compare it to buy-ins. But, but listen to this. Listen to it in 2019. Now, I'm going to skip pa- – he plays a ton of tournaments, Maurice. He's, like, constantly playing tournaments. So I, I'm going to skip past, the like, the four-figure caches of where there's a lot of them. But on March 1st, he, he, he cashed for 13K. On March 22nd, he cashed for 97K. Uh, and these are all for buy-ins of, like, Usually between uh, 400 to 1700. He's not ending like 10K events, from what I can see. So 13K, 97K, 44K. This is all in a span of one and a half months. Uh, then on May 1st, uh, 31K. Then on May 10th, 10K. Then on, on 20, May 21st, 22K. Then he had a number of uh, four figure scores at the World Series. So you know, he's had a. A number of scores here where you think that he's got to be up in, in the tournament, at least before the main event. Maybe during the World Series he lost because it looks like in the – and he did play an event, a $3,000 buy-in where he cashed, like kind of min-cashed there. So it's possible that he was a loser at the World Series overall. It looks like he cashed about uh, you know, maybe around twenty k the World Series this year. But if he was like playing a ton of tournaments for all seven weeks, that twenty k is not going to cut it. You're going to be a loser then. Those buy-ins add up very fast. But uh, still, he. But prior to that, he was having a pretty good year. And I, I think this Randy Garcia was getting mad that he wasn't getting paid. He also had a 75K win on an $1,100 buy-in in uh, October 2018. He had a $113,000 win in August 2018. Finishing first at the Heartland Poker Tour for sixteen fifty buy-in. Maurice definitely has some poker talent. He won seventy one K at uh, a twenty two hundred dollar event in New Orleans, finishing first. I see why people back the guy. It seems like he's a, a pretty good tournament player at No Limit Hold'em. But uh clearly he's not getting paid. This Randy Garcia, and, and I guess he sees Maurice hit these scores of like the high five figures, sometimes low six figures, and then he barely gets anything, and he's like, what the hell? 
Now, yes, again, if, if Maurice is back for these events, he doesn't keep that that kind of money. But still, I have a feeling that Maurice wasn't paying him anything or very much at all for a long time. And then finally, Randy's like, look, you know, if, you, if you're doing fairly well and I'm still getting nothing, then, then clearly you're just never going to pay me. I, I think it was pretty much like that. Uh, Poker News surprisingly did an article about this. And they, they don't usually get involved in disputes like these, but they actually did an article which uh, actually got some praise that they did this. The article in Poker News is called Poker Backer Calls Out Maurice Hawkins Court Ordered for uh, 103K. The author of this article, the one who wrote the article about me recently, Chad Holloway. So good for Chad for doing this article. And it said that uh, Randy Garcia also spoke to Poker News to elaborate. He told Poker News that he met Hawkins on the World Series of Poker circuit back in 2017. So this is right around the time that Hawkins was having his issues with that other guy that was resolved, uh, quote, amicably. Randy Garcia was busy with work and said that he wanted to kind of be involved with poker, but with, you know, didn't have the time to play so much, so he backed Hawkins. He said, in March of 2017, I began to stake, Maurice, to stake Maurice Hawkins by providing him a bankroll for 50% of his action. He did very well for me, and then then in May, before the World Series of Poker, he came at third at a circuit event uh, after being the chip leader with only a hand, handful of people left. The next day, I got a message that he lost our entire bankroll playing blackjack because he was depressed and in the casino alone. Oh, boy. So what he's claiming, and it's possible that Maurice just made this up and and just didn't want to pay him, but uh, it's also possible this really happened. But he's saying that uh, Maurice, the third place, was disappointing for him because he had a lot of chips and there were barely anyone left, and and Maurice got bad luck or whatever and finished third, which when it really looked like he was going to be first. And so he was so depressed about it that he just went to go play blackjack and shot it all off. So he said, instead of blowing up, I responded with kindness and understanding. Come to find out that he was being sued by another lawyer and he used the exact same excuse with him about losing the bankroll playing blackjack. Interesting. In order for me to see my money again, I knew I had to give him some additional funds for the 2017 World Series of Poker. During that World Series of Poker, he did well, final tabling two separate events. I flew out to Vegas to collect my half, and that's when the excuses started. He paid me only a fraction of what I was owed so he, continue, so he could continue to play events. Every time I asked for my share, he said, be patient. When it was clear I wasn't going to get paid, I stopped sending him money and the deal was over. He said he couldn't pay me and that on the next big score he would get me. Since our deal has ended, he has cashed for almost $1 million and still told me to be patient. He has a number of six-figure scores and refuses to pay me even $1. We then set up a monthly payment plan, and after the first two months, he decided to no longer pay me. It's been almost two years now. I've kept this matter private, hoping he would have enough integrity and respect for me to pay me back, so two years later, I had no choice but to sue him and expose him. I want the poker community to be aware of this and so no one makes the same mistake I did. Wow. Okay, I believe all of this, by the way. I don't have proof it's true, but I, I believe it. I bet you probably believe it too. What he did, by the way, with the two months is very, very, very common with deadbeats. What they love to do is set up a payment plan. And when I say they, I mean like all deadbeats. They, they, this is very common. They set up a payment plan. They swear they're going to keep to it. And then to show you they're serious, they will send you the payment after the first month very reliably, often early, to show you how serious they are. 
Then for the second month, they send you that as well. And you think, okay, sweet, I'm going to get this every month. Then you never see the third payment. And that's it. For some reason, they love to send two payments. Sometimes the second one's a little bit late, but you get it, and then the third you never see, and that's it. Very common. I don't know why. They, they all love to do that. I don't understand. For them, I guess it buys time. I don't understand why I do that, and then two months later, they know you stiffed them. But that's what they do. Poker News said that they got a judgment that was issued by the Circuit Court of the 15th Judicial District or the 15th Judicial Circuit in Palm Beach County, Florida that lists Randy Garcia as the plaintiff and Maurice Hawkins as the defendant and that a final hearing for damages came on May 21st of this year and they gave a default judgment for the plaintiff and that uh Maurice did not appear at the final hearing of damages, and the court ruled in favor for Randy Garcia for 103000 That didn't include interest and court costs, which bumped it up another 13000 or so. So apparently there's a court judgment which was verified by Poker News. Poker News texted this to po- or Hawkins texted this to Poker News. We have handled this amicably. Where have we heard that before? He loves to handle things amicably, doesn't he? We've handled this amicably, and there's really nothing to write about. <laughs> I don't agree with that. While we did, while he did back me, we had many conversations and money transactions that had nothing to do with backing. Dude had what he presumed I owed him. I was making payments. He wanted a lump sum. He said he said he didn't get 30K. He was going to go on Twitter, contact the world, and defame my name. By getting people to post about loans as if it's poker news and it's really not. Had nothing to do with backing. Basically say shit that Twitter trolls love like, like scum and that I'm a scammer. Then people run with it. He made money off me like everybody else had in the past. When I borrow from someone that isn't news, but when you're a poker player, I guess people find a way to make it news. I am all these things when I didn't want to give him the lump sum, but yet I bet I bet the story won't be spun like that. Like I said earlier, it's been handled and he will validate that. Well, then shortly after that, indeed, Poker News got an email from Randy Garcia who asked them not to run this article and said that they were in the process of reaching an agreement with Hawkins on a repayment plan. What the hell? What the hell? So the guy talks to Poker News. He puts this out on Twitter, this Randy Garcia. He talks to Poker News. He gives the whole story. Poker News puts the effort out into doing the story. And then Hawkins must have said, okay, man, I'm serious. I'm really going to pay you now. Just, Just please pull this back. And Garcia's like, Okay, fine. Hey, uh, Poker News, can, can you print this, please? Can you put it, please put your article in the trash? So credit to Chad Holloway and Poker News. They wrote, in the name of transparency and in the interest of the poker community, Poker News declined Garcia's request but did offer him the opportunity to add to the official record. Very good. 
So what he added was, my lawsuit against Maurice Hawkins is currently in the process of being amicably resolved. How many people is Maurice Hawkins going to rip off before getting amicable resolution over – how many times can this happen that there's amicable resolution after people accuse him of ripping them off? I mean, come on. We we all know what's going on here. We all know what's happening. There's only so many times you can keep doing this. The first time, okay, maybe some people will think – Maybe some people will think this is uh, really was a misunderstanding. You, you can't keep doing this. But th- this is uh, obvious here what's going on. Obvious. Now, I actually got some email from Maurice Hawkins, not this year, but I got this after... The first story that was posted up there by A. Hoosier A. I got an email, and I didn't read these to you before because I don't really like sharing emails with, uh, you know, private emails with you guys on the radio for the most part because I, I don't think that's right to do. But uh, this is what I got. I might as well read it now because Maurice has already done this twice, and I'm, I, I, I don't see a reason to keep this private anymore. I got a weird email on September 25th, 2017. It says, under Florida statute, any picture of someone charged or booked with a a crime that consequently has been dropped and not charged with that crime yet being distributed as fact is defamation of character. This comes up when you Google search my name. I'm asking you to delete it and take it off the Internet. It is nowhere to be found when proven when because when proven not guilty of the crime, it should never be posted. And he, he, he linked that thread. That A. Hoosier A. created. Per my lawyer, I'm not able to respond to the other defaming claims you have allowed on your site. To be clear, I'm asking, requesting you cease distributing my mugshot of a crime that I was not found not guilty of. He's talking about uh, a mugshot that someone had posted, had reposted that was elsewhere on the internet in that same thread. And it comes up in a Google search of my name. It's in the link below to aid with the elimination of this off your site. Um, and then he's like sent this a million times in a row. <laughs> Uh, not really. I, I got like uh, a few in a row. So I said, hello, Poker Fraud Alert is a site dedicated to the exposure of poker scammers, poker scandals, and shady companies within the poker community. The thread you re- reference is primarily in regard to the allegation you scammed $22,000 from a backer. As you are not denying this, nor are you presenting any sort of defense of that allegation, we cannot remove that allegation. However, it seems you are concerned about the lesser matter regarding being charged with a crime. Florida statutes do not apply to our site, as we are not located in Florida, nor do any of the site's owners or managers live in Florida. However, even if we go by the statute you quoted, it states it states that you are not that is not allowed to distribute as fact when the charges have been dropped. As a result, a simple update stating the charges were dropped should satisfy this requirement. Please let us know if you'd like us to add that update to the thread. I will do you one better, though. If the allegations of you stealing 22K are indeed false, and I mean actually false, not simply unprovable in a court of law, then I will remove the thread entirely. Therefore, if you really did not steal 22K from a backer, please explain the relevant information and the threat will be removed if it's convincing. Otherwise, it would be a disservice to remove this information as the site exists to warn the community of scammers, cheaters, and angle shooters within poker. I promise to keep these communications confidential. Well, okay. <laughs> I did for two years, but now, now that this has happened a second time, I've, I'm, I'm unpromising to keep them, unconfident, to keep them confidential. Um, he said, you claim to be a legitimate site. That's the, I mean, you keep the promise all this time. You got to give me credit there. Uh, you claim to be a legitimate site that's saving the poker world from the bad guys. Why would you post the things that aren't true and not, that, that aren't sure 
why wouldn't you post things that are true or factual? Not just false statements and slander. You post rumors and speculation. Good, good luck with your slanderous site. So I said, we're not interested in slandering anyone. As I said, we can update the thread to state you were judged not guilty in a court of law. He said, if that was the case, you wouldn't post things that aren't proven factual. As I said in the case I was saying, I scammed someone because good journalism fact checks and not just going on the rambling of a bitter business partner. Then again, I feel your site isn't in journalism. It's just tabloid posting whatever agenda you fee- see fit at the moment. Not the real story. And for the record, in America, people don't have to prove something is factual for it not to be blasted across the Internet. Good re- reporting or rep- reputable sites start with the truth before print, not print before truth. Again, you use the word scam. Nothing about what the dude claimed happened was a scam. But then again, like I said, your site seems like a total tabloid, not journalism. Good luck. Um, and, and that was it. I didn't even bother responding to that. And that, that was the end of everything. I don't think I responded. Let me go back. Uh, let me see. Did I respond? No, it doesn't look like I responded. So anyway, uh, that was that. And uh, the matter died. I never ended up changing anything because we, we didn't come to any kind of agreement. I thought I was being pretty fair there. I said, look, you know, I'm not going to remove your mugshot. I, I, I can say that you were judged guilt, not guilty of whatever you're accused. I can post that update, but I'm not going to remove a mugshot from something that you really were arrested for with, you know, if you got not guilty. And as far as this, the, the original point of the threat, I, I, I didn't say it directly, but I was implying I, I think you were guilty here. And if, if you can convince me of otherwise that this whole thing was you being unfairly accused, I'll just wipe the whole thread. But I, I you'll have to show me something that seems legitimate. And I, I, I knew very well the guy was probably guilty of what he was first being accused. I just didn't have the full details to prove it, but it seemed very likely from everything I saw. And I, I know from 20 years in poker when someone seems guilty in this situation. And the truth is, usually when a backer comes out and accuses someone who they were backing of ripping them off, just about 100% of the time the backer's telling the truth, or almost the whole truth. It's very rare that someone is falsely accused of screwing a backer. It's happened, but hardly ever. So we've seen like the same story now twice, 2017 and 2019, with Maurice Hawkins. And every time he claims he's innocent. Every time it's a misunderstanding. But good for poker news for printing this story even after the guy who cooperated with them and gave them the information said, hey, can you take this all back? And Holloway's like, no, we're not taking it back. You wanted to put this out there, we're putting it out there. Just because Hawkins talked you out of putting it out there doesn't mean that we're going to take it back now. Good for him. Totally like Chad Holloway. Before, you know, I I, I got a feeling that Chad Holloway was the Good guy, a long time ago. There's your evidence right there. I wouldn't suggest backing Maurice Hawkins at this point. Even though he seems pretty good at poker. If you're still up, you can call in 775-FRAUD-55. I'm not going to have very long to talk to you. It's 414 in the morning. 775-372-8355 is the number. Let's move on. 
getting kind of close to the end here. Let's see where we are here. Five topics left. Two in a row which are going to be pretty similar to one another. Two embezzlement topics in the same show. The first one is about Dennis Bielden. Or Bleeden, not Bielden. So late, I'm hard, it's getting hard to read. Dennis Bleeden, who has appeared on Live at the Bike, has uh, been seen playing high-stakes poker. He is accused of scamming a very large sum of money in order to play poker and do other kinds of gambling. Very large sum of money. One hundred billion dollars. No, no, but but far far more than this. One million dollars. Yeah, he he's accused of embezzling twenty-two million dollars. Yeah. Pretty bad. People have seen him before on Live at the Bike and other streams. Some people kind of got a bad vibe from this guy. And it turns out that that was correct. The LA Times did an article about Dennis Bleeden. And it's a pretty big deal because of how much money he stole or alleged to have stolen. The LA Times article is as follows. Let me bring this up here. It says a former executive at a digital marketing company that represents social media influencers is accused of embezzling $22 million from his employer and using the funds to enter professional poker tournaments and cryptocurrency investments, federal prosecutors said on Thursday. This was uh, earlier in July. Dennis Bleeden, 29, of Nevada, was indicted on 11 counts of wire fraud, one account of aggravated identity theft, and two counts of forfeiture. He worked for Style Hall, which managed a lot of different social media stars, including 5,000 YouTube stars. And this is a very big business. They relocated to London in April 2019 obviously made a lot of money if they had that much for him to embezzle without them noticing for a while. He used some of the money to enter high-stakes poker tournaments. He did have some success. He won a million dollars at an L.A. Poker Classic event. He also entered two very high-stakes tournaments at the February 2019 LAPC with buy-ins of uh, 52000 and 103000 This is all with the, the stolen money. The smartest thing he did, I guess, if you can say any of this was smart, which it wasn't, but the smartest thing he did was transfer $8.47 million to cryptocurrency accounts he had. Some of this he cashed back out to enter poker tournaments, but he, he stole over $8 million just to transfer it to cryptocurrency. The reason why this was the smartest thing he did was that uh, he could have just run off at that point. That would have been, if he wanted to get away with this, 
the smartest thing you can do is transfer the stolen money to cryptocurrency and then take off to a country where they're not going to extradite you. And then you can still access the money because it's in cryptocurrency format, which can't be seized. That's, that's, that's the best way to do it. You're never coming back to the U.S. or any company or any country that would cooperate with the U.S. to extradite you, but at least you can get away and live freely and you'll have a lot of money to do it. What's not smart is to do this and then stick around in the U.S., which is what he did. They also claim that uh, he did other things. He, he spent over a million bucks of this embezzled money to pay off personal credit card debts. He also stole $1.2 million and wrote checks with it directly to poker players. Presumably he lost money in games to poker players and then uh, wrote them checks and they accepted the checks because he was probably a, a fish in these cash games or at least the easiest spot in the game and they were very willing to have him in the game writing checks and assume they'd be good because he kept entering all these tournaments and I guess at the moment the checks were good. And now I'm wondering if they're going to come after these poker players, not criminally, of course, but uh, come after them civilly to recover the money since this was not his money to spend. This was embezzled money. And the question is, uh, you know, if, if, he, if he bought the if he bought poker chips with the embezzled money and lost it, then for sure it couldn't be recovered. But since he wrote direct checks to these players, can they, this money be recovered? I, I have a feeling the answer is yes. We, we should have had Eric Benzamokin on for this segment, but... Uh, I doubt he's up at 4.20 in the morning. He also created a bogus lease, allegedly, for a condominium in Rosarito Beach, Mexico. And in order to get this condo, he forged the signature of someone else at Style Hall. And then he was claiming that the condo was being rented for business purposes. So even the condo he had in Rosarito Beach, uh, he was supposedly being rented by the uh, company Style Hall instead of by him personally. So with all the money he stole, he still didn't have enough to rent a condo. He, was a, he still did that. You know, he rented a condo with, uh, under the, someone else's name at Style Hall, forging his signature. He's also accused of forging wire transfer letters from Western Union to make it look like that some of the stolen money was to uh, actually pay legitimate debts to a client. Again, I don't know how he thought he was going to get away with that. So basically they owed some clients there, some of these influencers that they were representing, they owed the money that they had probably collected and then were going to forward on to the influencers. So instead of actually paying the influencers, he forged wire transfer letters to make it look like that the money he took out was going to the influencers when in reality he was just stealing it. But the the problem with this is the influencers are going to come forward and go, hey, where's the money you were going to pay me? And they're going, no, we, we gave it to you. I don't know, but you didn't pay me. And then the whole thing would fall apart. Like that, That's why this was so stupid. This would only work as like a short-term crime if you're going to get the money and get out of the country and dis- disappear. That's the only way you're going to get away, get away with this. Uh, but he stuck around. That's what's crazy. He was just like right there in Las Vegas and they grabbed him. If convicted of all charges, he could face more than 200 years in federal prison. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. People love to say, that. oh, he's facing up to 200 years. No, he's not. Uh, This is a financial crime. He did not physically harm anyone. 
he did steal a lot of money, allegedly, at $22 million, so he's not going to get a slap on the wrist, but he's not going to get 200 years for this. Like, you'd have to be like Bernie Madoff to get that. Even Bernie Madoff didn't get that, I don't think. Bernie Madoff got enough to where it's like a life sentence because of his age. But uh, I don't think he got 200 years. But he, he's like like the biggest financial criminal of all time. This guy isn't. This guy is pretty bad, but he's not a Bernie Madoff. So he's not going to get uh, 15. He's not going to get 200 years. I, I guess he's going to get about 15. I think when it all comes down, he's going to get 15 years. That's just totally my guess out of the air. But I, I, that was how it felt as I was reading this. I actually read this. Uh, I stopped to eat on the way home from the World Series of Poker. And I remember sitting in the place I was eating and looking at my phone, and, and this just broke at that point. And people were talking about the 200 years, and I tweeted, no, I, I, this looks like 15 to me. And some people agreed. So, pretty bad. Pretty bad to be embezzling that much money to play high-stakes poker. I mean, so this guy's entering tournaments for 50K, 100K, all with stolen money, playing in high-stakes cash games, pe- paying people with checks, and then uh, probably to buy more chips at the table, and then turns out the checks are with stolen money. What a disaster. And then he transfers 8-point-something million into cryptocurrency and then has no escape plan. He was so close to doing this right. He was so close to stealing the money and getting away with it, but then he just sticks around in Vegas after he died. I don't get it. I think this is just like gambling sickness. I don't even think this this had a real exit plan. Because you'd think once you get away with stealing that much and you convert it to cryptocurrency and there no one suspected anything yet, that's when you hop a plane to a place with no extradition and... You live your life there with the $8.4 million. That's what you do. By the way, this is from Disposition in chat. He said, I was recently at the card club here, and the guy that hit the bad beat jackpot is one of the two in the hand, but didn't have his ID on him. It's in the car. Management said, go get it when you have a chance, so we give you the funds. And that was a lot more than 500 Yeah. That's what a legitimate card room would do. Not not a shady one like MGM Springfield, which finds a way to steal it from people, apparently. Steal uh, rightfully one promos, that is. Not steal money out of their pocket, but you know, 500 you're supposed to have won that they don't give you, that's close to stealing, in my opinion. So, uh... MGM Springfield, by the way, if I have any of this wrong, feel free to uh, correct it, and I will put out a correction. I will even delete this segment if it turns out it's incorrect. But from everything I can see, it looks like it's correct. Maybe next year, next week we'll call them with Colonel Fabergham. I, I, I don't have the energy to do it right now. The colonel takes a lot out of me. I, I, I can't do it right now. All right, let's go on to the next uh, embezzlement situation. Not as much money, but it's an interesting story, arguably more interesting than the Dennis uh, bleed-in story. This is with Robert Alexander, who isn't 
really well known in poker. Like Dennis Bleeden was known to some people. Robert Alexander was not really a known poker player. But it looks like he probably played some poker, but his story itself is probably more interesting. If you've ever played any of the Grand Theft Auto games, then there's a good chance that you were playing something that Robert Alexander had his hand in. In fact, uh, you almost surely were. Because Robert Alexander, in the late 90s, was the president of the video game company Jack of All Games. Jack of All Games was then sold to Take-Two Interactive in 1998. That sale got Alexander $30 million. And he stayed on as an employee of Jack of All Games to help distribute Grand Theft Auto that year in 1998. That was when the first Grand Theft Auto game came out, which was wildly successful and many sequels followed. Very, very successful video game series. However, in 1999, just a year later, now 20 years ago, they fired Alexander for unknown reasons. But he already made $30 bucks on that sale, so he did pretty well. So he was in his early 30s. He had $30 bucks to his name. Even if he was out of a job, that's still a pretty sweet position to be in. In the years following... Robert Alexander shot off a lot of his net worth through crazy spending and gambling. At one point, he bragged about a 2004 run-up in Vegas where he won $7.8 million at the Golden Nugget. Well, I bet your next question is, yeah, but how much did he lose? Exactly. Usually when high-stakes gamblers brag about a run-up. It's not the first time they played high-stakes, whatever they were playing, and just went on a super hot streak and crushed the casino. Usually that run-up is preceded by a lot of beatdowns by the casino, and then they finally get on a run where they win a bunch of money straight, only to have that run end and they give it all back. Usually those run-ups are just uh, a little blip in what's going to be devastation at the hands of the casino. Because these guys are never smart enough to walk away when they beat the odds and temporarily get ahead of the casino. They always think it's going to stay this way, they keep playing, and they lose. He wasn't doing positive expectation gambling. He was just shooting off. And at one point he got lucky and probably won $8 million straight and then uh, shot it off. You see how high he must have been playing to win the type of money. He wasn't, he wasn't playing slot machines and having to hit a jackpot. He was, he was probably playing high-stakes blackjack or whatever. High six craps, and you know eventually what happens. He got divorced in 2006 after being married for 17 years. During the divorce proceedings, he claimed to be broke. It's possible that was a lie. It's possible he was engaging in creative accounting to avoid giving anything to his ex-wife. But regardless, I, I think it probably was true that he was mostly broke. Because in 2007... He's accused now of having taken a loan of $200,000 while at the craps table from a friend and then never paid back. So there, you know, he's playing high-stakes craps with a friend, goes busto and says to his friend, hey, man, you know, can you give me $200,000? I'll, I'll pay, you, you know, pay you back real soon. I just don't have it on me. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, here's two hundred k thinking that Alexander's super rich, and then Alexander loses that and then say, hey, yeah, I'll get you, and then just never pays him back. So just two hundred k 
far cry from the days when he hit 30 million just uh, eight years prior. So uh, there are other stories of him owing money to people. Patrick Antonius, this is where there's a poker connection, claims that Robert Alexander owes him $700,000. Antonius did not explain how or why or from when, but it's assumed that he probably loaned it to Alexander during a high-stakes poker game. Probably Alexander tried to play uh, a high-stakes poker game, and he was the fish. And Antonius assumed that uh, Alexander was rich and could pay him back. Probably loaned him money at the table. Alexander probably lost it and then never paid Antonius. Uh, and th- this is more common than you think of these very high-stakes games where they loan the fish money. Basically, they, they give their own money to the fish to continue playing, and then the fish loses, and then they never get paid. Some people say it's predatory. It's, it's really not, but they also know they're taking a risk when they do this. And they, they're aware the fish is probably going to walk away with nothing anyway, though, though sometimes they can get screwed. If it's not heads up, then you know, sometimes the fish can lose, but lose it to somebody else. But sometimes they'll do that to keep the fish in action, and they, they will take the chance that maybe the fish is going to screw them. But all of these things were just loans that he took that he never paid back, which, while crappy, none of these things are crimes. But... Uh, Robert Alexander is now charged with a crime not related to any of this, but what got him into hot water was a company he started in 2013 called Kizang, K-I-Z-Z-A-N-G. Kizang was supposedly a promotional provider of free-to-play sweepstakes, slots, and sports contests with real cash rewards. That's what they were supposed to be. They were supposed to promote these uh, free sweepstakes contests and other contests where people can actually win real money. I I don't know how these were supposed to be funded and how the site was supposed to make money. And apparently Alexander didn't really know either because Kazang never had any kind of real income source. I don't know how he pitched it. He must have claimed that maybe they could sell advertising. Whatever it was, he sold a lot of people on investing in this including some famous people. So there's a picture of Robert Alexander, who, by the way, is is a very unattractive guy. He's a short guy with a huge double chin. and He's kind of heavy, but he's not, like, obese. But he's one of these guys who's kind of, like, moderately fat that it, like, all goes into his face. <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure you've seen people who are, like, really, really fat, but somehow their face looks totally normal, or if you just see their face in a picture, they don't look fat at all. And then you've seen other people who have a really fat face and then are only like a little bit fat. So he's the latter. He's someone who's like heavy but not obese, but yet his face looks really fat. and He's got a giant double chin. And he's short and he's a very unattractive guy. Uh, But there's a picture of him with Charles Oakley, former basketball star Charles Oakley. And they're both wearing... Kazang shirts and they're both pointing to Kazang, the Kazang logo on their shirt and they're both standing in front of uh, a wall where there's a Kazang logo and Sports Illustrated logo. So he, he pitched this to Charles Oakley. I'm not sure if Oakley invested in this, but others invested. In fact, according to the SEC, 
Robert Alexander raised about $9 million from 53 different investors total. And he also lied about being the creator of Grand Theft Auto rather than just being the president of the company that created it and later a distributor of it. So he he had a hand in in Grand Theft Auto, but he didn't create it. But he lied about that too in order to make the investment better because basically what he was saying is, hey, look, I'm the one who made Grand Theft Auto. I'm the creator of that. Look how well that did. This is a new thing I'm creating now in 2013. You better get on the ground floor of this. It'll be like the next Grand Theft Auto, even though it's very different. So that that worked, and people invested about $9 million in it total. Well, unfortunately, Kazang never really got off the ground. That's why you never heard of it. It never really had any kind of income source. The SEC said that upon investigation. And supposedly, while Alexander did have ideas that that Kazang could work and and did want it to work, Uh, he couldn't control himself, and when it wasn't making any money and had no real immediate path to making money, he started just simply embezzling the $9 million that was invested because it just was too tempting not to. Allegations in the criminal case claim that he embezzled $404,000 for use in casinos, $579,000 for credit card bills, sounds familiar like the other story, he allegedly embezzled another 400000 for other purposes, such as buying his daughter a car. I don't know where the rest of the $9 million went, but uh, apparently it's gone. Those that I, I guess maybe they lost some of it trying to uh, promote Kazang or whatever. Maybe some of it was spent. But at least this, what I just listed there was at the very least what was embezzled. Those that know Robert Alexander do not paint him as an evil genius, even some of his victims. They don't think that this was a guy who was a career scammer or looking to rip them off. They painted him in the same way that people described Eric Lindgren, someone who didn't mean to really cheat anyone permanently, and they always felt that another hot streak or other windfall of money was around the corner to rescue them. This could also be named the Full Tilt Defense because that was basically what the owners of Full Tilt felt on the board there when they stole the player money. That, hey, we'll get it back eventually so we can steal it right now. That's not an excuse, by the way. You can, you can never steal money and often you don't get it back as, as is what happened here. So everybody said Robert was pretty generous with friends. He, he was someone who, who didn't mean to rip people off. That they, they were sure that he really just felt that another hot streak at the tables or another uh, business idea that's going to work big time or this Kazang. He thought that something's going to get him a lot of money again and then he'll pay back everybody he, he took money from. So yes, he knew he lied when he was borrowing that he could pay back, but at the end it'll all work out. And that, that's basically what Lindgren did too. And that's what people said of Lindgren, that he, was, uh, he wasn't just looking to scam and steal from people, that he, he would borrow money and... Um, and make prop bets of people that he couldn't cover, things like that, that he figured that, hey, look, at some point I'll have money again, I'll pay all these people. And then when he couldn't and the whole thing fell apart, then he was like, oops, well, I I thought I was going to get the money. (laughs) So that's what's being assumed about him. There's also a lot of pictures of Robert Alexander with uh, pretty girls. He loves to take pictures with models and pretty girls, so... I have a feeling, I have no evidence of this, but I have a feeling that some of the money also was blown on hookers or maybe even gold diggers. This is like a unattractive guy now in his early 50s who 
really like to be around pretty girls and you know how that goes. He did make friends with uh, prominent people. I think he was friends with Shaquille O'Neal at one point. I'm not sure why, but I, I think he probably just constantly pitched business ideas to these people and uh, got close with them. And he probably exaggerated his part in Grand Theft Auto to make himself seem cooler. So he must have been in some poker game if Antonius was involved here. If you want to read more about him, you can Google him. Believe it or not, the best article I found about him was in the New York Post, which I wouldn't expect. The New York Post is usually trash, but I found a pretty good article about him in the New York Post. Well, Phil Ivey was at the World Series of Poker, and he ran pretty deep. In fact, he was a chip leader for a long time in the 50K Poker Players Championship. And I remember having a conversation at the table at the World Series of Poker. Why is he doing this? They're going to seize whatever he wins. It didn't make sense to me. I I was sure Ivy was not going to show up at the World Series, and then here he was playing. And I thought, hey, isn't the Borgata just going to take whatever he wins? They've got an $11 million judgment against him. But uh, some people insisted to me that I just wasn't up on the news that the Borgata lost an attempt to collect his Nevada assets and that they couldn't touch anything at the World Series. And I said, that doesn't sound right to me, but they insisted that it was, and I forgot who said that, but someone at the table was very insistent that they knew. Well, they didn't know. They were wrong. That uh, Borgata was very aware of the fact that Ivy was playing at the World Series of Poker. And they were trying to get that money. So here's what happened. First, in uh, earlier June, on... uh, June 13th, no, June 18th, they filed uh, paperwork with, uh, it was, it was filed for, uh, for Nevada, and it was paperwork that was to go after any assets that he had in Nevada. In the United States District Court, they filed these paperwork. It was a Marina District Development Company doing business as Borgata Hotel and Casino versus Phil Ivey Jr. and Cheng Yin Sun. That was his accomplice. That they basically it says that they have a ten million one hundred thirty thousand dollar principal and two hundred fourteen thousand in accrued interest and another ten point three million in interest costs and fees. Or actually, it's not that. I I, uh, I got that wrong. Um, that they have the uh, the principal, then with the interest, it makes it ten point three million, and then they actually have uh, looks like about another nine million or another ten million. It looks like that. Uh, I'm not sure how it adds up to that. That's what's not clear to me. Because it says $20 million is actually due on the date. I, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, there's interest accruing every day, but like 200 something dollars. I'm not sure how $10 million becomes $20 million. But whatever, not important. Bottom line is that they were going after anything he has in Nevada. 
And this was actually addressed to the United States Marshal for the District of Nevada. And it's commanding this marshal to satisfy the judgment with interest and costs as provided by law that for any pay period, 75% of the disposable earnings of the debtor or for each week of the period, 30 times the minimum hourly wage as prescribed by section whatever of the Fair Labor Standards Act and uh, whichever is greater. So basically what this is saying, I don't know what this 30 I don't know what this minimum 30 times is. I know what they're trying to say that there's there's some amount that is the uh minimum uh this kind of hourly wage that uh if it's 30 times that that they can if there's a judgment that they can collect up to that so that they can either collect uh, 30 times this minimum or 75% of whatever's earned, whichever is greater of the two. So I just make up numbers here. Let's let's say the minimum is uh, is $20. So 30 times $20 is, is 600 So for each week, they're saying they could collect either 600 or 75% of whatever he's earning, whichever is greater. That, that's what they're saying. So obviously the 75% of what he's earning, which would be at poker, would be much greater here. So this would be already like if he's earning money doing something. But th- this is about earnings. This isn't about poker. This is like earnings like at a job. And, and the reason it's 75% is because like, let's say someone has a job. You can't collect 100% or they can't live. So they're saying you can collect 75%. But then it also goes on to say that uh, that they can collect this from any kind of real property that's found. And then... They can also put a lien on real property. So it's basically saying they can see, in addition to all this, they can also seize whatever he has, which I assume also would have to do with anything he wins at poker. So this is actually a command to the United States Marshal to do this. And it's saying, hey, take anything you can find that Ivy owns in Nevada and if he's currently making money, take 75% of that. And I believe poker wouldn't even be something that would be 75%. I think they'd take 100 because that's not earnings. That's different. So this was entered on June 19th. I think it was filed June 18th, uh, entered June 19th. And... Uh, I'm seeing an analysis of this as 20 million might be an error. That it actually might be uh, 10 million they should be able to get, not 20 million. That's why I was I was confused with this too. I was like, what did I what did I get wrong here? But I, I think this is actually an error in the document. There's an analysis that from somebody else that says that's probably true. But still, they're going after 10 million. You know, 10 million, 20 million. If he doesn't, if you don't have it, it's all the same. This was before Ivy was doing well at the 50K buy-in Poker Players Championship. But on June 26th or June 27th, the Borgata became aware that Ivy was doing well in the 50K Poker Players Championship that had a top prize of over a million bucks. So they're like, okay, well, hold on a second. We want this. So then they filed something else 
they sent a uh, writ of execution to Caesars and served this to Caesars on June 27th while Ivy was playing. And Jack Effel actually was the one who accepted this. So Jack Effel definitely saw it. And uh, basically the Borgata was telling Caesars, you better seize and hold anything he wins and give it to us. Well, Ivy, who was once in first place, slipped and ended up finishing eighth. He did cash, but he cashed 124000 rather than the million Borgata was probably hoping he'd cash. More than a million. So what happened to that 124K? Well, the problem was that the World Series of Poker doesn't really want to comment on this. It doesn't make them look good that Ivy, one of their biggest stars, gets his money seized that he wins at the Poker Players Championship. So obviously this is not a, a great marketing tool for the World Series. Hey, you watch Phil Ivy root for him, and oh, anything he wins, the Borgata's going to take from a, a court judgment. That's not a very good end to the story. They want people to root for Ivy and be excited for him and say, oh, cool, Phil Ivy, let's see if he wins. It's not like, oh, let's see if Ivy wins and the Borgata takes his money. Like that, that, That's not something the casual poker player is going to enjoy. People like us who are following this whole saga and think it's interesting, yeah, that's that's actually more interesting than how Ivy does at the tournament itself. But for most casual poker fans, they just want to see a guy like Ivy win and not think about his prize money being taken by a casino. So the World Series is definitely not going to publicize this, and they refuse to comment on this. Ivy did play in the main event, but he actually busted in 51 minutes. And it was described that he was playing very poorly and very recklessly, and people weren't understanding why Ivy was pretty much such a bad player at the World Series, at the main event. How could Ivy have played that poorly? One of the best poker players in the world. How how could he have been that bad at the main event? Now there is a new theory that he got his 124K seized shortly before that and realized that anything he was going to win at the main event was probably going to be seized. So maybe his heart wasn't in the event anymore. I don't know why he entered, but uh, maybe he kind of, maybe he had already bought in. Who knows? He could have unbought in, but maybe he, he entered, but he just, couldn't get it out of his head that anything he wins that Borgata is going to keep and he just kind of shot it off because his heart wasn't in it. So that could explain why Ivy played so poorly at the main event. It is possible that now Ivy's never going to play in Nevada or anywhere else in the U.S. knowing that Borgata is going to constantly go after anything he wins. Also, you may wonder, how much money does Ivy actually have? There's some belief that perhaps he has money hidden away in a lot of places. And that he's just pretending to be broke so he doesn't have to pay the Borgata. Could be. But, some people have said that in the past two years, he's played in these high-stakes games in Macau, these really high-stakes games like really, really high-stakes games, and has gotten beat really hard. 
that he just had an awful last two years in Macau and gotten clobbered for big money. And that at one point he finally had to give up playing on his own and actually had to be back to continue playing there. That's a story. It's not necessarily the truth, but that's what people have been saying. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. So, we don't know. He also does have this uh, expensive home in Mexico. And as far as we know, he still has that. So, he's not like broke, but if the story about Macau is true, he may have shot off a lot of his money. So, I don't know. It's very possible he doesn't have anywhere near the $10 million to pay. So, that is the current Phil Ivey update. We may never see him at the World Series again. This may be it. He, maybe they took the 124000 and he's like, screw it, I'm never playing the World Series again. I'm done. All right, uh, two topics left. Not long ones either, thankfully. Something happened in downtown Las Vegas that I wish I was there for, but it, it when I became aware of it, I was already gone. I had already left Vegas. To be honest, in the month of July, I didn't have much time. I was playing the World Series every single day. But I did have two days where I was off in between that I might have done this. Full pay video poker is defined as pay tables that bring the expected return at 100 or very close to 100% with perfect play. Now, this doesn't mean you're going to win every time because there is a lot of variance to video poker. A lot of your success or failure in video poker has to do with how many royal flushes you hit, which doesn't really depend on the pay table. So if you play a good machine but just go in a royal flush drought, you're still going to lose. That's not to say pay tables don't matter. They matter very much. But I'm saying that uh, it's easy to play a machine that's above 100% and not win in video poker. But anyway, there's very few full pay machines still around. And the few that exist usually are at very low limits where it's not worth your time playing unless you're just playing for fun. And when I say low limits, I mean like 25 cent per credit or lower. Now in video poker, you always play, or almost always play, five credits per hand. So a 25 cent machine is really like a $1.25 machine. And then there's multiplay machines where you can play like up to 100 hands at once. So that really makes a cheap-looking machine expensive if you, if you play like 100 hands at once. Like a 25-cent machine where you play 100 hands actually gets expensive because you're really risking $125 per hand. But these full-pay machines are rarely multi multiplay and they're rarely above 25 cents per hand. It's usually one hand at a time for 25 cents per credit, so you're you're playing a dollar twenty five per hand and you you're just not gonna make any kind of real money that way, even if you do play perfectly. And then there's the matter of playing perfectly. It's not just a, a snap to do that because you can make mistakes, even if you know the strategy perfectly. And there are a lot of like 
really obscure plays you sometimes have to do to play absolutely perfectly. And if you can't do those total obscure plays, then your expectation goes down a little bit. But then it goes down even more from, like, misclicks, which will happen. So you can never say, okay, this machine's a 99.5% machine. I'm going to have a 95.5% expectation of my money. You can't say that because you're not going to play perfectly. You're just not. But with all that said, they're just the full pay video poker is basically a thing of the past. And the reason they're a thing of the past is that there are too many people who know how to play close to perfectly now thanks to sites like wizardofodds.com, which provide pretty clear guides that you can even check on your phone as you're playing on how to handle spots that aren't totally obvious. I'll sometimes use that when I'm playing video poker. So the information is too accessible now. And whenever they provide full pay machines, ones that pay over 100% with perfect play, if they provide them at limits that are high enough to make any kind of decent money, I don't even mean great money, I mean even just kind of enough money to make it worth your while, then video poker teams descend upon these casinos and crush them. So if they keep it really low, like single play 25 cent machines, then the video poker pros are not going to show up and play. It's just not worth it. They're going to earn pennies that way. So that's uh, the ones that you hear that are over 100% return. These are machines that are at such low limits, no one's going to bother. But that all changed in July of this year. It's still July, of course. Uh, That all changed July 2019 or the beginning of the month when Downtown Grand announced that they were... I don't know if they really announced it, but it became known, shall I say, not sure how, that Downtown Grand offered full-pay video poker machines. And the unusual thing is that they were offering them at up to $2 per credit, which means like $10 per hand, which you can make real money at that. And the most lucrative of all the games was full pay, full pay deuces wild. And the reason that's the most lucrative is because that one has a 100.76% return. Whereas... The other ones, like Double Double Bonus, they're, they're barely over 100%. So they don't have to worry about uh, the pros crushing them because the pros only have a tiny edge, which they may not even have if they don't play absolutely perfectly. But the, uh, the, the video poker at 100.76%, they can... Uh, really win a lot of money, especially if they send a lot of pros at the same time to lock up these big banks of machines, and they combine bankrolls. So, shortly after, I don't think it's related to this, but shortly after John Mahaffey did an article about the Downtown Grand, he did it yesterday, I guess it I could call it yesterday now because it's now the 23rd, but when I started the show, it was the 22nd of the same day. But uh, in the morning of the 22nd of July, 
he did an article about the downtown Grand, which is located one block off Fremont Street in downtown Vegas. I, I've been there before. And they offered Deuces Wild at 100.76 return for perfect play, double bonus at 100.17%, double double bonus at 100.06%, bonus poker deluxe 99.64, triple double bonus at 99.58, and bonus poker 99.17. Now, the, the last three aren't very exciting. But the other three are over 100, especially the Deuces Wild. That one is uh, a game that you could make decent money on. Now, they didn't offer the $2 denomination for full play Deuces Wild anymore. That was the first change they made. Earlier in July, they all did have the $2 denomination. And as you'd expect, people hit that machine hard. They had about 50 machines like this in the downtown Grand. And people started hitting them as soon as the word got out. First, only a few people knew about it, but then the word got out and more and more people started coming down to play, especially for that Deuces game. Because a 0.76% edge for the player, even if the player gives a little bit up from not playing absolutely perfectly or misclicks, that there's still enough of a cushion to where they're positive expectation, and after enough play they will overcome the variance and, and start beating the casino. So it was very surprising they were offering this at the $2 level, especially with 50 machines there. Teams could just sit there and uh, really hit the downtown grand for decent money. Now, people wondered, why would the downtown grand make such mistakes? They're very aware of these advantage play video poker teams that are out there. They're very aware that a lot of these people are right there in Vegas and come down very easily. And there is uh, some speculation that Downtown Grand actually knew what they were doing and just wanted to get discussed in some way. That people were kind of forgetting they were there. Keep in mind, they're not in the main drag off Fremont Street downtown. A lot of people don't know the downtown Grand is there. When I first went down there, I go, you know, the property looks decent, but it's just kind of off the beaten path. Being downtown already is a disadvantage. People like the Strip better, but there are people who are fans of downtown. It's more of a working class area now for visitors, but still. The ones that are right on Fremont Street do okay, but... Downtown Grand is, is off the beaten path, and, and a lot of people are not going to even know it's there. So there is some belief that Downtown Grand just did this to get people talking about them. And people go, oh, I haven't heard of the Downtown Grand before. Maybe I'll check it out. And so maybe even if they lose money on this, that it will get their name out there. It's almost like free advertising. There was, there was a theory about that. There was a more sinister theory that this was a Advantage Play honeypot. Those are situations where a casino intentionally puts out a play that advantage players will swarm to simply so they can get the names of all the advantage players who take advantage of it and then ban them. So instead of slowly waiting for advantage players to find errors they make and having to swap them one by one to get them all down there, get their information through the player's card, and then just ban them all. But uh, people are kind of putting that theory away and saying it's probably not true. 
especially because it could be difficult to identify who's an advantage player and who is just a, a video poker player that hears the pay tables are good and come down. There are plenty of people who are negative expectation players that nevertheless know what a good pay table is and will play a better pay table if offered, but will also play a worse pay table if a better one's not there. So how will they tell the difference if they just have everybody come down to play this because they hear it's good? Are they going to really ban them all? It, It didn't make much sense. And the uh it is said that uh, the Downtown Grand has done something similar before, that their shoe blackjack game actually has the best rules of anything downtown. So they have offered good games before to try to get people down there, so this isn't that far off of that. Though the blackjack games are still negative expectation, unless you're counting cards. They finally wised up about the Deuces Wild, which was by far the best game, and downgraded them. And I don't know what they downgraded them to, but today or yesterday now, I guess you'd say, for July 22nd, they did away with it. They did away with the whole thing. And uh, they got rid of the full pay Deuces Wild entirely. They brought it down to an almost 100% game, a 15-11-44 game, for 99.96%. So it's still a very good Deuces Wild game, but even with perfect play, no longer positive expectation. Also, they brought the maximum domina- denomination of all those games to $1.00. They also, another thing they did fairly quickly was they took away any points you could earn on your card for playing any video poker in the casino. So video poker just simply stopped earning you points because if you earned points while playing, then that's even a further advantage play. So they did away with that quickly. Then they took away the $2 denomination for the Deuces Wild. I guess they brought it down to $1. And then they finally just downgraded the Deuces Wild. The other games they still left, but there's just not enough of an edge to really make it worth anything. So that's that. Still not totally clear what they were trying to do with this, but it didn't last very long. Everybody jumps on these, so it just doesn't make much sense. It's either someone who's just clueless, or like you'd think if they're trying to get everybody talking, they'd leave it longer than this. But maybe they didn't understand how quickly the word would get out. I I really don't understand it. They knew what was going to happen. It's kind of like that stupid manager at Smashburger. Like, she knew what was going to happen when she just was really, really nasty and rude to me and wouldn't give that shake. And when I said, okay, here's your last chance. Give me the shake and I'll say nothing to anyone will pretend this didn't happen. Or I'm going to go to the general manager. You're going to get in trouble. And she still holds firm. No shake, no shake. And then she gets in trouble for actually not giving me the shake. And you ask, why didn't she just give the damn shake? Similarly here, I don't know why the Downtown Grand would put out a promotion like this, knowing what's going to happen, knowing advantage players are going to swarm it, and knowing they're going to have to discontinue it or, or downgrade it, which is exactly what they did. Like, what did they think was going to happen? 
So that is the uh, end of that. I never got to take advantage of it. I totally would. Not that I would have won big money. Like the $2 at... The $2 per credit at single play deuces wild, 100.76%. I mean, yeah, if I if I kept at it for long enough, I would have made money, but it probably wouldn't have been big money unless I like really ran unusually well with Royal Flushes. And I mean like natural Royals, not deuces wild Royals. It just would have been kind of fun to do. Like, I enjoy video poker. So if I can play it where it's actually also positive expectation, I can have some fun. But I wouldn't have been like playing insane numbers of hours. I eventually get bored and burnt out of it. But I, I would have done it if I knew about it. But it's, it's not; a, it wouldn't have been worth enough to go all the way back to Vegas for. It's just one of these things. Like if you're there, you do it. But there's enough people in Vegas to just like go over and do it. To where this was going to end exactly the way it did end. All right. Just about the end of the show. 5.07 a.m. Unbelievable. Final topic. Finally, not a long topic. And I actually put this at the end because I knew it wouldn't be a long topic and I knew I wouldn't have the energy to discuss long topics by the very end. I knew this would be a nice, easy one to discuss. And I'm able to do that. Now I just have to find where I posted about this. Uh, Got to find my own post about the situation. Here we are. The Lucky Lady Casino in Gardena, California had a bit of a mishap which occurred uh, when was it? Sometime earlier this month I think like in in uh, what was it? Mid-July like a week or a week and a half ago something like that week, week and a half ago This mishap occurred at the Lucky Lady Casino in Gardena. And it was something you would never expect. Imagine hearing that when you're inside a casino. Like a louder version of that. You're just sitting there minding your own business in a poker room playing poker. The Lucky Lady Casino is really a poker room. So you're you're, you're playing poker and you hear the sound of the roof crashing in. The roof just crashed down of the Lucky Lady Casino in Gardena, California for, for reasons unknown. Seven people were hospitalized from this cave-in of the roof. 
a woman who was there told uh, CBS2 Los Angeles that uh, when it happened, people started running, running frantically to the exit. Eleven people suffered injuries. Of those eleven, seven were severe enough to go to a hospital, but uh, six of the seven were classified as minor by the hospital. One was worse than minor, but uh, everybody's expected to survive and recover for their injuries, thankfully. The collapse occurred over the lobby area. And debris was sitting on top of gaming tables from images taken by customers there. And... uh, The cause of this was not known. Someone did say that they had seen the roof was taped up in the past. That a problem might have already been known. But it hadn't been officially determined yet what happened. What is the Lucky Lady Casino and why have you probably not heard of it? Unless you're an aficionado of Gardena area casinos. Gardena, by the way, is in Los Angeles County, and it's a place where card rooms have long existed. But what is the Lucky Lady Casino, and what is its history? Well, it was once known as the Normandy Casino for a long time. But in recent years, and I say recent like going back about 20 years, it was considered inferior to the newer and nicer Hustler Casino, which is also in Gardena. In 2016, Larry Flint, yes, that Larry Flint who owns the Hustler, bought the Normandy and renamed it Lucky Lady. So it was actually his casino, though it wasn't his originally, even though this casino goes way back. It was called Normandy before that, before 2016. But it wasn't even originally called Normandy, even though it's been called that for a very long time. The casino was actually built in 1940 called the Western Club. So there was actually poker being played in the L.A. area as far back as 1940. I mean legal poker. It's called the Western Club. In 1947, they changed the name to Normandy. 33 years later, in 1980, still almost 40 years ago, they they built a nicer building in Gardena, and they moved it... uh, I, th- I think the original may have been in Gardena too, but anyway, they the, they moved it to its current location where a new, nicer building, at least in 1980, was erected. That's the one that just had the roof collapse, by the way. And for the next 36 years, it continued operating as the Normandy in its new building, which is not so new anymore. However, in 2016... There was a clampdown upon the Normandy because of alleged money laundering. And that's something that became very common in California card rooms where rich people would come in who had their money from illegal sources and would want to disguise it as gambling winning so they could launder the money and make it look like it came from a legitimate source. So through the cooperation of certain uh, staff that would probably be tipped very well, 
sham poker games would take place and people would cash out phony winnings, which were actually just bought in in the first place through the casino. There's a lot of money laundering going on where uh, one person loses to another who are all both playing on the same bankroll for some kind of criminal organization. And this way, the supposed winner can claim to have won the money gambling rather than to have earned it through drug dealing or whatever. And this has been going on for many years, and the casinos have quietly allowed it because nobody was clamping down on it until the last few years. There have been a lot of busts of L.A. casinos, L.A. area casinos, that were allowing this to happen. Even the Bicycle Club, which is the second largest card room in California, got busted for this same thing. So as a result of the money laundering that was happening at the Normandy, supposedly with the management's full knowledge, they lost their gaming license in 2016. And obviously it became worthless if they could not be open for gaming. So they were forced to sell, and they ended up selling it to Larry Flint, who was able to run it on his existing license that uh, he had for the Hustler. I don't know if he combined licenses or got a new one, but it, obviously he was eligible for it because he also had a an existing casino in Gardena running in good standing. Gardena itself is considered a very influential spot for poker in the past. In the 1960s, there were six card rooms in Gardena. How many other card rooms were there in Los Angeles County during the 1960s. There were six in Gardena. So how many other rooms were there in L.A. County? Zero point zero. Yeah. Six rooms in Gardena, zero in the rest of L.A. County in the 1960s and 1970s. Finally, in 1980, another card room opened up. I'm not even sure which one. Uh, but that finally ended Gardena's monopoly on L.A. area card rooms. Gardena's card rooms are also partially credited for the quick popularity of Texas Hold'em, which, while legal in other parts of the country, was not legal until 1987 in California. So Texas Hold'em was legalized in California in 1987, it became very popular in these influential Gardena card rooms, and that really shot it up in overall popularity and allowed it to quickly overtake Stud, which was the very dominant game until then. So if you wonder why Texas Hold'em is so popular now, if you're a no-limit Texas Hold'em player or a limit Texas Hold'em player, and you say, why am I playing this instead of Stud? What happened to Stud and why is Hold'em so popular? You have to look at Gardena and the fact that Texas Hold'em was legalized in California in 1987. So the Normandy was once an influential casino, but it, it's become a has-been. And even with a new name, Lucky Lady, it's, it's really the redheaded stepchild of Larry Flint there where the hustler is the room he really cares about and where people generally go if they want a nicer experience. The 
Normandy got to be known over the years as being kind of trashy. The Hustler is a decent place. I was there last in November when I evacuated my area due to the fires, the uh, Hill and Woolsey fires of November 2018. And I had evacuated to near where the Hustler was. So when everybody went to sleep at night, like a good degenerate, I snuck out and played some 2550 limit hold'em at the Hustler. Very good games, by the way. Very good games. It's too bad it's not higher stakes. But a lot of action and not necessarily smart action. It's not like smart aggression. It's more, it's more like just like a lot of people seeing the flop, a lot of people chasing. So yeah, it can be frustrating when you it can be frustrating if they suck out on you, but you play long enough there and you play smart, uh, you you can crush people. You really can. So, um that's at the Hustler. A lot of collapsing recently in poker. We had a poker table collapse at the World Series this year for no reason, and then we have a uh, a roof collapse for reasons unknown at the Normandy. Hmm. So what do you think, people? Should I do a 21st topic to just keep going until until I collapse? Is that what we should do? 5.19 in the morning. The show ended up about eight hours, which unfortunately I thought might be the approximate time of this show. Hope you give me credit for this. I mean, Trader Ruski was on for some, but as you know, I do most of the talking here. Eight straight hours with a cold. You didn't really think I wanted to do a 21st topic, did you? Ah, yeah, eight hours from kind of like, I think a little short of eight hours. Uh, very close to it, though, because I know I started sometime at like 920 something and it's 520 right now. Lots to talk about. I would have much rather split this into two shows last week and this week. I could have easily made two shows out of this. You can make two shows out of this. You could just... I guess by this point it's too late, but... You could have just listened to half one week and half the next week, or... I don't know, just... I mean, you could make, like, eight shows out of this. You could you could listen to an hour every day and have eight days. That's what some people do, by the way. They almost like make this like a daily show. By listening to like an hour each day. Hopefully I'm not sorry I did this. This could be tough on me. I remember back in August and September when I had my worst problems. And not just psychologically. Like I was having physical problems that... If I talked for like 20 minutes I couldn't continue. And I was finally able to talk long enough to do like a two hour show on radio. With even taking a break in the middle and... This is when I took one break for two and a half minutes, and that's it. Wow. Well. We had a lot to talk about this week, didn't we? I hope you're happy we're back. And I'll be back next week. Probably, I'd say probably Wednesday. So we've probably got nine days until the next show. 
But I think I've given you enough material to keep you satisfied until then, right? If not, I don't know what more you want from me. I, this is a free show. I don't make money for this damn thing. I did eight hours for you. I hope you appreciate that. Good night. Shalom. <laughs>